Hi, welcome to the mop up for April 25th. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 48 degrees and cloudy. Breaking news, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals in the past two hours granted Melissa Lucio a stay of execution. Listeners to this show are familiar with the reporting done last week by Professor Jonathan Bick and three weeks ago by Rodrigo, our citizen journalist in Mexico. They reported on the case against Melissa Lucio, whose supporters say was wrongfully convicted of murdering her toddler. Thanks to all of you out there who went to the Innocence Project's website to sign their online petition to stay her execution, which was scheduled for Wednesday. And now there's been a stay thanks to people like you. You make a difference. Elon Musk has reportedly purchased Twitter and will now take it private. Jeff Bezos owns The Washington Post and now Elon Musk owns Twitter, all of it, all of it. Twitter will no longer be traded as a public stock and Musk will have to answer to nobody. In announcing today's $44 billion takeover, Elon Musk said free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. Yes, Elon Musk loves freedom of speech, which is why, according to several complaints filed by the state of California, he never disciplined any of his workers at Tesla for incessantly calling black employees the N-word. Congress is back in session and will keep working, sort of, until the Memorial Day weekend. Here's what we have to look forward to in the next couple of days. Debate continues on whether to provide the Biden administration with a $10 billion COVID relief package. Biden says he needs a $10 billion COVID relief package because Americans who don't have insurance are now being forced to pay for COVID tests, vaccines, and of course, treatment for the disease. Yes, $10 billion will cover it all. The Biden administration will also be asking Congress for an additional $800 million in relief to Ukraine. Not so much relief as it is just more bombs. The Biden administration is also reportedly negotiating with Senator Joe Manchin and a smaller version of Bernie Sanders' Build Back Better Social Safety Net bill. So that's what we can look forward to. Uh, That's what we can look forward to the Biden administration not accomplishing in the next couple of weeks. The most unpopular president since Trump. Well, I'm going to talk about Ukraine. Let me state up front. The world would be better off without Vladimir Putin. I think he sows chaos in America and throughout Europe. And I am rooting for the Ukrainian people. But I believe in peace. I believe the Biden administration wants war and not peace. And there are ways to achieve our aims through negotiation and compromise. I am disgusted by our news media and our leaders who have become cheerleaders for violence, violence that has destroyed millions of lives in Ukraine for generations to come. There are alternatives to war. 
I support the Ukrainian people. The world would be better off without Vladimir Putin. But I am disgusted that the United States, after 20 years in Afghanistan and in Iraq, where close to 400,000 innocent civilians were killed by our global war on terror, I am disgusted that this country still refuses to learn the lesson that war makes us less safe and results in unimaginable consequences. And as usual, the cheerleaders for war are always the ones who never have to fight it or their kids. I support the people of Ukraine. The world would be better off without Vladimir Putin. General Lloyd Austin, America's Secretary of Defense, and I call it defense because it's become like a sporting event now for most Americans. Secretary of Defense and Anthony Blinken, America's Secretary of State, visited Kiev, Ukraine's capital, on Sunday. In a press conference along the Polish-Ukrainian border, Secretary of State Blinken said Russia is failing to destroy Ukraine. Apparently, he's not watching the news. How can he say that? Blinken added Russia is failing and Ukraine is succeeding. Uh, succeeding at what precisely? General Austin said America is working with Ukraine to weaken Russia's war-making capabilities. So why is this happening? Why is Joe Biden insisting that Putin doesn't just have to leave Ukraine, but that he also now must leave office? Why? Why is this administration so intent on settling this all on the playing fields of Ukraine. And that's what this is. This is this is like a video game or rugby. When it finally become uh, became apparent, let me have some coffee here. When it here's why I'm gonna explain why I think this is happening. When it finally became apparent that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and when the American people were no longer buying the idea that Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11, George W. Bush decided to go with this new excuse for the illegal invasion of Iraq. He said, we're fighting them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. We're fighting them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. And for a lot of people who don't understand geography and like to think all Arabs are the same and that all Arabs are terrorists, that kind of worked for them. We're fighting them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. We're bringing the fight to the enemy and creating a trap. That's basically what Bush was saying. Uh, that was the last justification for the invasion of Iraq. We're fighting them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. And then eventually Bush just gave up trying to explain. Yeah, I, I'm a liar. That's basically how he ended his presidency. I'm a craven idiot. Uh, but his last excuse were terrorists, people who hate America, once they saw that there was fighting in Iraq, they would come from all over the world to Iraq to take on our soldiers in Iraq so we wouldn't have to take them on over here in the United States, fight them there instead of here. And it didn't matter who them was. 
just kill people of color. And in many ways, that's what Ukraine is without the people of color. Uh, at least in the Biden administration's feebled mind, that is what they're thinking. You have a lot of Democrats and Republicans who are supporting the idea of taking the war to Putin so he won't take it to us. This is what they're thinking. The consensus in Washington is Putin's a destabilizing influence throughout the West. There are countless reasons he must go. He he poisons his political enemies. He secretly supports authoritarians in the West. He rules his people through fear and intimidation. He is a kleptocrat who steals from his people as well as the other kleptocrats. And Russia, the world would be better off without him. All of this is true, not grounds for war, but it's all true. And it's not grounds for war, but Washington wants a war in Ukraine, and now it's got one. Just like the Bush family, where they had it in for Saddam Hussein, the Democrats, specifically the Democrats, really don't like Vladimir Putin. Now, some Republicans are gradually getting on board the Putin hate train, but it has always been the Democrats who saw Putin as a usurper. Russia, before Putin, was America's candy store, and Putin stopped letting us steal from it. When Bill Clinton took office, the Soviet Union was freshly fallen. And America had, as Russia's president, Boris Yeltsin, a fully pickled, falling down drunk, a useful idiot, or as America referred to him, someone we can work with. Yeltsin was president of Russia throughout Clinton's entire two terms, except for the last year. And the Clintons, the Democrats, grew accustomed to a Russian leader who gave us what we wanted. And what we wanted was Russia's assets. It was during Yeltsin's presidency that the entire Soviet economy was privatized. Entire industries, once controlled by the commanding heights of the Kremlin, were suddenly turned over to former KGB agents, Kremlin officials, and Communist Party apparatchiks who, working with London and German bankers, and of course, Wall Street, they transferred Russia's wealth, its natural resources, into the hands of a select few Russian billionaires who then turned their ill-gotten gains over to the West to hold for safekeeping, to invest. With the help of Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, Boris Yeltsin minted multi-billionaires, oligarchs, who moved their rubles into dollars, and those dollars made their way into offshore tax havens set up by America, Great Britain, and Germany. Russia's rubles soon became American dollars, and it ushered in the dawn of a new era of unregulated banking throughout the world. It was the dawn of a new era of international money laundering where third world dictators and drug dealers were no longer the international banking community's top customers. The top customers now were 
the oligarchs. Now the banks could start laundering money belonging to respectable government officials from Russia who were removing their country's wealth and putting it away, sending it to offshore accounts, and that money found its way into the stock market, the American stock market, U.S. Treasuries, and of course, London and New York real estate. The Clinton administration and the Democrats loved this. They loved Yeltsin. The stock market soared and we had someone who was buying our debt, the oligarchs. It was the post-Cold War boom. We beat the Soviet Union and to the victor goes the spoils. But then Putin became prime minister in 1999 and he didn't like what the West had done to Russia. He saw a Russia ravaged by both communism and capitalism. Over time, as he solidified power, he saw the West, America and London, not as an ally, but as a colonizer. He saw the West expanding NATO and the EU encroaching upon Russian military and trade deals. But Americans, we didn't care what Putin thought. We were too busy investing Russian money and America became the largest tax haven in the world, surpassing Switzerland, the Cayman Islands. Joe Biden's Delaware became one of the largest tax havens in the world. According to The New York Times, by 2015, 85 percent of Russia's gross domestic product was being held overseas in offshore accounts. Great Britain and Germany and America had in its possession 85% of Russia's entire economy. But this money, we're talking hundreds of billions, if not trillions, eventually became a problem for the West. Yes. It's invested and laundered by American, German and British banks, but it still belongs to Russian oligarchs who soon belonged to Putin. Putin, they say, is now the wealthiest man in the world because he says to the oligarchs, give me half or I'll arrest you or poison you. Putin was stealing from Russia. Putin, they say, may be worth a trillion dollars because he stole from the oligarchs. And he knew that if America expanded NATO and the EU, there would be nothing left for Putin to steal. So Putin weaponized the money. He weaponized his money that was being held in offshore accounts overseas. He weaponized the money. He poured it into Brexit. A lot of people think Putin funded Brexit. We know that he funded Orban in Hungary. We know that he funded Marine Le Pen in France. She lost. And of course, we know that he funded Donald Trump. He poured money into anything that would destabilize the West because a weak West 
a weak Europe, a weak America meant more money for Putin. And a weak America means Russia will be left alone. Putin weaponized money, and that money that he weaponized became a cancer on America's body politic. There are a lot of people who deny Russiagate on this show, and I think they're half right. But you cannot separate the depravity of the Republican Party from Vladimir Putin's financial largesse. Putin's money made it into Trump's pocket and the National Rifle Association's pocket, as well as countless conservative think tanks and pundits. Now, I don't believe the Republican Party, I don't believe the Republican Party is owned and operated by Vladimir Putin. But I think the Democrats inside the Biden administration believe that. I think the Democrats, I think Biden, I think Clinton, I think Obama believe Putin owns just enough of the Republican Party so he can destabilize America's democracy. I believe that's what Biden believes. And I believe that's why he's so giddy about this war in Ukraine. I believe the reason we're fighting in Ukraine is that the Democrats believe, truly believe our democracy is under siege, which it is. But they mistakenly believe it's under siege because of Vladimir Putin. I think Vladimir Putin plays a role in the decline of American democracy, but he is not the reason our democracy is under siege. The Biden administration believes the Republican Party, people on Fox News like Tucker Carlson, the Biden administration believes these people are in the financial thrall of Vladimir Putin. And it's partly true, but it is in no way grounds for war in Ukraine. The Biden administration thinks it is. They think they're saving American democracy by fighting Vladimir Putin over there so we don't have to fight him over here. That's why we're arming Ukraine. Biden thinks he's saving American democracy. There's a germ of truth in this. Putin and the GOP share common cause in grinding Washington, America's federal government, to a halt. The Republicans and Putin share common cause in destroying the administrative state, if you're a Republican, or just Washington in general, if you're Vladimir Putin. And they do this by sowing confusion by lying, by saying anything that just makes it impossible to get anything done in Washington, D.C. That is the goal of a Republican, to make sure Washington accomplishes nothing. They don't believe in government, certainly not the federal government. And so Putin hates Washington, D.C. He shares common cause with the Republicans. They have the same, they have a similar wish list. They both hate Washington, D.C., and they only really like white men. 
So some of what the Democratic leadership believes is based on a germ of truth. Republicans and Putin hate Washington and want to destroy it, but it is not grounds for war in Ukraine. Biden and the Democrats want to fight Putin over there in Ukraine so we don't have to fight him over here. They believe that because they're lazy. The Democrats who surround Joe Biden's feebled mind are lazy. They don't want to do the real work that we have to do to save our democracy. So they blame everything on Putin and the GOP. It's lazy thinking. Biden is convinced that if we can destroy Putin, we can save American democracy, right? That's what he thinks. Medicare for all, maybe joining Bernie Sunday out on Staten Island and endorsing Christian Small's Amazon labor union. That would be a much more efficient way to save our democracy. But Biden and the Democrats, they take the lazy path, convinced our democracy is under assault from outside forces. It can't possibly be our fault. It's Putin's fault. It's the Republicans fault. Can't be the Democratic Party's fault. Can't be our fault for refusing to give the 100 million Americans who could vote but choose not to vote. Giving them a reason to vote. That's not, you know, the fact that the Democratic Party failed to give 100 million Americans who could vote a reason to vote. That's it's all Putin's fault. It's all the Republican. It's, it's the fault of the Republican Party. So Biden is using the Ukrainian people to weaken Putin, because for America, war solves all our problems, especially when someone else is fighting that war. Washington right now is controlled by lazy thinkers with expensive degrees. They are lazy. They are unoriginal. They are frightened and ambitious. There's nothing more dangerous than a frightened, lazy, ambitious Democrat. It's what got us into Vietnam, the best and the brightest. We don't need to go to war to weaken Putin and his corrupting influences over our democracy. I do believe that he has corrupting influences. I believe that. I don't think he's the single cause of the corruption of our democracy. I think he's a, a player. Now, if you really cared about democracy here in the United States or the lives of innocent Ukrainians, I'll go over the numbers in a second to show you just how how much Ukraine is winning. You know, Blinken says we're winning. Ukraine is winning over there. We'll go over just how much Ukraine is winning in a second. Uh, if you cared about the Ukrainian people, if you cared about democracy uh, in the United States, we could instead try to defeat Putin by cracking down on the pipeline that flows from American tax havens into America's political system. All that dark money that President Obama was complaining about at Stanford, 
last week talking about the threats to our democracy. Well, you know, you could crack down on that pipeline by opening up our tax havens. We could open these tax shelters and return the money to the people it was stolen from. There are laws on the books right now that would allow Merrick Garland and the Justice Department and the Biden administration to open up the tax havens, oh, in Biden's very own Delaware, and return that money to the people it belongs to. But no, 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 no. We keep that money hidden because that money, the Russian oligarch money, Putin's money, props up the price of American real estate, our stocks, our fine art. America is a wash in filthy money that's been washed by America. And when Biden freezes the assets of a Russian oligarch or Vladimir Putin's assets, when he freezes those assets, that's great for our economy. It props up the real estate market. An oligarch who owns a skyscraper secretly, when that's frozen, he can't sell it. If your assets are frozen, you can't sell your stocks, your T-bills, your dollars. When you freeze assets, you help create a solid floor for so many investment vehicles. Nobody's selling if their assets are frozen. So that's good. If you own property and your next door neighbor is a Russian oligarch, he can't sell. That's great for property values. So we're not really willing to do what we have to do to save our democracy or to save the Ukrainian people. Uh, we're not going to open the tax havens and investigate where exactly all that money comes from and who it really belongs to. Because that kind of Justice Department, Merrick Garland doing what he should be doing, enforcing the laws on the books and opening up these tax havens, Merrick Garland knows what Robert Mueller knew. You start pulling on that thread, you crash not just the entire New York City real estate market, you crash our entire economy. And the Democrats know that. So how does Biden and his group of lazy thinkers, how do they stop Putin from destabilizing the West? The only way they know how, war. Instead of unpacking Putin's assets and returning them to the Russian people, instead of supporting pro-democracy groups in Russia, we provoked Putin into invading Ukraine. There were never any olive branches. He's going to invade for weeks. He's going to invade. No shuttle diplomacy, no meetings. Instead of peace talks, we sent weapons to Ukraine and we're sending more weapons to Ukraine because the Biden administration wanted to have it out with Putin on the backs of the Ukrainian people. Biden and the Democrats 
want this war in Ukraine, not just because it means more weapon sales for David Rubenstein, head of the Carlyle Group, also the chairman of the Kennedy Center. Biden wants this war with Russia for the same reason Bush wanted war with Iraq. We can no longer do business with Russia's leader. Putin is no longer letting us steal from Russia. When Joe Biden said last month that Putin must go, he doesn't mean open and free elections for the Russian people. He means Russia needs a leader who will let us steal from them again. It's grotesque and it reveals how morally bankrupt the entire leadership in Washington is. Not a single peacemaker among them. Amy Siskind was a famous never Trumper. Many of you will remember her as the author of The List. It was a week by week compilation of Trump's presidency to keep track of all the confusion he was sowing to destroy our democracy. She's in the business of fighting fascism, as is Timothy Snyder from Yale. And uh, she did a great job chronicling the, the Trump uh, abuses. But Amy Siskin was a Hillary supporter in 2016, although she supported John McCain over Barack Obama in 2008. See, she comes to us from Wall Street. She's your typical never Trumper. She's from Wall Street, 20 years on Wall Street. Morgan Stanley, she ended up as a partner. I don't know if she was a partner at Morgan Stanley, but she was a partner at a lot of financial firms, and she became an expert in trading bad debt. That's who Amy Siskind is. You know, she's all about women's rights and the LGBT community. And, you know, God bless her for that. And she's, you know, pro Wall Street, pro Hillary and pro war. She hates Trump, but loves war. Amy Siskind positively giddy over the fighting in Kiev. This was Amy Siskin's latest tweet. Quote, just heard Malcolm Nance on CNN reporting from the ground in Ukraine, says Ukrainians will fight to win, speaks of the high level of their troops in the fight against Putin. So proud of you, Malcolm Nance. Glory to Ukraine. And then she follows it up with heart emojis. I'll talk about Malcolm Nance next show. But uh, Amy Siskin tweets, glory to Ukraine, heart emojis, glory to Ukraine. Well, Amy Siskin, you got kids. Why don't you send some of them to join Malcolm Nance to do the fighting alongside the Ukrainians? Or Amy, you know, you go, girl. You go and fight with Malcolm Nance, or at the very least, tell us which defense stocks you own. Glory to Ukraine. Glory, not peace, not food, medicine. Glory to Ukraine. Amy Siskin suddenly thinks she's 
Henry V at Agincourt. Glory to Ukraine. Well, there is no glory in war, just profits. According to the United Nations, 2,343, 2,343 Ukrainian civilians that we know of have been killed by Russian troops so far. The UN admits to underestimating the number of Ukrainians killed. During war, it's impossible to count the dead when it isn't even safe to bury them. Glory to Ukraine. Right, Amy Siskin? The West estimates that close to 20,000 Russian troops have died so far, and Russia estimates that close to 15,000 Ukrainian troops have died so far. Again, these are unreliable numbers, but we know they're in the thousands. Fighting continues in the Ukrainian port city of Mariupol, where its mayor, as well as President Zelensky, now say that at least 20,000 civilians are now dead. Glory to Ukraine, Amy Siskind. Glory to Ukraine. We do know that 5.2 million Ukrainians have fled their country. 7 million Ukrainians remain in Ukraine, but have fled their homes. One quarter, 25% of Ukraine's population no longer has a home. Glory to Ukraine? Is that what you tweeted out, Amy Siskin? All this as the fighting enters its third month and all the Biden administration has to offer more weapons, more weapons. Americans like Amy Siskind love war if they can enjoy it from the fortified bunkers of their own homes. We love war so long as we never have to deal with the consequences. We can't even take care of our veterans. And of course, we have stopped taking care of the refugees we have created. The refugees. Shall we? The refugees. Exactly one month ago, President Biden promised America would take in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. Charlie Carpenter is a professor over at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. On April 8th, she wrote in World Politics Review about Joe Biden's promises to help Ukrainian refugees. Professor Carpenter called those promises empty, like what's between his ears. Professor Carpenter writes that President Biden's promise to take in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees is just that, a promise. There is no executive order. The U.S. Embassy in Hungary and Poland, where many Ukrainians have ended up, offers no information on how to seek asylum in America. Since the war, America has allowed, they say, 15,000 Ukrainians into this country, and they entered through the Mexican border. Many of them are being held in ICE detention camps. Glory to Ukraine. Right, Amy Siskind? Glory to Ukraine. I'll talk about the ICE detention camps in a second. So the Biden administration this week says it will remove Title 42 border restrictions, but will continue to deny entry 
into America from along the Mexican border. Title 42 was declared by the Trump administration to justify not allowing anybody into this country because of COVID. Uh, but in May, they're going to get rid of Title 42, supposedly. And America will stop blaming its refusal to allow refugees into America on COVID, right? We're going to stop blaming COVID as the, we're saying COVID is the reason we won't allow anybody into America. Now, Biden is just going to go back to blaming it on, we don't want them. Now we, we don't even need COVID anymore. Now Biden is just saying, we just don't want them, especially along the Southern border. That is the Biden administration's official immigration policy. If you're trying to come into this country along the Southern border, you're not welcome here. Maybe we'll see some ex exceptions with the Ukrainian refugees because they're white, maybe. International law dictates that anyone who comes to America or any country seeking asylum must be provided due process. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 14, states that everyone has the right to seek and enjoy asylum from persecution in other countries. By law, by international law, America must accept anyone who comes to this country seeking asylum and then giving them a hearing. We do not. We are in violation of international law. According to Homeland Security, as many as 60,000 people are amassed along the northern Mexico, uh, along northern Mexico, attempting to seek entry into the United States. 60,000 people are trying to get into the United States right now. They're escaping persecution in places like Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, whose governments are overrun by gangs and narco terrorists. They are escaping countries that are run, literally run by narco terrorists. They are seeking asylum. One Honduran who did make it safely into America is Juan Orlando Hernandez. Up until a year ago, Juan Orlando Hernandez was president of Honduras and he made it into America. Uh, he was actually extradited to the United States and today he was charged with international drug trafficking. You see how this works? People are escaping Honduras to seek asylum because their country was run by an international drug dealer, a narco terrorist who worked with gangs. According to this indictment, the former president of Honduras, up until a year ago, worked with and received millions of dollars from the world's most dangerous drug dealers and gangs. Honduras was run by drug dealers and gangs, which means anybody coming to America from Honduras is seeking asylum from persecution. They are entitled to come into America by international law. It is not safe to return to Honduras. Three years ago, 
the president's brother was convicted in America on similar charges. I'm not talking about Jimmy Biden, uh, that president's corrupt brother. Uh, I'm talking about Juan Orlando Hernandez, the president of Honduras. His brother is doing time for being a gangster. And last Thursday, Honduras's Supreme Court sanctioned the extradition to the U.S. of the former director of Honduras's National Police. That's their FBI. They've extradited the head of Honduras's FBI. They've brought Juan Carlos Bonilla Vallarde to America to face the same charges the president of Honduras was charged with today. But no asylum for the women and children escaping the gangs who controlled Honduras's government. It is the official policy of the American government that Honduras was controlled by narco terrorists, gang leaders. So by the very definition of asylum, anyone coming to America from Honduras is entitled to come here and be given a visa and possibly citizenship because they are escaping persecution in Honduras. We're putting their leadership on trial here. Now, Honduras has elected a socialist in the past year, a woman, but uh, it's not safe. So that's America. U.S. immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, runs America's entire immigration prison system, ICE. The General Accounting Office says on any given day, something like 50,000 immigrants are detained inside one of ICE's detention facilities. These detainees are entitled to legal counsel, due process, but according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, ICE is lying when it claims it tries to provide legal counsel to the 50,000 immigrants held in ICE detention facilities. There's a reason they're entitled to legal counsel. It's good for them and it's good for our country. Study after study shows that immigrants with access to legal counsel are 10 times more likely to be accepted into the country. And if these immigrants are released via bond or parole, they are 20 times more likely to be allowed to stay in America and have successful lives. Don't we want them to have successful lives? We need people coming to America. We don't have we don't have enough workers and we don't have enough people paying into Social Security and Medicare. Legal counsel is the safest pathway into America, but because these ICE detention facilities are primarily something like 80%, they're primarily for profit. It is in the best interests of the people running these concentration camps to keep these women and children detained without legal counsel. The longer they go without legal counsel, or being able to talk to friends and family, the longer these for-profit corporations can charge the ICE people uh, to keep these 
women and children in American concentration camps. Human Rights First reports that detention of immigrants in ICE concentration camps inflict unnecessary physical and psychological harm, especially for women and children who have already experienced trauma inside the country they are fleeing, you know, like Honduras. Under international law and protocols outlined by the United Nations Refugee Agency, America is expected to release refugees seeking asylum into our community so they can be housed by friends, family, or charitable relief agencies. Placing refugees in detention centers, for-profit detention centers, goes against the norms and principles of international law. There is no law in America that says people coming to America along the southern border must be detained in these these ICE detention camps. There's no this is a unilateral decision made by the Department of Immigration, part of the executive branch. Joe Biden could release with the stroke of a pen. Joe Biden could shut down these detention facilities. There's no law on the books that says you take immigrants and put them in detention centers. Compare the treatment of Ukrainian refugees in Poland and Hungary, as well as the rest of the EU, with how America takes in our refugees. And by the way, anybody from Central America is a refugee. They're not a migrant. That's they're, they're, they're refugees. Ukrainian refugees have been taken into Europe without visas. The EU, right after the war started, has promised the refugees that they can stay for several year, years throughout Europe and will be given housing, education, jobs, and health care. Instead of refugee camps, the Ukrainians are processed inside reception centers and then transferred to a network of families, owners of guest houses, and hotels. But in America, the richest country in the history of civilization, our refugees are big business. So they are locked up in for-profit detention centers. Human Rights First points out that there is no law that gives ICE the authority to detain asylum seekers. And there is no law to prevent America's Department of Immigration from allowing asylum seekers or immigrants into the country. There's no law that prevents Joe Biden from saying, come on in and spending the money that it gives ICE on giving stipends to families or churches or any other alternative to detention facilities as these people await their immigration status as they wait to go before a judge. There's no law that says they have to be locked up. The Justice, the Justice Department, the Homeland Security and Joe Biden, they act unilaterally. They've decided, Joe Biden has decided these detention centers are the way to go with the people of color entering the southern border. There is no law that says these immigrants must be detained. International law says they can't be detained. 
But Homeland Security is acting unilaterally with Joe Biden's permission to lock these innocent women and children up because they're not white and there's money to be made in for-profit detention facilities. The Southern Poverty Law Center reports that many asylum seekers are held in remote for-profit detention centers with no access to lawyers, no access to their family, because these are for-profit. And the longer you keep them there, the more money the corporation makes. This is the intersection of racism and profit. These people do not need to be detained. They need to be helped. These people are not lawbreakers. They left countries like Honduras in search of law. According to the American Immigration Council, 83% of all immigrants who are not detained in detention camps show up for their scheduled court hearings. 96% of immigrants who are assigned an attorney show up for their court hearings. So what about the ones who don't show up? Well, we separate families and we can't find the children. And when you can't find the children, you can't find the parents and you can't find the parents. So you can't serve them a notice for where their court appearance is. The refugees and they are refugees. These are not migrants. These are refugees. They're along the southern border. When you ask the few that don't show up for their court hearing, they often say it's because they never received a notice or because these for-profit detention centers are in remote locations and they lack the resources, the migrants, not the migrants, the refugees lack the resources to get to these detention centers for their court hearings. Immigrants asylum seekers are not supposed to be in detention centers period there is no law that says they belong in detention center and international law forbids it we do not need detention centers for immigrants these are refugees they are here to escape political persecution from drug dealers and gangs who run governments like honduras they are escaping countries whose police departments are run by gangsters. There are alternatives to detaining immigrants. The EU, Poland and Hungary found alternatives. The alternative is basic human decency, which America is sorely lacking. We are an indecent people. We are an indecent country. We take the weakest, the most desperate, and we profit off them by locking them up. We do it to our own, and we do it to those who try to come here seeking a better life. We are an indecent nation. It doesn't have to be this way. There are community organizations, churches, and other non-government organizations. We do not need ICE. We need a government agency that works with the people who come to America seeking a better life. And it's more efficient than locking them up and a lot cheaper. See, that's the dirty, dark secret about cracking down on immigration. These people are not criminals. They don't belong in prison. 
and prison is the most expensive way to deal with them. The General Accounting Office reported last year that ICE spends $3.1 billion a year on keeping foreign nationals behind bars. $3.1 billion to keep 50,000 detainees behind bars. That means ICE is spending $60,000 a year per foreign national behind bars. Does that sound like a good use of your taxes? If you think it does, then you're a racist. We are a kleptocracy and kleptocracies are inefficient. We give $60,000 a year per immigrant to private corporations to keep them in detention centers, which by the lead, by, by uh, these detention centers, which by the way, leading scholars of the Holocaust have called concentration camps. These are concentration camps. A concentration camp, by its very definition, is the imprisonment of people from a specific religion or nationality being detained. According to the Cato Institute, a conservative think tank, in 2020, 21 people died in ICE detention centers that we know of. There are countless reports of COVID outbreaks, rapes, children being held with, uh, with adults, scabies, lack of heat, lack of air conditioning, no blankets, no medicine, food. Detainees are forced to work to maintain the for-profit detention centers. And instead of money, they are paid, they are paid in soup. Guards assault the detainees and spew racism. Lindsey Graham visited a detention center in Texas and almost vomited from the stench. Who benefits from this? Nobody other than the racists who enjoy the suffering of dark people. And of course, the for-profit prison industry, which Joe Biden promised when he was running for office to eliminate, but has continued to let it grow during his administration especially when it comes to ICE. Like I said, it costs $60,000 a year to house a single inmate in a detention center. But what about the families? What about the women and children? What does it cost to keep them inside a for-profit prison? Each member of the family, for each member of the family, costs American taxpayers more than $320 a day. So it costs more in these for-profit family detention centers. Uh, $320 a day to hold one single immigrant child with their mother or father or sister in a family detention center. That's $116,800 a year for one family member. You has a mother and her two children that comes out to $350,000 a year going to these private prison companies for a family of three. You could buy them a house. Or you could buy a house and pay someone to live with a couple of families so they can find their way into our society. Instead, all that money goes to a handful of for-profit prison corporations. This is the truth. There is no economic theory to justify it. It's just unchecked wanton greed. It is pure greed. We have turned our immigration system over to for-profit prisons and we can't fix it. We can't fix it because they have lobbyists. These detention centers are understaffed and the corporations often rely on the detainees to perform much of the custodial work in exchange for a bowl of soup. No reasonable society would pour billions of dollars into these for-profit concentration camps. 
But that's what we have right now in America for profit concentration camps. And Joe Biden, Congress won't shut them down because they have been lobbied into submission. There are alternatives to these concentration camps. There is absolutely no reason, no law for detaining these immigrants. It violates international law. Well, I have to wrap it up. There's so much more. This is a government that spends $5 billion a year on for-profit concentration camps. But somehow, it's Vladimir Putin who's the threat to our democracy. We'll be right back. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an animal right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome back. Professor Adnan Hussein, the host of Guerrilla History and the Mudgeless Podcast, will be joining us in just a second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And if you want to help the refugees, go to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. And that's the, the best way to help the ones who made it to America. Let's go to a better country, Canada, where Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the religion department at Queen's University, Kingston, uh, Ontario. And you have a special guest coming to us from? From Nairobi, Kenya. I wow. thought that was the country you were going to say was uh, a better country. <laughs> I don't know if we could ask uh, Dr. Awit Wildemichael if that's the case, but I'm really pleased to be able to introduce and welcome a colleague and a friend, Professor Awit Wildemichael, who is an African historian specializing in the history of the Horn of Africa in particular here at Queen's University, but he's currently in Nairobi. Um, he's author of several books, 
including third world colonialism and strategies of liberation, Eritrea and East Timor compared, and most recently piracy in Somalia, violence and development in the Horn of Africa. Awit, thanks so much for joining us and for staying up late. I know that there's a time difference. Thank you for joining us on the show. Absolutely, Adnan. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, I'm delighted to join you. Pleasure to meet you, uh, David. That's yeah, that's that's great. I don't know if David will want to come in at a certain point with his uh, own questions, but people on the show uh, in the audience <clears throat> have expressed an interest in knowing a little bit more about the present conflict in Ethiopia. And um, as you know, it's a region of the world that while very significant and important, isn't really covered very uh, fully, um, you know, in our, you know, public media here in Canada, USA. Uh, so uh, listeners and viewers of the show might not be very familiar, but they've heard a little bit about the fact that there is a conflict uh, going on in Ethiopia. And we're curious to learn more and to have some analysis from an expert like yourself on the history and politics of the region. So I thought perhaps maybe the first place to start is just uh, for those listeners who don't know much about Ethiopia as a country, its culture, history, who makes up uh, Ethiopia, uh, if you could give maybe a little introduction uh, to the country and its significance in the region uh, of the Horn of Africa before we get into specifics about what's been happening recently. No, absolutely. That would be uh, the most logical place to start, uh, especially for two historians speaking about current situation. Absolutely. Um, yes, uh, the, the modern-day Ethiopia is located in the Horn of Africa, uh, facing the Red Sea um, and the Middle East across that uh, strategic waterway. Um, since the opening of the Suez Canal, uh, the Horn of Africa has significantly increased in its strategic significance um, to uh, global maritime trading nations um, because the Red Sea constitutes a shortcut between the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea, hence to Europe and North America, or connecting uh, South Asia to Europe and uh, um, uh, Northern uh, Europe and uh, uh, the Americas. Um, Ethiopia, the significance of Ethiopia in this context um, is that it's a, the, it's a country of uh, currently of about 115 million people, um, 80 different ethnicities slash language groups in the country. Um, the Horn of Africa generally, if you go back in time, it's very difficult to say this is Ethiopia, this is uh, not Ethiopia, because historically, uh, since ancient times, the Horn of Africa has had very dynamic political entities. And uh, these dynamic political entities um, presided over the reception or the arrival of uh, first Christianity, uh, Judaism before that, uh, then Christianity, and then Islam. And then for the most part, uh, these uh, Abrahamic religions uh, coexisted uh, in, in, in the Horn of Africa in general. And Ethiopia as the only country that was not colonized by European uh, colonial powers um, uh, inherited or became the inheritor of this long uh, and, and complex and dynamic history 
of very diverse peoples. Ethiopia, as we know it today, consolidated following its victory in 1896 uh, over Italians who were trying to colonize the country. Hence, uh, uh, there are emotional, psychological aspects to Ethiopia's significance, not only to people in the continent, but also people of color and black people around the world as being a simple a symbol of freedom, the only or the first uh, non-European country to have defeated uh, a European colonial power and preserved its own independence. This being earlier than Japanese victory over the Russians um, by almost 10 years. Um, and as, as we come closer to the present, we ha uh, Ethiopia was fortunate uh, to have had um, visionary leaders who, in spite of their uh, internal weaknesses, uh, cultivated this image of Ethiopia as an important uh, regional and global player. And in this context, I'm talking about Emperor Haile Selassie, who established himself as a liberal, as a progressive in the, in the, in the views of Western, uh, of his Western admirers um, for being the, the first Ethiopian ruler to have had a constitution, even if that constitution was a self-serving uh, constitutional uh, monarchy, uh, enabling him to consolidate power and uh, assure uh, or ascertain his supremacy and the supremacy of his co-ethnics uh, to a large extent, um, being the, the, the first uh, emperor to have abolished, uh, voluntarily abolished uh, uh, slavery in Ethiopia, although um, slavery and, and, and its consequences continued in various forms. Um, fast forward to um, the, the, the years between the two world wars. Um, Ethiopia played an important role or was actively taking part in the formation of the League of Nations. Nevertheless, despite its active international presence, um, Fascist Italy under Mussolini invaded Ethiopia in 1935 for the most part um, to fulfill Mussolini's ambition of being the grand uh, ruler of a giant African colony uh, stretching from um, Libya all the way to Somalia. That was the dream anyways. Uh, the second was to avenge Italy's loss in the hands of Ethiopians in 1896. Um, unfortunately for uh, Ethiopia, uh, the fascist forces uh, through brute force and the use of banned uh, chemical uh, and other weapons at the time um, succeed to, to defeat the bulk of Ethiopian uh, resistance and Emperor Haile Selassie flees to, uh, to exile uh, in the UK. But from exile, um, he persisted uh, to, to, to advocate for Ethiopian independence, and he refused to relinquish his throne while his uh, compatriots inside the country continued to resist uh, Italian occupation for the entire five years that Italians occupied um, uh, Ethiopia. As soon as uh, World War II uh, ended, uh, be before the, world, uh, the Second World War ended, um, Ethiopian uh, patriots 
with the help of uh, Allied forces, managed to defeat it, it, uh, Italian uh, occupation, and Emperor Haile Selassie is restored to power. As soon as he's restored to power, however, Ethiopia's pre predominant pre foreign policy preoccupation was securing access to the Red Sea, either through, through, through Somalia, uh, or what's today Somalia, or through what's today Eritrea. Um, in pursuit of Ethiopia's strategic interest, Emperor Haile Selassie forged important alliances with Western powers that had vested strategic interests in the Red Sea region. And with African leaders, he established himself as an African, as a pan-African leader. So when the Organization of African Unity or the discussions of pan-Africanism led to some concrete developments on the ground, Emperor Haile Selassie succeeds to um, host the Organization of African Unity or the organization that emerged out of uh, the, the discussions for African uh, Pan-Africanism to be hosted or he brought the headquarters of that organization to Addis Ababa uh, by dint of his diplomatic uh, finesse and African leaders view of Haile Selassie as an elder statesman, statesman and generally African peoples and Black people around the world's view of Ethiopia as a beacon of freedom and hope. But Ethiopia had an inbuilt expansionist. Uh, it, it was built as an expansionist empire. The same year that it defeated Italian colonialism in 1896, for example, um, Emperor Menelik at the time expanded to the vast parts of what's today Western southern and eastern Ethiopia. So Ethiopia came on the one hand by, uh, came into existence on the one hand by defeating European colonialism, on the other hand, by further expanding to the rest of what constituted Ethiopia because Emperor Menelik's view was, if the white men are coming from so far to parcel the land all around me, what holds me back from partaking in the same exercise? and partake in the same exercises, exactly what he did. And when Emperor Haile Selassie was restored to the throne, uh, the same kind of ingrained imperial expansionist view um, puts him at loggerheads with what had become uh, the former Italian colony of Eritrea and the former Italian and British colony of uh, Somalia and Somaliland that had at that time become the Republic of Somalia. Um, Emperor Haile Selassie eventually is overthrown by revolutionary uh, pressures from within Ethiopia at the height of the global leftist and global student agitation uh, in the mid 1970s. Um, unfortunately, the revolutionary thrust that overthrew the Emperor Haile Selassie was itself overthrown or taken hostage by the more organized military force at the time. Hence, we have the junta called, that called itself the Derg, rule Ethiopia through an iron fist between 1974 and 1991 until that military government is defeated in the hands of Eritrean um, independentists or Eritreans who had been seeking independence and um, in alliance with 
the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front and other Ethiopian organizations that subsequently formed uh, a federal Ethiopian government and the Eritreans who went their own way following a referendum in 1993. I'm sorry if this was I, oh no, longer was, than you asked for. Oh, no, that was perfect. I was going to ask you anyway about the post-Derg uh, era and its consequences for shaping you know, contemporary political conflicts, because as you point out, it was the uh, it led to the breakaway of Eritrea to independence at the same time as uh, brought in a new uh, government uh, on the basis of the TPLF, uh, you know, resistance um, that was successful. And then it created this more federal, interestingly, very important kind of federal, and I guess ethno-federal, right? So some of the states or parties to the EPRDF, the you know political party, the kind of grand political party of Ethiopia, people's, I forget the exact, uh, 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 what the acronym is. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, it's, yeah. it's, uh, so in, in, in the final years, of the war against the central government. The war that Eritreans waged had gone on for 30 years. Um, And in the middle of that war, Tigrayan students, radical Tigrayan students at Addis Ababa University formed their own nationalist movement that sought to assert their rights, either for independence or equal rights within Ethiopia. That movement is what became the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which is the TPLF. Um, In collaboration with the Eritrean uh, nationalist movement uh, at the time, led or dominated by the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, EPLF. This is going to sound, to those who are not familiar with this region, it's going to sound like a vocabulary soup, soup, right? Yes, yes. (laughs) Please bear with me. I cannot simplify it any further without... um, making it um, without misrepresenting it. Monty Python, I, <laughs> I, I exactly, that was exactly what was going on in my head, actually. So I, I, I can see somebody saying that. Um, and so when the military government was defeated, Eritreans went their own way um, and held a referendum in 1993 that was internationally supervised and uh, certified as uh, free and fair and credible, whose outcome was then recognized internationally and Eritrea became an independent country uh, whose sovereignty was recognized with a seat at the United Nations General Assembly and um, uh, the at the time Organization of African Unity, which is now the African Union. The task of running Ethiopia remained in the hands of the TPLF and a coalition that it led. Mm -hmm. That coalition was formed during the final two years of the resistance war. And that coalition was called the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, EPRDF. EPRDF. And so Ethiopia has this long history of ethnic division. The ethnic identity that ethnic identity of the peoples that formed Ethiopia was very strong. And the strength of these ethnic identities can be seen in the fact that the rebel movements that we're trying to resist, um, uh, military dictatorship of the Derg, where most of them formed along ethnic lines, 
those that sought to form non-ethnic or pan-Ethiopian uh, um, rebel movements failed. Mm-hmm. The fact that they failed speaks to the strength of the ethnic sentiment among Ethiopians. And the ruling class coming from a specific ethnicity uh, gave resonance to the ethnic dimension of Ethiopian politics. Um, When the EPRDF coalition that the TPLF dominated came to power, it made the decision to divide the country along those lines, to divide the regions along lines that the the government then deemed was consistent with the cultural, ethnic, linguistic, and other identities of the constituent populations. So So you ended up with a federal kind of system with an Amhara region, an Oromo region, and then a group of Southern groups, and then Somali, and they all had kind of local provincial sorts of governments as a part of a federal structure. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. So officially, it's not called ethnic federalism, but it was, in essence, a federal system based on the ethnic identities or ethnic composition of the federal entities. And within that, uh, Tigray became one uh, uh, autonomous or federal region. And Tigray, the Northern Ethiopian province where there is um, an ugly conflict going on that we'll uh, get to, I hope in a moment, Mm -hmm. um, is home to the TPLF that dominated the coalition. Right. And in the process of uh, political social engineering to form this federation that was dubbed ethnic federalism, Tigray emerged as a federal unit within this federation. And right. as you can imagine, um, there is nothing natural about national or provincial boundaries, be it in Africa or in Europe. Um, A lot of people talk of African boundaries being artificial boundaries drawn up by Europeans uh, in in Berlin. Um, Well, there is some truth to that, but there is nothing natural about borders of any sort, whether they are European, North American, Asian, African, or Latin American. And so um, populations like natural creations, like plants and animals, are not bound by these borders. These are artificial borders we impose on our movement and movement of plants and animals. Right, and also I would imagine that during the period when there was a stronger central government during the period post-World War II under the Selassie uh, government, and then even as well under the Derg, that there might have been a lot of movement of peoples to big cities and other regions. And that when you then federalized in this provincial way, you might have kind of populations that are sort of stranded in a, you know, I mean, this could create certain kinds of conflicts um, 
But also because under Meles Zenawi, I understand the leader of TPLF, who becomes the leader of Ethiopia, that it kind of was felt like among many of the other communities and groupings that it was a Tigray-dominated state, you know, at the federal uh, level, and that that wasn't satisfactory. And I think some of those concerns or problems led to uh, uh, changes that took place, I think, just this last decade with the end of the TPLF dominance of the government. Could you tell us maybe a little bit about what happened in 2018 and, and, and so forth? No, absolutely. You, 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 you got it absolutely right. There is this inherent population movement, but there was also political population uh, movement or movement of people. This is before even the Dirk came to power. There were um, populations that were moved to uh, quote unquote less inhabited, newly acquired territories as settlers as representatives of the ruling elite, Mm -hmm. as if the indigenous communities are not there. So what I'm trying to say here is that populations have been moving as a natural, we are moving beings, but also as as political decisions by the ruling elites to place their co-ethnics in areas they deemed strategic. Um, When the TPLF dominated APRDF government came to power, it presided over this um, messy situation to begin with. And yes, when the, the, the Melis uh, Zenawi was in power, TPLF or the Tigrayans, uh, the Tigrayan political uh, class uh, remained dominant uh, power forces within the coalition. And so um, you would see Tigrayan uh, dominance in higher positions of government as well. And demographically, we're talking about um, 6% of Ethiopia. Tigray constituting a 6% of Ethiopia. Um, But it was not something that they created in 1991 and or 1994 when they came to power. It had a long history uh, uh, being the central element of politics in, in the country. What they did in 1994 with their 1994-1995 with that federal constitution was that they made ethnicity uh, a cornerstone, official mm-hmm. or formal cornerstone of politics in that country. Mm-hmm. They did not create it. They formalized it. And it remained politically repressive. TPLF dominated EPRDF government, which, by the way, had an Amhara component, uh, the politically dominant uh, ethnicity in Ethiopia, an Oromo component, which is demographically the largest ethnic group in the Horn of Africa, not just in Ethiopia, constituting about just under 40% of the Ethiopian population, and an amalgam of forces called from from southern peoples, nations, and nationalities. So EPRDF was a coalition of four political forces. It it would be historically inaccurate to blame all of its wrongs or or successes or credit all of its successes to the TPLF alone or to the Tigrayans alone. Mm -hmm. Amhara, Oromo, and southern peoples were parties or partners, even though the TPLF uh, or the Tigrayan 
political class remained dominant. And so politically, it was very repressive. Economically, it was making tremendous progress. And as we have seen in other countries where there is the, the, any country leapfrogs economically, but lags behind politically, the economic improvement paces the political uh, demands up to an extent that it cannot hold it together. Mm-hmm. Indonesia is an earlier example of this economic progress, which uh, with, with lagging uh, political progress, and then it catches up on it until either the country falters or in the case of Indonesia, it manages to quickly self-correct and makes room for politics in the country to somehow catch up with the economic progress it had made. In Ethiopia, unfortunately, it, it couldn't do so. The repressive state held on to power, the repressive government held on to power um, while the country was making tremendous economic development. Uh, it was dubbed a model developmental state mm-hmm. in, in the continent, uh, reportedly making double-digit economic growth annually for several years. Just when the world thought, okay, Ethiopia is about to take off economically, this is an economic term, which means you get beyond a re- point of return in economic trajectory. Uh, Melis dies, and with that dies that that political grip of 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 a leader which holds this shambolic entity together, mm-hmm. making the, the 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 economic progress that is being making. A weak successor uh, who had the misfortune of having to prove himself in in the wake of a very strong leader comes to power by the name Haile Mariam de Salin. Haile Mariam de Salin comes from an ethnic minority in southern Ethiopia with very little to no political leverage in the center, with no or little uh, military or security backing of his own. And so he became a prisoner of the same political dynamics that had sustained EPRDF to begin with, but in the absence of a strong central leader. Um, Popular resistance starts to brew. This is at the height of, well, it's still ongoing, demographic growth or youth bubble uh, or youth bulge, as it's also called. Um, The Oromo population, the largest population, uh, also located at the center, fully encircling the capital Addis Ababa, rose in resistance against the continued repression of the state and state's control started to fray. The Amhara also rose in similar resistance until Haile Mariam de Salin proved incapable of holding the country together after repeated states of emergency and military uh, um, rule on the streets resigned suddenly. And his resignation leads to Abi Ahmed, at the time, 42-year-old former colonel, um, to come to power, not through democratic elections, but inheriting power 
through their own internal mechanisms, which internally within the coalition was a democratic process, but it was not national democratic election process. Right. He was like the leader in waiting. He becomes the appointed leader of the EPRDF coalition. So he inherits Precisely. the position. But then he's exactly. supposed to go to a, an election, as I understand, that was scheduled for 2020, uh, right when the outbreak of COVID takes place. And he suspends that and delays it, uh, which led to some fateful consequences. Absolutely. So the, 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 there are a few things that are skipped in the process of trying to crunch uh, very complex yes. uh, uh, 27 years. Um, in, in 1998, 2000, um, the Ethiopian and Eritrean governments go to war and fought the bloodiest war Africa had seen. Um, and between 2000 and 2018, uh, Eritrea and Ethiopia were locked in a state of no war, no peace. Um, that severely affected Eritrea. And the Eritrean um, government and Eritrean president, uh, a ruthless dictatorship, um, held the TPLF principally responsible for the severe consequences of not only the war, but the post-war state of no war, no peace that left Eritrea totally isolated from the rest of the world. It's economically depressed and demographically started to feel the crunch when a large number of the younger population started to flee the country um, uh, to, to Sudan and ironically to Ethiopia. But Eritrea remained militarily very strong and vital for Ethiopia's stability because it was harboring all sorts of Ethiopian opposition and it was supporting the popular resistance that I just mentioned to you. And militarily, it remained so powerful that the Ethiopian Federal Army could not defeat it, could not, could not defeat the Eritrean military and, and vanquish Eritrea as a country or as an entity. And so when Abi came to power, it became very strategic for him, or at least he deemed it very strategic to resolve the conflict with, with, with Eritrea. And seeing that Prime Minister Abi had significantly distanced himself from the TPLF, the Eritrean government's arch enemy. The Eritrean government latched onto the opportunity to forge, quote unquote, peace with Ethiopia. But while Asmara was making peace with Addis Ababa, it was also preparing to liquidate what was left of the TPLF. Mm -hmm that had just lost power. And the TPLF was also squeezed from within as a result of 27 years of political repression. Unfortunately, the irony is that the process that was now haunting the TPLF was enabled or was made possible by the economic progress that the TPLF-led coalition presided over. I'm talking in circles, but I hope your audience understands what I'm talking about. And so when Abi started to make arrangements to demilitarize the Eritrean-Ethiopian border in the interest of 
easing the tension and consolidating the peace between these two countries, the TPLF started to block the efforts to demilitarize because the Eritrean president was threatening the TPLF while, while he was making peace with Abiy Ahmed. And so the TPLF held on to the only leverage that they had, which was refusal to demilitarize the border and holding on to the territory that international law had resolved was Eritrean. So this sentiment on the one hand cemented the, the hatred between the Tigrayan political class and the Eritrean political class. And they were locked into this only one has to survive kind of a thing. I, or the sense that I cannot survive un, until I get rid of the other kind of mentality, which then handicapped Abi or limited Abi's uh, margin of freedom to, to, to do things. Mm-hmm. So that's major given Eritrea's strategic significance to Ethiopia and Ethiopia's to Eritrea as well. Then internally, Abiy Ahmed had to balance between um, delivering to the promises of popular resistance that he rode to power. While at the same time, and, and to do that, he had to distance himself from the TPLF. But at the same time, he could not completely distance himself from TPLF or the Tigrayan political and military elite if he were to rule Ethiopia. They had ruled Ethiopia for mm-hmm. 27 prior years, and that's not an easy feat to uh, wipe out or yeah, they must wish non-existent in, overnight. Yeah, they must have been entrenched in all kinds of institutions and bureaucracies at, at all levels of, of the government. Precisely. So yeah. in a rush to, uh, quote-unquote, de-Tigrayanize, the, the, the Ethiopian political military security architecture or infrastructure rather, he ended up feeding the anti-Tigrayan sentiment that brought him to power in the first place. And he kept making references to, to, to the Tigrayan political elite as daylight hyenas, as chameleons or chameleons, as, as many other things that he, he failed to distinguish the political elite from the population, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So you have a new young ruler with popular support, demonizing not just his predecessor political rulers, but the entire population from whom those rulers hailed. And so we are in a brewing situation of overlapping tensions waiting to blow up. And the Tigrayans remained strong. In the midst of this COVID hits, when election was planned to happen, the prime minister, um, a lot out of political calculation of whether he will win the election or not, more than out of public health concern, delays the elections first indefinitely. Later on, a date is fixed because of ramping up 
African Prussia for the most part. The Tigrayans said, no, we are not delaying elections. We are going to hold peaceful health, health, uh, um, um, cons- health conscious, all the distancing, masking, and all those uh, precautions, uh, elections within Tigray in the time that the constitution demands. And they also said that the date that you failed to hold elections when it's supposed to happen is the date that we deem you illegitimate. So this is not coming out of the blue. It's coming in the wake of all these overlapping tensions that I've been telling you. Discursive as well as practical. They hold elections and the rhetoric ramps up. All sides publicly start to prepare for war, including Eritrea in this case, which is the external force. Mm-hmm. And the few years of Haile Mariam Dasalin and then Abi, the security sector in Ethiopia had, com- had been completely transformed whereby the regions started to arm young men and women in the thousands in their own regional security forces, not federal troops. So you have many fighting forces armed to the teeth, ready to fight one or the other uh, enemy, real or perceived. And the Amhara factor here, I'm giving you more and more complex factors here. The Amhara factor here (laughs) had land claims to, to, to what had in 1994 been proclaimed as Tigray Autonomous Region. The Amhara were claiming huge chunks or held grievances against such territorial arrangements, saying that huge chunks of what the constitution still says is Western Tigray and Southern Tigray to be Amhara territory. And Abi Ahmed in order to secure the coalition that brought him to power, um, feeds or enables these, what I call internal irredentism of the Amhara to vast parts of Tigrayan territory. So basically you have a small autonomous federal unit in Ethiopia that had dominated politics in the 27 prior years, now completely encircled by um, enemies, a foreign country in Eritrea in the north, Amhara uh, uh, militia of all sorts or Amhara forces uh, of all sorts from the west, uh, northwest, south and southeast, and the federal government from everywhere. So much so that the Amhara region completely blockaded Tigray for two years of Abi Ahmed's existence in power before war broke out. The federal army mobilizes all of its major divisions and brings them closer to the border of Tigray. And Eritrea prepared also militarily. All of this happening in broad daylight and Tigrayans were also arming and training and doing military parades and talking of how they are prepared and they can, they can take care uh, of themselves militarily and all that. It's in this context of, of, of piling up tensions, both within Ethiopia and across the border with Eritrea, that 
on the night of November 3rd, morning of November 4, Tigrayans attack the federal troops that were stationed in Eritrea. The few who survived fled into Eritrea and they were warmly received by Eritreans who were prepared to go on the offensive anyways. That placed Abi Ahmed of Ethiopia and Isaiah Saforki, the Eritrean president, in, the, in a position to, in a, in a, in a, at the crossroads to either go back to the drawing board and plan their next move or immediately counterattack the Tigrayan forces. And they chose the latter. They chose the latter three weeks later, uh, joined Eritrean, Ethiopian, federal Ethiopian troops and Amhara forces. Um, swipe through Tigray, and three weeks later, they control the capital, Magale. The TPLF and its uh, forces are scattered across the region. Um, and they wage a very persistent guerrilla war across the, the, the Tigray region. Um, the warring sides commit all sorts of atrocities. Uh, which are variously documented, but we've only s- scratched the surface because Tigray had been completely cut off from the rest of Ethiopia and the rest of the world. No electricity, no telecommunications, no um, transportation uh, with Tigray. And so um, completely isolated from the rest of the world, the war was waged in the most savage way you can imagine. But then to the surprise of many, in June, the Tigrayans reorganize and overpower federal troops from Tigray, from vast parts of Tigray, including Magale. The Tigrayans retake Magale. International pressure had forced Eritreans to withdraw significant chunks of their forces. But Tigrayan reorganized forces push Ethiopian federal troops and Amhara militia from vast parts of Tigray. Yet still, Western Tigray and Southern Tigray remains out of their control. And Western Tigray is where Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch recently released a report uh, documenting that ethnic cleansing had been happening in Western Tigray, or the Amhara forces had been ethnically cleansing Tigrayans from Western Tigray. They withdrew their forces, or they called it unilateral withdrawal, which is, was not actually a withdrawal, it was a retreat, it was a push out. But what they did was they completely encircled this small region and have placed it under siege since then, since the end of June of 2001, until now, Tigray lives under total siege. WFP, the World Food Program of the United Nations, estimated that Tigray alone would need 100 trucks on a daily basis to avert famine. 100 trucks full of humanitarian aid, food, medicine, and what have you, to stave off famine. But nothing like that has been going on. Aid has been trickling on and off, and Tigray remains under an imposed siege, uh, under a siege 
that has brought about famine. And here I always make sure that the audience understands what I'm talking about. Famine, as, as you know, Adnan, we talk of drought being a natural phenomenon and famine being a man-made phenomenon in such, in such that when policy fails to respond to, to these natural phenomena of drought, then so policy failure or, or famine has been characterized as policy failure in, in the context of drought. But right now, famine is the policy that the warring sides have been imposing on Tigray, on the civilian population of Tigray. Sorry, I've gone on and on and oh, on. No. It's a very, very sad, much. tragic situation. I couldn't <clears throat> stop until I hit that point. We we'll really appreciate it. And that gives us a good sense. I don't know, David, I think we need to bring in Jason Miles um, into that. I don't know if Jason, if you had any questions for Awad or if you had something else you wanted to discuss, but... Um, um, we did a show uh, when a lot of the ethnic killing was was starting off in uh, in Ethiopia, and uh, I think trying to fit it all in in a, in a half hour is extremely uh, difficult. Um, it's almost I don't want to say insulting, but you know you you have to give context because if you start from the middle, no one will truly understand. And through the American lens. Uh, we're constantly trying to find out who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And the, and especially in a growing left American lens, you're always trying to find out, well, who's the leftist. So if you do this much Google research on the TPLF, you might actually think that's a hardcore Marxist organization. You probably be a little let down. <laughs> so it's an extremely complex situation that needs even more context than we're giving for this short time, you know, because you do really have to go into the history of the horn of Africa. There's a lot of hands involved. Um, didn't even spend that much time on Selassie. <laughs> you, you probably could have spent more time um, if, if you wanted to even there. Um, and the U.S. involvement, if you really wanted to. Um, so I know a little bit. I'm not going to sit here and lie and say I know that much, but I was blown away when we did a show. Um, we got a lot of heat, actually, because some people felt that we were too generous to the TPLF because so many people from the Tigray region are being killed that we didn't, you know, talk enough about the TPLF's hand and, and other atrocities that had happened previously. So again, it's a, it's a hard thing to cover and uh, props here, to you guys here, for trying to cover it. Here, Jason, you, you're touching mm -hmm. on a very important point. Forgive me, David, if I'm jumping ahead of you here, but um, <laughs> uh, Jason, you're touching on a, on a very important point here. Uh, which is that um, for any number of reasons, you may not have known or said anything about what the repressive EPRDF government that the TPLF dominated mm -hmm. may have done between 1991 and 2018. That does not mean 
you have to stay shut or you have to keep yeah. quiet when other atrocities are happening. That's one important point that uh, many people seem to ignore uh, or, or conveniently overlook. The second point is that in this very tragic, layered, tragic situation, um, many people use the, the, the atrocities or the crimes that the TPLF-dominated government committed to rationalize the crimes that are being perpetrated against the civilian populations of Tigray. So I keep saying, well, I'm happy to hold the TPLF responsible for its share of what had happened in the 27 years that they were in power. But I have to wash that line because that line quickly is blurred and that holding accountable of past political actors is used to rationalize the crimes against humanity and war crimes that are being perpetrated in front of our eyes. So, it, it's, yeah. and, and another thing, you know, where I'm from, uh, I currently live in Mexico now, but I'm from the uh, Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area and the East Bay in particular, which has a very large uh, population of, of people from the Horn of Africa, um, from, from Eritrea and, and Ethiopia. So, you know, again, doing that show <laughs> definitely set a lot of people off. I, that was the first time we got like legitimate hate messages, uh, from people that uh, we were going too far, quote unquote, by not, um, uh, being rougher, on the atrocities because it's almost like gang lines that are, that are being drawn. Um, and, you know, we also have to talk about the class aspect of that. Everybody from Tigray, it's definitely not a government official that's, that was getting some sort of uh, patronage uh, when, when the government was in power. You know, there was a lot of uh, poor working class people that got hurt, not killed. Um, we had some people on the show that were, you know, trying to get out. It was, it, it's frightening. It's frightening. So it's something yeah. that we have to take seriously. So I don't mind uh, going over the time. I, I have one question about, um, I, I mean, it seems that Abi Ahmed's government somewhat popular. I don't know the status of the most recent election that they had, but obviously his party dominated it. The new newly reformed or newly formed party. Um but um, also, it seems, and you can maybe tell me, uh, that a lot of the sort of security policies of the Ethiopian government during the EPRDF era dominated by the TPLF, uh, like the state of emergencies, like a lot of um, military laws um, and so on, were rolled back by or changed by Abiy Ahmed's government. Um, which and also that there were a, lot, a, a big amnesty for political prisoners from that previous era that had been, you know, jailed under the Zenawi government and so on. Um, what role has that had? And also, I know that Ethiopia under the Zenawi government was pretty integral in the U.S. sort of global war on terrorism policies in the Horn of Africa. Um, has there been a change and a reversal? I mean, I note that Abiy Ahmed is from the Oromo uh, grouping, ethnic grouping, and also is a Muslim. 
And I wonder if that has had any consequences geopolitically that has he shifted sort of participation in U.S. security policy in the Horn of Africa and is departing from what the U.S. kind of used to be able to rely on under the Zanawi government. What's your view on on any of that? Um, it's it's a, a packed question. I will need a half hour. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but but yes. So to, to, let's start from the basics. Um, uh, Abi Ahmed is of ethnic Oromo Muslim father and ethnic Amhara Christian mother. He himself is a born-again Christian. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Yes. So there is a whole lot So you mean he's not also on. traditional Orthodox uh, Christian? He's Very not. interesting. Okay. He's not. That brings a whole different layer of, or, or can of worms that I don't want to <laughs> bring up, but just as, 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 a, as a reference, broad reference, that's one. Second, you're absolutely right. Um, when he rode the wave of popular resistance and came to power, the first thing he did was he apologized to the Ethiopian people for all the past crimes that the Ethiopian government had done and sought his people's forgiveness, which the people gave him as seen in the almost 5 million people coming spontaneously on the march on Addis Ababa in the public square. And it was not just an apology, but he went about emptying the prisons. And I mean, literally emptying the prisons that had been filled with uh, political prisoners of the previous, uh, uh, under the previous government. Um, he indeed many other repressive things, he lifted the state of emergency and sent the troops back to their barracks in most parts of Ethiopia anyways. But here, another, again, Ethiopia is a complex country. Another thing that we should not forget is that not once had he ruled a huge chunk of Oromia, his own home region, because the Oromia region, uh, the Western part of Oromia region was dominated by the Oromo Liberation Front, Oromo Liberation Army, that had quickly locked horns with the federal government and continued to wage armed resistance. So much so that while he was, well, Abi was being hailed as uh, a liberator, as a hope, as, as peace loving, he used the Ethiopian Air Force to bomb parts of Oromia. So when we speak of the war in Tigray, we speak about it only because of its gravity or of the scale of atrocity there, not because it's the only conflict that's going on in Ethiopia today. So Abi was hailed as a, as a, as a liberator, as hope, as love, as many things, especially his success to break the, the, the stalemate with Eritrea which was what earned him the Nobel Peace Prize, mm -hmm. right? Um, we can say a lot about that, but let's move forward. Um, what made that possible to begin with, the, the, the rapprochement 
between Addis Ababa and Asmar, between Eritrea and Ethiopia, was um, a United States under the Trump uh, administration, total lack of interest and engagement in African affairs. And the Trump administration's uh, delegation of, of, um, of Horn of Africa to Middle Eastern powers. And these Middle Eastern powers had vested interest in the Horn of Africa, and they cannot pursue their interests without making peace or seeing Eritrea and Ethiopia making peace. There are economic, there are security and other issues. Okay. So there is that aspect to it. The United States was in the background, but acting through its Middle Eastern allies, mainly the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. That is why, for example, after the uh, Eritrean-Ethiopian peace was signed in Asmara, the two leaders fly to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia to ink almost the same agreement, at least publicly what we know, and go to uh, Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates to do the same thing and receive that uh, country's highest honor uh, uh, award. Um, no African leader was invited to witness these ceremonies. No African Union representative, no EGAD representative, which is a regional uh, um, country in the Horn of Africa. And so that shows you who, were, who the drivers were or to whom this peace treaty was answerable. That's one. Let's come to the uh, US global war on terror, which was fought in active battles in the Horn of Africa. Um, and Ethiopia was a central player, uh, along with Kenya, of course, uh, to, to uh, American war on terror in the Horn of Africa. And the strategic significance of the Horn of Africa that I started with also increased with, uh, uh, with the global war on terror because we're facing uh, the Middle East across a very narrow strategic waterway. And Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was growing to a point that the, 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 the Yemeni government had been rendered helpless and weak. And um, some Somalis who had taken part in Afghanistan with, with, with Al-Shabaab, with uh, uh, Osama bin Laden's Taliban and, and uh, Osama bin Laden's uh, um, Al-Qaeda and uh, Afghani Taliban had come back to Somalia following U.S. assault and occupation of Afghanistan. So the center of gravity of, of uh, these terrorist groups had moved to uh, the Southern Arabian Peninsula and the Horn of Africa, even though they were not as powerful as Al-Qaeda itself or the Taliban. This fuels the American war on terror, which had its own complex and hawkish and, 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 and downright criminal aspects in its, in, its, uh, in its operation. 
Ethiopia was central to this. Even when ideologically, as you pointed out, Jason, um, the Ethiopian government under Mela Senawi was Marxist-Leninist in its origins. It was an active capitalist state or state that was happy to engage the capitalist world and become a central player in U.S.-led war on terror in the Horn of Africa. When Abiy came to power, a the war on terror itself had started to lose some of its vigor in the Horn of Africa or across the world for that matter because it had changed its dynamics. It was not the same. Uh, B, Abiy started to pedal back on that relationship too, not least because the Trump administration was the least, <laughs> the, the government that had displayed the least interest in African affairs in the, in the, in the history of contemporary American-African uh, relations. And so when Abiy came to power, this security arrangement that made Ethiopia central was not necessarily as important as it was when Melis was in power. Although Ethiopian troops stayed in Somalia, both in unilateral uh, intervention, as well as within the framework of AMISOM, which is the African Union peacekeeping force in that country. Okay. So when the tensions with Tigray spilled over and war broke out, the U.S. government, again, and it's typical, the Trump administration, I should say, and it's typical total disinterest in what is going on uh, in, in Africa, showed little interest in helping to stave off the escalation of the conflict. When the European Union started to warn against what was coming, I hate to be rude. This has been we could keep going. It's fascinating. We're uh, bleeding into our next guests. Yes. I'm so sorry. I, I would love to continue and I hope you can come back. No, absolutely. I would be delighted to come back and understand your time concerns. I'm happy to stop talking right now. <laughs> I have Thanks so much. I would. We'll have to talk to you again. And I really appreciate it. Everyone should go get his book on piracy in Somalia, violence and Ooh. development in the Horn of Africa. It's a fantastic book. And we'll have to have you back and talk a little bit about the Somali pirates as well. Thank I'll you be, so much. I'll be contacting you, I would, to come on my show. Absolutely. I would love to. Thank you, gentlemen. And Speaking all of audience. pirating. <laughs> Thank you so Tired much. these guests. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. And Howie Kleiner, are you there? I'm here. Okay. And we have good sound here. Jason, do you want to stick around for a while and help me co-host? Since we... First of all, you have to tell me what's going on because you can't just drop Santa Claus on me like that well, in the Howie middle of spring. This is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. It's not a joke. This is Santa Claus that's running against um, Sarah Palin in Alaska. Let's go. Let's go to California. Um, it's actually Santa Claus, who is the uh, mayor pro tem of North Pole, which is a real suburb of Fairbanks, Alaska. 
He was elected. It's a very, very conservative place, but he ran as a, a full-on Bernie crowd, like no no ifs, ands, and buts. Ran as a full-on Bernie crowd, got elected to the city council, and he's now uh, mayor pro tem. And he's running uh, for Congress, and I think he's going to win. And I'll explain why. But let, why don't we bring Santa Claus on? Please welcome Mr. Claus. Welcome, Mr. Claus. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I can't wait to call you Congressman Claus. And you're coming (laughs) to us from the North Pole. And this is not a joke. No, I'm coming to you from the city of North Pole in Alaska. It's near Fairbanks. I think I played. So not the North Pole, just North Pole. Is there, is the, do we have Air Force there? In the, we do. I also have Air yeah. Force Base is just a few miles away. I, I played. Go ahead. I, as a comedian, I played North Pole. Very nice. Ooh. Was that in the 80s? Uh, yes, when there was still ice. The odds. Go ahead, Howie. Introduce us and tell us. What's going on? Well, um, people uh, might no. I guess not many people are going to remember. But uh, Santa Claus, when he had a different a different name, Santa Claus is his real name. When he had a different name, he was sort of an assistant uh, police commissioner in New York City. He was appointed to that job by John Lindsay when he was mayor, and uh, he moved to Alaska. And he uh, he has been very um, active in Alaska politics. New uh, Don Don Young, who has been uh, you know been a power in Alaska politics since the Russians uh, had it as a colony, and uh, Don Young passed away the other day, and um, Santa Claus is running for the rest of Don Young's term. Santa Claus knew knew Don Young; they they had a relationship, and uh, he's not running for the um, uh, the congressional seat that will begin. In, in, in January of 2023, 20, uh, he's running just to complete Don Young's seat. And I think if, I, if I'm correct, and some of them probably have dropped out by now, but at one time, there were 51 candidates uh, running. Is, is that uh, Santa? And now there are 48 of us. 48. It's a pretty, it's a pretty big field, mostly due to uh, ranked choice voting and, of course, Don's passing. Right. Well, ranked choice voting... Uh, is, is an interesting thing here because that's that's the reason why I think that you're going to win, uh, since obviously you have better name recognition than anybody else running, including Sarah Palin, who didn't get endorsed by the Republican Party over the weekend. Uh, another Republican, a far right guy uh, from the Bagish family, which is it's a Democratic family, but there's this one guy who's kind of a fascist uh, named uh, Bagish the Third, and the Republican Party of Alaska despite what Trump wanted, endorsed Begish the third over Palin the first. Um, so in any case, uh, Santa Claus has better name recognition than anybody. So I'm kind of predicting that what's going to happen is that um, everyone who doesn't uh, put Santa as their number one choice will put him as their number two choice. I mean, maybe not 100% of people will, but more than anybody else by far. So because of that, uh, he'll wind up winning the election and, and going to Washington and being a congressman clause. So David can say he knows congressman clause. Do, do you think I got that right, Santa? You got uh, 99% of that right. Thank you, Howie. And what's the 1% that I got wrong? 
The full title in the NYPD was Special Assistant to the Deputy Commissioner of Administration of the Police Department of the City of New York. I'm surprised you forgot all that. <laughs> I can't believe I forgot that. <laughs> so you're a very, very easy candidate uh, to talk um, policy with. Uh, because when I asked you about your, I started talking to you about specific policies, you had a really easy, simple answer. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you tell our listeners what that is? Well, I'm going to couch it by, I give a blessing to a lot of uh, children when I come upon them or have a little discussion. May you have a lifetime filled with happiness, peace, good health, prosperity, and most of all, love, which is the greatest gift. So when I look at politics, love is the greatest gift, and that is the bottom line. And your previous guest was talking about terrorism, et cetera, and um, all wars are wars against children. So that's the way I look at it, whether you're talking about defense or education or minority rights or Medicare for all or unions or whatever, it all boils down to our children's future. What they're looking at us now, all of us, and what are they seeing? A lot of it's all this contention and stuff. And I would like to see that change. I would like to see that go back to love, love one another. How hard is that? Extremely. In an era of selfishness. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. Um, some people don't quite understand, but... I also ran for president a couple of times to talk about children's issues prompted by um, then Senator Obama, who didn't have really enough time. His plate was full and wasn't really addressing children's issues when he was campaigning. And I asked him about it and uh, he said, well, you ought to run for president and talk about children's issues. So I took it to heart and did. Um, Anyway, my slogan back then was restoring America's heart and soul. I think it's long overdue for this, not just this country, but every country. And I just happen to be living here. Um, So I'm hoping with my message that children will see a prospect of a brighter future because I'm going to be addressing Medicare for all, which I am supporting and unions. I've been a union member for more than 51 years. Um, Who's paying um, for the child tax credit uh, election reform, like the ranked choice voting, for example, and wealth tax on the tippy top and remove the cap on social security uh, tax contributions. That would make that solvent, I think. Uh, student loan cancellation. Um, and I'm against thing. well, I think the Congress should take back its war powers. I'm kind of tired of seeing what's going on. We've got uh, the United States is supporting uh, Saudi's intervention in Yemen. What's up with that? You know, why are we over there? Why weren't we a better partner in Africa? Um, how about our infrastructure, broadband? That affects education, it affects children, it affects businesses. Um, we want to be competitive. So up here, we've got two big things going on. One, we're a major defense center, just because we're 50 miles away from Russia, even though I can't see it from my front porch. Um, but nevertheless, we're pretty close. And um, we have to figure out how to to address that proximity we have, depending on who you're asking, between seven and nine military bases up here. As I mentioned before, I'm about five miles away from the Air Force Base. And once in a while, 
if we're talking, for example, you hear these major jets flying overhead doing their, you know, routines, you know, practicing and doing whatever. And then we also have uh, the fossil fuel industry up here. And I, for one, do not think that industry should be subsidized. I think we should phase it out over a period of time to alternative energy um, sources because those areas, one of the biggest consumers of petroleum products is the fact of life here. And it's going to be a long time before we can wean ourselves from oil and gas completely. Um, and nuclear has its own challenges, um, even the smaller, the micronuclear things we've been talking about. And I'm paying more attention to when I grew up and when Howie grew up, uh, we were had um, drills because of the prospect of nuclear war back then. And we would have to hide under our desks in school um, for, for, you know, prescribed <clears throat> excuse me, drills. And that was kind of scary. In my, where I lived, we had a little basement that was filled with extra water and food just in case there was a nuclear attack. Um, I was living in New York City. And um, that was kind of scary, you know, plus bullying, just the, the other stuff that children deal with. Well, guess what? Now we got those same issues. And this is, you know, 65 years later. Um, what's wrong with this picture? So I'm all, I have an affinity for Bernie. And when people ask me what my platform is, rather than put up 20 pages on my tiny little website, which is santaclausforalaska.com, um, I just refer people to berniesanders.com forward slash issues. Genius. Great. Great. What more do you need to know? I take my orders from Bernie. Well, affinity and orders are two different things, but I know what you mean. <laughs> I've been pretty pleased with what we've done. You just said that you talked to the voters about unions and Medicare for all. I know Alaska is a very uh, pro-union state. Uh, something that probably would surprise a lot of people who know it's also a, a pretty uh, Republican state, but it is a pro-union state. But what about Medicare for all? What kind of uh, what kind of response does that get when you bring it up to people in Fairbanks or in or even in North Pole? Well, we have sixty-eight thousand union members, just as an aside, which is pretty big. Um, and with respect to uh, Medicare for all, some of the people who've run for office. <clears throat> I had backgrounds in medicine and stuff. And if, if, if you um, don't mind me interrupting you real quick, uh, Santa is sure, sure. Mr. Claus. Sorry. No, just is the union fine. is is the union sector is, is it unionized in the oil fields out there and fishing as well? Uh, mostly, well, it's pretty widespread. There, um, almost in every field, someplace you know, part of it has a union in it. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a quarter of our workforce is unionized, which is pretty healthy. I, I asked that question because I worked in the oil fields in the Gulf of Mexico and also North Dakota, and it was pretty devoid of union labor. So to hear that Alaska is union, I, I would assume that maybe there's sectors of it that are unionized and a lot of third party. And then I don't know about the fishing industry up there, which is also a big. A well, big even, you know, it's an issue here with Amazon, with Starbucks and just like other places, workers are kind of tired of getting dumped on and, mm -hmm. They're standing up for their, what they perceive to be their rights and what should be their rights, you know, safe workplace. I mean, with the whole um, Medicare for all, because we've gone or going through this COVID stuff, a lot of people are becoming very sensitive to the medical billing issues. 
and getting hit with, you know, surprise billing and just phenomenal things, whether they're vaccinated or not, or wore masks or not, whatever. If they have to go through the medical system, now they're thinking more about Medicare for all. As a councilman, when we would have a firm come in and evaluate our particular medical insurance that we're providing for employees in the city, um, they gave us a very lengthy, you know, very technical presentation for about an hour. And at the end of it, I said, well, I appreciate the information, but what would happen if we had Medicare for all? And the guy was honest. He looked up and he said, well, you wouldn't need us. <laughs> and I said, yeah, thank you very much for your presentation. <laughs> you know, I mean, what can you say? Um, last I heard is to give Medicare for all to pretty much everybody. I could be mistaken, but the last figure I heard thrown out was like a trillion. Um, and right now the medical industry, as far as I heard, and again, it's just a figure I heard thrown out is like 2 trillion. So hmm, I wonder which is a better deal. Um, you know, we've had experience with, you know, VA medical and you know, other medical systems. Medicare has been around for 51 years, I think, as long as I've been a union member and, um, it does really well. And with Medicaid expansion under certain circumstances, um, I think the system works pretty well. There's some changes that could be made, you know, um, but we already have that part of the infrastructure done. So back to Howie's question, why not um, start expanding the Medicare or yeah, Medicare for all uh, to everybody, either by starting to lower the age, you know, qualification age or what it's covering or the percentage is covering or, you know, there are ways to do that without it being a, an affront, you know, even to the insurance industry. And speaking of the insurance industry, you know how there's that constant thing about guns, you know, Second Amendment rights and all that stuff. Um, having been in law enforcement myself, um, I've been armed, you know, off and on through the years. And I don't think the, gun, the weapons I've been seeing um, are overkill, literally overkill. And um, I disagree with some of the, the folks, but I'm not so sure about certain kinds of, you know, like federal registration and stuff. I think there's a different way, just like with driver's licenses. Um, we don't require drivers to register with the federal government or say we've got a car or whatever, it's insured or not. But the states do. So if the state's insurance provision required that gun owners insure their weapons, no matter who's using them, but insure the weapons. So if it's used in a crime or an accident or something, um, whoever owns it, buck stops there, you know, have some accountability in there. And it's the states that would regulate that. So it's not like this gigantic database that everybody is sharing. It's sort of like a compromise between the Second Amendment people and providing a healthier and safer place for us all, whether it's at work or at home or, you know, just walking the street or going for a bite to eat. I think there are ways... I'm a big one for compromise. Like you, you mentioned Don Young before. Um, I knew a bit our uh, political viewpoints were disparate, um, but we both had a good sense of humor. And the first thing we found that was common ground was I supported him with his Congressional Cannabis Caucus. I was diagnosed with cancer about 10 years ago, and the herb edibles have helped keep that at bay for me. So even though I don't you know, promote it for 
younger people, et cetera. Um, if a doctor, let's say the child has um, epileptic seizures, certain kinds of seizure disorders, the cannabidiol can help. So if a doctor is recommending it, even for a child, I say, go for it. You know, why wouldn't you do it? Um, and how about, you know, some more of the research in that area? We've incarcerated so many people. It's pathetic, you know, going back to Nixon and, you know, even before that. Um, I don't have, I have zero tolerance for that kind of, kind of stuff. So um, I think our pharmaceutical industry has to be brought under control. I think our defense and, you know, military industrial you know, complex has to be brought more under control. Where'd all that money go? You know, I've never seen an audit and I'm 70, I'll be 75 next month. I've never seen one. I don't think they could do it. So instead of spending money on certain kinds of defense things, and I'm not for defunding, you know, defense agencies, et cetera, but I am for being real with where this money is going. Why isn't it going to children? Why isn't it going to child health, safety, and welfare? Why isn't it going to Medicare for all? You know, why isn't it going, you know, to help workers? I mean, you know, there's something basically wrong with this picture. You know, why are members of Congress entitled different kind of health insurance? Why um, do last latest I heard was uh, some people who are in Congress who are landlords or landladies um, are exempt from some of the regulations governing landlords. I mean, it's ridiculous. Wow. You know, I mean, come in and clean it up. I mean, this is, that's one of the things I like to have Bernie because he would speak up about some of those things because being independent, he wasn't going to get crushed. You know, by the, I thought they, the Democrats treated him really badly. Myself, up here in Alaska, in the Democratic primary between him and Hillary, um, they had, um, in the primary, Bernie got 82% of the vote up here. That's a big deal for Alaska. That's a big message to Democrats in Alaska. I'm all for voting blue in 22, but the way the party is structured, something has to change there. I think if Democrats really want to, you know, garner more of the, the territory as it were. Do you, do you think there was something, do you think there was something in Bernie's message that speaks kind of to what you're speaking about as far as uh, trying to restore uh, the soul of America, if you will? Um, about thinking collectively opposed to more individual thinking that we've been kind of captured by over the last, I would say, uh, 50 plus years in what we call on our show the 50 year counter revolution uh, that happens during the uh, Nixon administration, where you see the rollback of a lot of the uh, great society uh, and civil rights uh, bills. Um, it seems like the one thing that I did enjoy watching the rise of Sanders as, as with the, the rise of Trump, I think both these things happen simultaneously is that people are thinking collectively in a way that we probably haven't thought um, since uh, David Feldman and you both had your natural hair colors. <laughs> I think you're right. Thanks. Jason. Yeah. Um, I think when uh, Nixon entered the picture and when Reagan entered the picture, those were two very detrimental uh, administrations for um, working class, for upper middle class, for children, for women, for uh, just across the board. And we're still dealing with the fallout. And then, of course, with number 45, I've had a lot to say about him. Um, 
you know, I have those naughty and nice lists. Um, guess which one, number 45 is on. <laughs> He's actually on what I publicized at one point. Um, there are all sorts of different lists. Well, think of the S H blank blank T list. A lot of people, something pops right into your mind. Well, for me, it's not the one you might be thinking of. It's that is short list of fear mongers. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been seeing lately. So no matter how people take the name of that list with the dashes, I'm fine with it. Um, but Trump is number two on that list, appropriately enough. How we had about number one and number two. Sorry, go ahead. How we how do we send money to Santa Claus? Don't Santa Claus doesn't accept money. You're not <laughs> and, uh, accepting money. No, thank you, Harry, for mentioning that. Uh, I am not soliciting or accepting any campaign um, contributions of any kind whether it's money or volunteer, et cetera. I want people to act independently and support this campaign. That includes PACs, et cetera. I'm not averse to, the, you know, a PAC helping me, but I'm not going to, you know, coordinate, direct, or control anything like that or individuals who might like to phone bank or canvas or make a little homemade sign somewhere and put it up or get on social media, you know, like on Twitter. For me, it's uh, Santa Claus for AK, the abbreviation for Alaska. Um, and just do their thing. You know, why should when, I when is the special election? When is it? It's uh, yeah. June 11th up here in Alaska. Um, and it's a mail-in ballot. So they'll start sending those out probably in a few days, a couple of days. So um, I'll just have to see how it goes. I've gotten very positive feedback in social media, but, you know, as you all know, with the ranked choice, or maybe you don't know, but with ranked choice voting, I do have a chance, like how I was saying in the uh, introduction, um, people get to pick the top four choices. And the nice part about it is, and I'll just go into this little thing as a quote from me, I'm never trying to get ranked choice voting up here, so I'm just going to read it. Ranked choice voting reduces partisanship, encourages more candidates to run, boosts voter turnout, takes power away from um, special interests and out-of-state influence and makes it almost impossible for anyone to rig an election. So Will there be debates? There are. There are some forums and things like that. I'm not interested in debates. I am interested in forums. Um, with the uh, thing up here, if people just go ahead and um, pick their four people in order of preference, what it ensures is the way the right choice voting works is it shakes out so you don't have an immediate like, you know, election, election, election to, you know, you know, like a, whatever it is, you know, a series of elections, like with the Pope, you know, where they're all casting, oh, we have to do it again. They're not going to do that. What happens is the system shakes it out so that more than 50% of the people who voted like this candidate. It was somebody's top four, and it's whoever it was who has more and 50% of the people who's voted interest, that's who wins the election, which I think is great. Because you I might mean, not like everything, but at least you like something. Howie, uh, we have to wrap it up. I, I would love it if Santa Claus um, could come back. I, I'm blown away by how great Santa Claus is. Thank you, David. I, I really am. And I, you remind me of Elvis Costello. 
it took a lot of balls for Elvis Costello to change his name to Elvis. And he was saying, no, I'm Elvis. And you calling yourself Santa Claus, it you're better than Santa Claus. It, it, it's, a, it's a bold statement. And it's what the Democrats need to learn how to do. And that is package a message and be consistent a little outrageous the way trump is or you you are visually stunning and then your speaking style we lean in and hang on your every word uh there's a gravitas to what you're doing it's ingenious and i'm just upset that you're not running uh, for a longer term i want to howie do you have a few more minutes Yes, although Santa has a good uh, answer to that question about not running for a longer term, if, if you want to know more about that. Yeah. Well, with the second, the two-year term, I figure if I go for the four months, which is basically the remainder of Don's term, Don Young, um, I can put my nose to grindstone and actually work for the people in Alaska who haven't had a, um, a representative now for more than a month. And if we... If, if I go and do that, that allows the other candidates to do their fundraising, their campaigning and whatever for the two year term. But in the back of my mind, if a lot of people seem to like what I have to say and they're supportive here and there's an, a palpable outpouring of support, um, then I would consider running for the two years, but not to make a career out of it, just to kind of clean the palate so that um, whoever starts after Don Young for a longer period of time, well, not longer than 49 years, but for, you know, I mean, more than a two-year term, um, has a clean slate and they can go in and accomplish what they want and voters would know what they want, not have it. So I have a, here's what I'd like to do, if you don't mind. I have a question for Howie, and then I'd like David Cobb, who ran for president on the Green Party ticket. He also managed Ralph Nader's presidential campaign. David Cobb is joining us. I did. I'm going to ask this question to Howie. I'd like Howie to answer it, then David Cobb, and then Santa Claus. Because you started this interview talking about love. I've never heard that before. I hear people talk about love of country, but not love of each other in, in politics. I, I hear people talk about religion, love of God, but never love of one another. I wonder, can you run on love? I think I've been saying this for a couple of years now. You have to run on hatred. I've been encouraging Democrats to run on hatred. You bring up Don Young. I read his obituary. I don't mean to speak ill of the dead. I cut his obituary out because this guy, he was against same-sex marriage he was against obamacare he was anything i was for he was against you know increased military I, i'm sorry he was for pot well okay but i i've i've read the obituary said there was nothing about this guy i liked and he would be an easy person to hate and i think that when you're running for office the democrats have to get the voters to hate the other side as much as the Republicans 
get their side to hate. Howie Klein, can you run on love? Can you get people to vote? There are 100 million people who could vote. Some people to vote on that. I mean, obviously, Marianne Williamson ran on, on love. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but she's probably going to run for president again and will run on love again. Do people get up off their couch and say, I'm going to go vote for this candidate because he loves. How do we know? I mean, I don't know that it's, it's anyone has had a chance before uh, to, to run that way. Uh, but, but uh, you know, um, didn't get Dennis Kucinich also kind of run on love? I don't you think... know, you know him. Well, David Cobb, what are your thoughts? You have to unmute yourself first. Yeah, it's that perennial uh, COVID comment. You're on mute. Uh, thanks for bringing up Dennis Kucinich, Howie, because I agree with you. I think that uh, uh, Dennis did, in fact, uh, run on a on basically a love platform. Uh, and, you know, Marianne Williamson uh, did as well. I mean, she had some other things going on. Right. Like, but I, I think that the, the deeper question to me is rather than just can you get somebody to vote yes or no on this? I, I subscribe to the belief that almost all of our motivation is is premised on either love or fear. Uh, and I come from a place of love. Uh, uh, I am reminded of the great revolutionary Che Guevara, who said, at the risk of sounding foolish, may I say every revolutionary is motivated by great acts of love. Uh, and, you know, I'm just speaking for myself authentically. That's genuinely where I come from. Uh, now, the hatred and we've talked about this, uh, Feldman, like like anger is is can be a motivator. Right. But. Anger, righteous anger is what I tap into, which is anger at injustice, which provokes me to act. And by acting, it like a, a magical spiritual alchemy happens and I get happy because I'm engaged in my struggle against the injustice. So I think that that frame actually does motivate people, whether or not you can you know, win elections or not. Uh, I, you know, that's a deeper uh, question, but I'll tell you this, it's how you motivate people. Santa Claus, you, David wasn't here for your uh, website. You basically say, if you want to know what my position is, check out Bernie Sanders' website, which I thought is genius in its efficiency. Does Bernie come from a place of love or hate? I, I know that his platform is loving, but I think he's motivated by a sense of injustice and righting wrongs and getting people angry. Uh, what do you think? Well, I like what uh, David said a moment ago, and I think the dynamic is love versus fear and fear manifests often as hate um, and some other emotions as well. Um, but getting back to uh, my perspective, I'm constantly thinking, how are children looking at this? So if it's fear or it's righteous indignation or whatever, they're used to the whole bullying thing at school. They're used to sometimes unrest at home you know, or in their community or just seeing stuff on news with all this you know, contention mostly. And how are they going to feel 
about this. I personally would like to have them see Santa in Congress trying to make a difference for their future, even though they're not old enough to vote. And I think a lot of people can kind of get on board with that. I wouldn't be there for that long a term anyway uh, to really, you know, how many committees can you be on if you're a new person in Congress? Not very many. So um, I look at it as, as an opportunity to reinforce that love is the greatest gift. It goes back to the my slogan when I also had run for president, David, a couple of times in 2008, 2012. Uh, my slogan back then was restoring America's heart and soul. You missed that because we were at the beginning of the program. But um, I think children know what that means. In fact, uh, in our race, I've heard, you know, if you put it in children's terms, and you're, you've had you're an excellent comedy writer, um, you know, and you have he people, you know, every, Howie to, you know, a couple of guests you've had not in the two distant past have been these amazing comedy writers and, you know, producers as well. Well, one of the things I've heard, most people know that Sarah Palin, because people are characterizing part of the race by name recognition is Santa Claus and Sarah Palin, just the way it is. Mm -hmm. So, with Sarah, when back in 2008 and a little bit after that, she received a few awards and the awards were Pinocchio awards. <laughs> so right. I've heard people up here characterizing the race, not that I would ever characterize it as that, but Santa versus Pinocchio. And the reason I bring it up is kids know exactly what that means. They don't have to hear the word, you know, fear or hate or anything else they know about love they know about pinocchio and they know about santa and they know maybe half a dozen other things that really resonate with them and i'm hoping they'll have an opportunity to say oh yeah that's that's kind of who i thought santa would be makes me wonder if this country would be better off if you lose the vote after the age of 18. <laughs> five-year-olds the vote until they're 18. we have to wrap it up howie how do we help santa claus you know the same the, the same thing happened last time at the very end we lose you are you there no i'm sorry howie we're losing you the same exact thing happened last week i don't know what that is about santa how do we contact you and tell people to well, support you and do some thanks for asking david it's uh santa claus for alaska.com or on twitter santa claus for ak the abbreviation for alaska and um i look forward to the election i look forward to people's independent support don't have a campaign don't have a manager don't have you know people managing the message or any of that stuff so people would like to have their own signs and you know, post them um twitter i'm not on facebook by the way but post them across social media that would be wonderful i'd be very appreciative i look at these acts of love so thank you david for having me on the show well i would I love you to keep coming back in the run-up to your election i i, I you. think you're fan were you an actual cop or a political appointment uh political appointee by the uh mayor Lindsay and uh the police commissioner pat murphy at the time who then led the police foundation 
Um, it was a good time to, to be there. And I had an opportunity to help with the community oriented policing and some other stuff, uh, particularly we were having the same problems with um, racial relations, minorities, LGBTQ plus and all that stuff. And it's now made its entire way back, including the prospect of nuclear war. So <laughs> thank you, Santa. Yeah, it's, and on that happy note, um, Thank but, you yeah. so much, Santa Claus. I'll, I'll call Howie tomorrow, and I would love to have you back and see you in Congress. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You all have a yeah. great day. Thank, Thank you. you, Santa. Please come back. Thank you, Howie. Thank you, Howie. Thanks, Santa. Okay. Thanks, Howie. Howie, I thank you. Read Howie Klein over at Down with Tyranny and support the Blue America Pack. Go to Blue America Pack and give to whomever Howie Klein says you should give to. I think that was the first candidate who's ever been on the show, David Cobb, who didn't ask for money. What a bizarre <laughs> idea. And when you think about it, you've run for president. You're you don't, as you say, fetishize politics, but Given the Internet, given the success of Donald Trump, he didn't really need money. Uh, he was getting free. I think he got two billion dollars worth of free advertising from the networks. Can you run for I guess you can't. You can't run for office without asking for money, right? No, you can't. I mean, look, uh, look money is energy, right? Like, uh, I, I think. And I want to take a step back and say, I don't fetishize electoral politics because right. when I talk about, I, I believe that politics is how we're allocating resources generally, how we're organizing society. So I just have a much more expansive view of politics. Uh, and I live my politics, right? Uh, you know, whether I'm organizing a worker owned cooperative or working at Dishkama, uh, Humboldt, the Wiat Community Land Trust, uh, helping to facilitate land back uh, processes, uh, working on public banking or participatory budgeting. You know, sometimes, uh, 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 and I absolutely get involved in electoral politics. I don't think that you can run a legitimate uh, campaign with uh, electoral campaign uh, without money. But uh, it reminds me of what my mama, uh, you know, I think that we've talked about this. I grew up in poverty and mama had a, uh, a very healthy attitude about money. She used to say this, you know, son, money doesn't really matter as long as you have enough for the things that you need. Because, but if you don't have enough for the things that you need, money becomes the only thing that matters. Of course, right. the trick is to figure out what you need, right? right. Uh, and, you know, we know that uh, in this society, the, the, the sort of consumerism and materialism and the idea that you get happiness by acquiring stuff uh, and that you get validation by acquiring stuff. And hello, Dr. Fraud, uh, you know, right on time, we have, uh, you know, a therapist who could actually help us understand how the economy is being manipulated and how the human psyche is being manipulated over like basically a crack cocaine cane addiction, right? right? Like that somehow by acquiring something that you'll uh, be happy, of course you don't, you get a momentary crack-like moment of, of satisfaction in the moment of acquisition, but like the hungry ghost, you never get satisfied uh, by trying to get stuff because what humans really want, of course, is connection and relationship. What I'd like to do, since we have Dr. Harriet Fraud 
here. I'd like to get your take on the following subjects, David Cobb, and then uh, as we get closer to the eight o'clock hour, I would like Dr. Fra to chime in on this, the very same topics, if you don't mind. So these are the topics we want to talk about tonight. Uh, Marine Le Pen losing in France, Emmanuel Macron being reelected. What does that tell us? DeSantis versus Disney. <laughs> uh, what the hell is happening in Florida? And the the uh, reunification of the labor movement with the environmentalists. There was always a division between the environmentalists and the labor movement because, you know, oil is big jobs for for labor. And so they kind of side with the uh, polluters. Let's start with what happened in France. Marine Le Pen's father, I believe, was a Nazi collaborator or at least sided with the Nazis during World War II. Uh, she's tried to rehabilitate the party. She's changed its name. How close did she come to beating Macron? And what does it mean? That Macron she got 58% uh, of the vote. So by electoral standards, a very comfortable victory to be sure. Uh, and another way to say it is an outright fascist uh, got 42% of the vote uh, uh, in France. Like that's frightening to me, uh, no, you know. Less, uh, so she's less outright. She peddled her populism, her identity with the mass of people, her opposition to fuel prices. No, she didn't peddle her hatred for immigrants or her inheritance of fascism. But Here, here's here's what I'd like to. I don't mean to be rude because we, we. What I'd like to do is plow through these topics with David and then plow through them with you. But let's have David. If you don't mind. No, it's all good. Uh, but I do have a, a, a hard out because I'm very right. excited. I'm facilitating the California Public Banking Alliance strategy session uh, in 15 minutes. So right. so that's why uh, I wanted to plow through them with you. I mean, and then, normally, uh, Harriet and I do a back and forth, which I, I, I love. Me too. But, you know, uh, I will say, Dr. Fraud, like it's true. She did not run on those things. But what I said is an outright fascist earned that percentage of the vote. Yes. And I, I, I will stand by that. And that's what's frightening to me, because Trump is a buffoon. Right. Uh, and uh, and he got elected. Uh, I think that this and it's worth saying, like he was doing probably a better job of peddling like populism uh, you know, that the, the Democrats normally do. And that's a problem. The neoliberal Democrats uh, are completely out of touch with ordinary workaday Americans. And I there think there is no populism coming from the Democrats. Zero. I don't see it. I, I really don't see it. And, and that's what I think what we can take from France is fascism is rising, not just in the United States, but throughout all of the world, because fascism is not just totalitarianism. Fascism is not just cops murdering black and brown skinned people. That's horrid, horrific to be sure. And fascism is a political economy. Fascism actually requires a mass base to organize society along a particular worldview. And I think that what we, the lesson that we can learn from France is Folks, we better get our act together and start providing material needs for people 
uh, better than the right wing does, because otherwise the right wing is going to take power. And when they take power, they're not going to give it up, period, full stop. Fascists are scary. And I was horrified by how many votes Le Pen uh, got. And yes, she peddled a different version of it, but it was fascism with a veneer. Can, Dav uh, can Davos coexist? Can the neoliberal world order coexist with a fascist? Listen, the neoliberal order is going to morph into fascism. This is the point. Uh, I like, I, And I wish I did not see it with such clarity. But David, it is very obvious to me that we are approaching that true conjuncture. You know, the old labor anthem, which side are you on? You know, the neoliberal center is literally collapsing uh, and it's collapsing because of the political economy. Remember that the way that capitalism operates is by extracting the surplus value of the labor of the worker. But with automation, technology, robotics, the, the capitalist system as we've come to understand it, whether you thought it was good or bad, I always thought it was bad because it was extractive and exploitive. But what I'm saying is it's going to end. So my instinct, there was a part of me that thought, I, I don't, didn't really think that, but I thought, oh, it'd be kind of nice to see Macron lose. That would send a real message. That would really scare the neoliberals. But but you're saying, no, they, they can work with an Orban. They can work with a Trump. Probably yes. easier than they can with somebody. Bert, look, like, I, I think it's worth pointing out that the corporatist, the leadership of the Democratic Party, uh, would rather have Trump in office than Bernie Sanders. Yes. Now, not the rank and file, absolutely not, right? The, the rank and file members of the Democratic Party are infinitely more progressive than the neoliberals who control that party. I'm just pointing out that the lesson to be drawn from France is the, the writing is on the wall. Uh, and remember that in the 1930s in Germany, uh, Although that uh, one of the things that the left said, and it was a huge mistake, was uh, let the fascists win this time, then it's our turn. That's literally uh, what the, the, the argument was. I used to hear the Democrats say that. I, I've heard Democrats say that up until Trump. Yeah, we can lose the midterms, then people will see how bad the Republicans are. The, the accelerationists, they don't realize that things in motion stay in motion. Very quickly, because we're almost running out of time here, DeSantis and Disney. Listen, the whole DeSantis versus Disney in the mouse is, is intriguing to me. And DeSantis scares me because he is much slicker than mm. oh. uh, Donald Trump. Uh, he understands like Trump is a carnival barker, right? Uh, he plays to his base uh, in, incredibly well. DeSantis has uh, a, a much smoother, much more sophisticated kind of approach, right? Uh, and you look at what he is doing, uh, the, the DeSantis program and the Trump program are basically the same. Uh, DeSantis is just a much more dangerous version of it. And that's the point. I think that it's like we go from France to Florida and we're like, oh, hell, this is what's coming. And I am glad, I know that we're running out of time, because I do appreciate the fact that you you asked about organized labor and the environmental movement. Because well, let's get back to DeSantis for one second. Yeah. You're a lawyer. Yes, sir. 
if the governor of Florida doesn't approve of Disney's political positions and punish is, punishes the corporation, which is supposedly a person, uh, creates a financial burden for a corporation because they don't agree with your politics. Isn't that by its very definition, a violation of the First Amendment? Oh, Feldman, you're making the mistake that so many non-lawyers do, which is you're applying logic to the field of law. (laughs) Like you're so like for somebody who's usually so damn sharp uh, when it comes to the law, your naivete is almost quaint. Like like, this idea that like, you know, that, 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 oh, well, you know, the law, the principles of the law are this, like, like to be very clear as a, as a, as a, uh, as a, as a lawyer, I can tell you in terms of social justice issues, we will get as much justice that is equally commiserate to how much hell is being raised out on the streets, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we've seen that from the abolitionist movement, the women's suffrage movement, the trade union movement of the 30s, like every single time uh, that, that you look at legal doctrine shifting, it has happened because they were militant mass movements. And, and I said militant, I don't mean like guns, I mean disruptive mass movements, mass right. movements that understood their power exercised it and had clarity on who the class enemy is. That's part of the problem with so many of the folks who were the liberals in the Democratic Party. They misunderstand power. They don't understand that there is a class struggle going on. And they they try to sidestep that. Like, that's one of the reasons that Dr. Fraud and I get along so well, because we start from a similar premise. We don't always agree with one another, but our understanding of a class-based society and that there is the ruling elite who own the means of production and who own, like they, they have ownership, right? Uh, and that therefore they're controlling society. She and I are in agreement. And then we can talk about, because of that alignment, we can talk about what we think should be done. I think that part of the problem is too many, you know, well-intentioned liberals do not fully understand what a class society means and therefore what class struggle is about. Okay, so we have limited time. Uh, By the way, I think by taking away Disney's sovereignty, uh, DeSantis ended up raising taxes on the people (laughs) who live in in Disney. that's, That's the irony, right? I think that like he rarely missteps. I think he may have made a miscalculation here. Uh, and that's what I actually wanted to sort of bring up. I mean, look, I'm no fan of, of Walt Disney. Walt Disney was an anti-Semite. Uh, he was a fascist sympathizer. He's a terrible human being. And those Walt were his Disney good was- points. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and Walt Disney Corporation are a horrific transnational corporation that are literally enslaving children in slave shops. So you will never hear David Cobb say good things about Walt Disney, the individual or the Disney Corporation. Having said that, it would be supremely gratifying to me uh, if somehow the mouse trips up uh, DeSantis. I I will be tickled pink. Right, right. All right, so the environmentalists and labor are joining hands? Listen, I I didn't see this almost anywhere uh, in uh, the mass media, surprise, surprise. But the day after Earth Day, 
uh, I saw organized labor and the environmental movement come together in a way I haven't seen. Well, basically, since the WTO protest of the 19 of 1999, literally 40 cities across the country, you had the fight for our future rallies. And get this, you had SEIU and the NAACP and the Sierra Club, the Sunrise Movement, the Center for Popular Democracy, the entire Green New Deal network. And what they were saying was there are no good jobs on a dead planet. What you saw was a genuine recognition that organized labor and the environmental movement have got to come together. And what was especially gratifying is to hear organized labor say, we need to transition away from fossil fuels and towards infrastructure development that will put people to work. I, 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 thought, I, I thought it was one of the most hopeful things that I've seen in quite some time. Back in uh, Seattle, we, we said, Teamsters and Turtles, together at last. And we lost that. And it looks like it may be in the nick of time we're actually seeing uh, uh, that kind of uh, conjuncture coming back together. And before you go, to get uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud's juices going, talk to me about the increasing misogyny that we're seeing in the right wing and Republican parties. Listen, I, I, I'll, I'll tee Dr. Fraud up uh, by saying my observation is that that hyper masculinity, that level of toxicity is exactly to be expected out of a fascist movement because it's really part of the DNA of it. Right. And that's why I think that we need to like not just to rile the base to get them and pull a lever. We actually have to understand there is an actual fascist movement emerging globally. Modi, uh, and, and remember, there are black and brown skinned fascists, right? Mm -hmm. Fascism is a political economy. It is a mass organization where you say there is the us, nationalism, and then there is the them. And remember, like when you say, like Macron was basically doing the France first, French to the front of the line. That's literally called national socialism, by the way, right? Like, like this is this is something that is really important. So I'm not surprised by this level of misogyny that is becoming more and more overt. It is to be predicted. It is also harrowing and frightening for what it represents. David Cobb is a brilliant lawyer. He ran for president on the Green Party ticket. He also managed Ralph Nader's presidential campaign, and he's got to leave to do a meeting on independent banking, which we should continue to talk about. How do people... Uh, you know what? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring uh, Trinity Tran or, or one of my colleagues uh, onto this program in my stead one of these times, David, uh, so that y'all can uh, do a whole show just on public banking. You and I end up, and, and Dr. Fraud end up in, in more uh, sort of broad, expansive conversations. But uh, your audience deserves uh, a deep dive on public banking. I think it's one of the most uh, powerful non-reformist reforms that there is, right? A non-reformist reform is a reform. It can make people's lives better. It's within Overton's window. It can be done now but it undermines the logic of capital. It undermines the logic of capitalism. Public banking, I believe, is a transformational reform. 
And I got to jump. Dr. Fraud, it's great to see your face. Great to see you. Got on early because you were here. Oh, you're such a sweetheart. You, you make me blush. Bye, y'all. Thank you. I'm going to plow through all these. Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. It's great to see you. Let's start off with a, I think you read this story about Samuel Fisher. This is who Samuel Fisher is. And let me just pull his face up there. Well, hang on. This is a, uh, he was sentenced to about three years in prison for gun possession and participating in the riot at the Capitol on January 6th. He, I think, is a religious Jew. I think his name is Samuel Fisher, but he makes his living portraying himself as Brad Holiday, an expert at picking up women, and he mixes misogyny with far right conspiracy talk. Mm -hmm. And this is not new. This is these are the incels who were identified by Steve Bannon before Donald Trump even got the nomination in 2016. They discovered that that men who have trouble meeting women are uh, easily uh, susceptible to right-wing politics. And they went out and found them. Steve Bannon, they looked for these guys, these incels. What is the connection, the, the increasing uh, intersection of hatred for women and right-wing politics? Well, what I think, first of all, the right wing needs to divide people because the left will win because we're the mass of people all together. As many divisions as they can create, they want to. And they point to physical differences to divide people. So blacks are different from whites, browns are different from whites, Chinese or Asians are different from whites, the races are all different men are different from women, and to create a hierarchy. White male above, women, people of color below the white male, so that you divide the working class. I also think that the Republicans do need to distract the mass of people since they have no program to alleviate people's pain, their terrible jobs, their lack of health care, etc. But they focus on sex instead, sex and gender. And they begin with talking about women and with misogyny. Look, they, uh, and then because they say, women, you are inferior. Biology is destiny and you are to serve women. Well, then homosexuals, biology is not their de destiny and so they are criminals. And transsexuals, biology is not destiny. And so they are criminals. And then they accuse anyone who is progressive and talks about gender in a progressive way as grooming people for lesbian and homosexual sex. So that they get, first, their first step is to divide people. The second step is to distract from the fact that they have no economic justice platform by focusing instead on sex in the most divisive way. 
And what has happened is that the context of gender has changed. And men and women used to have more assigned stereotypic places. That's changed. The majority of American women are now single. And they've taken men's dissatisfaction with their jobs, with their connections, with their lack of domination, and blamed it on women. And they've taken black jobs, whites job problems, and instead of blaming it on the corporations who abandoned them overseas and robotized their jobs, they blame it on women and people of color stealing their jobs. That's, that's the shtick. That's what they're doing. And so they've created an enormously misogynistic force, which has captured a lot of men, even suburban men, even suburban college-educated men, who have lost their position of dominance and sexual dominance over women, and therefore are very angry and are captivated by that shift away from quality of life for all of us onto sex which is convenient since they have no program. And right. You know, that's what they're doing. And they have, not only are they capturing working class people, they're also capturing suburban college educated men. It's an overwhelmingly male movement. If you looked at the January 6th riots that were then actually traitorous attempts to overturn an election, you would see that it was a sea of men with an occasional women. Right. One person who was killed in that demonstration was a woman because they trampled her as she, when she fell down, but the rest were men. White men. White men. Oh, white men. That's right. The rest were white men. And because they have lost their dominance, and America is losing its empire and its dominance. And they feel lost, and they are lost. And women had a movement behind us to define something different. Men didn't have a movement to define a more humane way of being a person and losing the hyper-masculinity that denied them their emotions and participation in intimate relationships and their children's lives. They didn't. So looking at J.D. Vance, the Yale-educated author of Hillbilly Elegy, who addressed the problem of white men in America, in Appalachia, in a book, uh, and white people, Bef before we knew that he was a, a right-wing sicko, it, a lot of people thought, well, this is a soft entry point into the plight of white men, their opiate addictions, their inability to find jobs. And before J.D. Vance revealed himself to be the, the, the horror show that he is, on this show, I said early on in the Trump administration, we have a problem with white men in this country. We do. They're dangerous. Uh, they're a threat to democracy. They're a threat to women. They are aggrieved, they have a right to feel aggrieved, but nobody is giving them the right to feel aggrieved. I've asked people on the show, 
what do we do about young white men? And everybody says, F them. Who cares? Can you, know, you have said, about any group? I'm sorry? You shouldn't dismiss any group. You Can you have sympathy for white men without being a white supremacist? Of course you can. You can see that they're in trouble. They're in mental health trouble. All of the mass shooters are white men. People are obviously upset if they'll shoot into a crowd of people they don't know just to kill them. That's bizarre. Now, the subway shooter in New York was black, although that whole shooting thing is really very fishy, but still, okay. But he was the one exception. There was one other person who was also... Um, the Washington, D.C. sniper. But there was an elegance to him and his partner. They didn't do it all, and they didn't shoot... They did it over time. Right, but the, you know... It's a white male problem, mass shootings. And shootings in general are a white man's problem. And you don't shoot people if you can identify yourself with others as a human being. There's something wrong. The empathy doesn't exist. That your power is more important to you than life. The life of another human. And we are all connected. And men are in most trouble in the United States, most trouble of anyone. Women are in economic trouble. We're in gender trouble. We're the ones who are pursued. Every little girl learns by the time she's about 14, watch out for the angry man. Placate him, get away, he could kill you. And that is a feature of our society. I remember there were two authors on um, public radio and the, um, head of the public, the host was saying, what are men most afraid of from women? What are women most afraid of from men? And she asked the male author first, and he said, we're most afraid of ridicule. Then he asked the woman, she said, we're most afraid of death. Different. The thing that strikes me, not to lash out at men, the thing that strikes me is how men, how so many men still don't get it. Well, they don't want to. It's like so many people think that blacks have had the greatest advantages and whites are now being left behind. Right. Even though blacks after Obama um, took, gave to the banks instead of the subprime mortgage lenders, blacks lost more wealth under Obama than anyone else. However- White people per capita are more likely to be on welfare than black people. Of course. However, white people's wealth outstrips black people's wealth. Right. And I think those same people who think that blacks have all the advantages are the ones who think that women have all the advantages, that they're the disadvantaged group rather than we all are hurt, let's get together. Very different message. But it's a very sick, blaming message. And it's also a huge displacement of economic, social, and political grievances onto gender. It's perverse. And it's a return to the misogynic, misogynist division of people into different races and different sexes that completely destroys our sense of unity. And you can see this. 
in Texas with their abortion laws in Oklahoma, with the likelihood that abortion will be removed by this Supreme Court. This is, you know, we are going towards fascism here. Right. right. And I think that part of it is the hyper-masculinity, hyper-white masculinity, and the penis extender guns. You know, Mother Jones copied a map that was originally in the Wall Street Journal. And the map was a juxtaposition of insecure masculinity and guns. And it was an exact, exact same thing. Those states were the most insecure men. Those were the ones who wanted penis extenders, testosterone creams, that kind of thing. With people with guns, it's a way of male power. Extending male power, it's, it's silly too, because I mean, the state has a lot more power than your guns. But uh, those, those things go together. And what we're in the midst of is a real struggle of fascism versus leftism. I also want to say about the French election. You know, before we get to that, before we get to that, because I, I, I do want to talk about that. It's happening there, too. Yeah. Yeah. What would happen if Biden took on a more bellicose stance and said, you people are wrong. You, you didn't vote for me. You're wrong. Your gun culture is wrong. Your fetishization of violence is wrong. You're sick. What, what would happen if we had a strong federal government who stood up to this way of thinking instead of really improve things, just like it would improve things if they tried those guys on January 6th for treason? They deported communists and put them in jail because they were communists, even though they did nothing to violently overthrow this country. But these people tried to violently overthrow the democratic processes of these countries. And, and when they're sentenced, they get two or three years. They should be a lot harsher and they should be a lot more adamant. And Biden should speak out on something besides Ukraine, which is bogus, you know? I mean, now, listen, nobody criticizes Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I mean, I can't stand the democratic leadership. But these people... These animals broke in to the speaker's office, destroyed it, uh, taunted her to come out and were threatening to hang her. Right. And had they been black, they would have been mowed down. They would have been mowed down. And those that weren't mowed down would be accused of treason. That's part of our racism. Right. And everybody in this country, practically everybody would have said, well, that wasn't racism. You do not storm the capital of the United exactly. States and behave that way. That it's We're a nation of laws. I don't care if they're black. They could be white. Well, right. it's apparently- treason. It is treason to try to overthrow an election and a government. And they weren't tried for treason. They're tried for minor crimes. They're getting a couple of years. But Biden is behind that. 
because they have the same corporate sponsors as the Republicans. And the Republicans put on a lot of theater. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a theater artist, really, not an artist, but a theater person. They have all sorts of, you know, that dinosaur pet, dinosaurs are aiding pedophiles who are Democrats operating out of basement pizza parlors and whatever else. And, you know, but. Before we get to Penn, because we talked about accelerationists, the foolishness of accelerationists who think, ah, this will show them. There is this big part of me. I know the Republic. I know the Republicans are dangerous and that, you know, not the Democrats are even close to how dangerous the Republicans are. But the Democrats set the table for Republicans to be dangerous. They give them excuses to be dangerous. I can't help it. I can't help it. Uh, I wish I didn't think this way, Dr. Fraud, but. Joe Biden is telling Merrick Garland, you know, we got to heal the country. Let's not go too hard on these people. Appease, appease and give them every reason to do it again. But when he loses the House, this idiot of a president is going to spend the next two years up against a Republican Party that has no interest in healing the nation. No, he's got they're going to get piano wire and Mussolini. This guy. That's right. They are. They're already working on it. And there comes a point, you know, you've got to defend yourself. You got to defend your country. You got to defend your democracy just because Joe Biden has a nice thing going. Yeah, he's there to defend us from the people who are going to end up impeaching him. If he's lucky, it'll just be an impeachment. Well, I think what a fool. What a fool this man is. He is, but he's there to defend capitalism. Look, right. His state made its mark and its economy <coughs> as a corporate tax shelter. That's what they specialize in. That's who he is, a corporate tax shelter. And his ideology is corporate. And he's not going to stand up for principles. He doesn't have any. Except capitalism over everything. Well, let's segue uh, to Disney and DeSantis, and then we'll get to Marine Le Pen. Uh, Here's why I'm mad at the Democrats. I took one of my sons to Toontown at Disneyland and I lost him. He was a wild beast. He was barely two years old and I took my eyes off and he was gone and I had a meltdown. I don't know. It felt like an eternity. I guess it was in three minutes. They found him. He was mad at me. And it was explained to me, of course, he's mad at you. You you're supposed to protect him. And you didn't. You took your eye off him and he has every right to be mad at you. And and that's how I feel towards the Democrats. They're there to protect us from this cancer of the Republican Party. And their eyes are they're flirting with the Republicans. Talk to me about Ron DeSantis. 
using uh, misogyny. This is misogyny, hatred towards transgender people. And hatred towards homosexuals and hatred towards women. Yeah. The abortion business. I mean, it, it's across the world, across misogyny, division of people into races and sexes against each other. No program of bettering people's lives in Florida. Right. And he wanted, he took a, He's smarter than Trump, but he took a cue from Trump. Somebody does something you don't like, beat him. So Disney has a more progressive idea about gender. Give them higher taxes, even if what you're doing is taxing the adjoining communities right. for all the services that Disney used to pay for. And I haven't seen them being vocal against it, but they sure ought to be. But it may be a tax break for Disney for all we know. Yeah, whatever. In any case, what he's doing is setting up a style nobody dares to criticize or they're punished. It's like Trump who sues everybody who criticizes him. Yeah. And who can't be accountable for anything. So earlier we were talking about accelerationism and how I a little part of me thought, you know, if Marine Le Pen wins, it'll scare the hell out of the neoliberal world order and they'll finally come to their senses. But the neoliberal world right. order is, is never going to come to their senses. Of course not. What no. happened? They what happened? With her. If she wins, they'd make a deal with her. Right. Also, what's very interesting which Americans don't usually know, is she got 23.1, Marine Le Pen got 23.1% of the vote. Mélenchon, the leftist, who's outright leftist, got 22% of the vote. The Communist Party got 2% of the vote. If the Communists had joined with Mélenchon, they would have been the second party to run. And if the Greens joined with the two of them, they'd have outstripped Macron the whole time. It's also a lesson about how the left has to unify if we, if we want to win. The idea isn't being pure. Also, Melanchon now has a plan. He said to his voters, who got almost as much as Marine Le Pen, don't vote for Marine Le Pen. He didn't say anything about Macron. Now, more people, only 62 point some percentage of the French voted the lowest turnout ever. That would be a good turnout in the United States, but not in France, where usually 80% of the people vote. They protested and didn't vote. They didn't have Mélenchon, who was their candidate. But Mélenchon is planning, and I hope he unifies with other parties, is to win in all the local elections and therefore be the prime minister and have the left triumph, which is perfectly possible because the American press didn't cover that 1.1% more Marine Le Pen got. And if the left had unified, they would have beat both of them, about 28% of the vote, instead of Macron's 27 point something. So what is the, but doesn't the left, aren't they culpable in this by not uniting? Not uniting, and hopefully they have learned their lesson. Unite. 
And if you what, what is the division? Don't be morally pure. What what was the division? What were they fighting over? Well, the communists and the other leftists have bad blood because communists have been asked to support the other leftists and then they've turned on the communists when they got in. So there's a history of bad blood. The Greens, which are progressive, I think they got 4.6% of the vote. They, for some, they're not like Portugal. Portugal has been ruled for the last 10 or 15 years by a coalition of the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, and the Green Party. And they've done a lot for their people and they keep being reelected. So somehow they managed it in Portugal. They have to manage it in France. But the left did pretty well. And it was the left that handed Macron that election because they didn't vote for Marine Le Pen. And so he's very beholden to the left, whether he'll act like it or not. He is a neoliberal, you know, elitist. But the left is very powerful in France. And if there's a lesson they should take, it's unite the left. You will be the majority. America doesn't have an organized left into political parties with an, a visible leader. We need one. But I think that our politicians just talked about Marine Le Pen rather than the 1.1% right behind, which was Mélenchon, who had he united with the other two left parties would have won overwhelmingly the majority of votes. And so Macron didn't march in triumphantly this time. He was much humbled because he was saved by all those people who didn't vote. That's about 20% didn't even bother to vote as a protest. And they are the left and they're the young people who didn't vote. Is there anything Marine Le Pen genuinely offers in terms of populism that would make you sympathetic to her? Forget her roots, forget. Well, the anti-immigrant policy would disqualify her. Right. However, she says she will take on fossil fuel prices. She will do something for all the people who need to commute. And I, think she's pro-fossil. I think she was pro-fossil fuel. Yeah, but she said she would do something about not raising the taxes on fuels so that people. Right. Because a gallon of gas in France is about $10 probably now. It was $6 a couple of years ago. Wow. So, you know, they do have much better mass transit than we do. But a lot of people need cars or trucks. And they're penalized. And she addressed that. And she tried to come across as a friend of the working person and as a populist. And she didn't flex her fascist muscle. And I wouldn't have voted for her because of her roots and because an anti-immigrant policy is a fascistic thing. But she sounded a lot more populist than Macron. I was watching... President Obama's speech at Stanford, I guess he gave it on Thursday, about the threat to democracy. And he goes on and on lecturing about misinformation 
and how just sowing the seeds of doubt are enough to topple a democracy and how now truth is up for grabs and he's just yammering on and on he's so self-important he thinks he, he's saying something that must be heard there is do you think does he not know that democracy is under siege in America because his party gives people no reason to vote? Does he understand that? He doesn't understand that. And he thinks democracy equals capitalism and free markets, which we don't have free anyway, but that's what he thinks democracy is. And he's all puffed up with himself and out of touch. And our country is threatened. And he's, he just sat there and took it to, he didn't fight back. He was busy showing that he wasn't an angry black. Right. And so he let them walk all over us. And he also kowtowed to the banks. So, you know, you'd need the kind of party that's the equivalent of the Amazon labor union in labor. Right. You don't see the Obamas talking to Christian Smalls. I saw Bernie this Sunday. I saw AOC this Sunday yeah. out on Staten Island supporting the Amazon Labor Union. Didn't they see. Love Bernie. They know who's on their side. No Didn't no Barack Obama. Didn't see the Clintons. It's not like the Clintons don't live in New York City. One limo, short limo hop to Staten Island to support Christian Smalls. But they never supported labor. Look, Clinton was the biggest betrayer of the labor unions. Under him, and in spite of the fact that he got AFL-CIO union support, he pushed through NAFTA, which deprived huge swaths of the United States of their jobs that were, were moved to Mexico and elsewhere. The whole furniture industry in North Carolina the um, air conditioner industry, all sorts of industries that have paved the way for the outsourcing to China. That, uh, you know, Clinton is the neoliberal poster child. And his wife there, who said that the mass of people are a basket of deplorables, that is her attitude. It's not a populist attitude. So. They are really... You, you voted for Biden. I voted for Biden. We knew that. Yeah, with that choice, we voted for Biden because we voted against Trump. We voted against Trump. We had a gun to our head and we had no choice but to vote for Joe Biden. Would there be uh, this war in Ukraine right now if Donald Trump were president? No, he loves Russia too much. And Russia put him in there with all their bots and their interference on the Internet and whatever P-tapes they have and the oligarchs money. He still won't denounce Russia for anything. And neither will Tucker Carlson, because, you know, Russia has a lot on Trump. Yes, a lot, a lot on the Republican Party. And therefore, they will not. They wouldn't have said a peep. They wouldn't have done anything. Well, would he would he have invaded Ukraine? Wouldn't Trump have assured Putin that NATO was not on the menu for Ukraine? I don't think he could because there's a lot of right wing 
capitalist imperialists in Europe who want to choke the, the Russia and with every single former socialist republic that rings Russia converted to NATO. But all, look, all the Russians asked for was to put in the constitution, never NATO and neutrality. Those were the big demands. But Zelensky, who was put in by Hillary Clinton. And his own oligarch, a Ukrainian oligarch. Exactly. Well. Who was put in, is sacrificing millions of his people rather than being neutral. Because far from being the free independent country, he is a tool of NATO and the United States. And he's sacrificing millions of his people. And all we hear is propaganda. There is a saying which I believe that the first casualty of war is the truth. And nothing is clearer to show that than our propaganda blitz on Ukraine. Have you ever seen this kind of depravity, this shameless warmongering coming from the United States? It used to be we would present peace to the world. Well, we're negotiating with Putin. We're trying to dial back the, the violence. Now it's you know the, the gloves are off. The bandage has been ripped off. And America is just revealing who it's always been. Just a exactly. motor of war. I'm sorry. America's in trouble. We've lost four wars in a row. And our economy sucks. And China's economy is doing much better. We have the highest incidence of COVID in the world per population. And they're always, you know, downing the Chinese who have certainly enough problems, but they have a little less than 10,000 dead. We have a million. What are we talking about? We are a failure. And because of it, China is getting more and more influence with its belts and roadways, with the African connection. That's why the majority of the world doesn't join us. Africa won't join America and NATO in support of the Ukraine um, war. And neither will India or China, the most populous countries in the world and most of Asia. What we're talking about is Europe, which is also failing in terms of world power and trying to regain market share through this war. And look, they didn't do anything when uh, Putin invaded or reclaimed Georgia or Crimea. Right. So I guess he figured they're weak. I have to make a stand. I have 1,500 miles of border with Ukraine. They're going to choke me to death. And they would not be neutral. I don't like Putin. I hate him. I hate what he does with Pussy Riot and other things. But you, you really can see that we have been given a one-sided story. Right. We have to wrap it up to be continued, I hope. Professor Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. Follow her on Twitter at Harriet Fraud or Dr. Harriet? Yeah, I don't care about Twitter, but I want people to listen to my uh, the El Elton Musk uh, Twitter. But I would rather people listen to me on the radio, WBAI, Wednesdays at 2.30, Interpersonal Update.
Fantastic. I'll see you next Monday. See you next Monday. You bet. Bye-bye. Thank you. Matt, is it, I, I have, I'm, I'm exhausted. I've been up since five this morning. Is it Lech or Leck? Leck. Leck. That's what I thought. Yeah. But I, I would, I would assume that, uh, Somebody like me in high school might have called you the lech. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to be honest, the vocabulary, at least in my uh, school in North Dakota, lech and lechery was a little bit above their grade. So I got a lot of leech. Uh, That's uh, yeah. I, uh, (laughs) I once called Mark Marin, Mark moron (laughs) on the show. And he said, you know, you're the only person who ever called me that. Right. Yeah. And I I went, really? Is it anyway? um, Matt Leck is well, you know him from the majority report with Sam Cedar. He's feeling better. He's back, right? Uh, Yeah, he's still he's supposedly fully recovered, uh, still shedding the virus. uh, So testing positive, oddly. Uh, so he's, uh, but he is coming back. Uh, we've he's talked to a doctor epidemiologist that we've actually had on the show, Mark Allendary, and, uh, said that it's safe for him to come in tomorrow. So ah, his return. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a lot of people are getting this and a lot of people, uh, Sam told me that he had it, but was testing negative. I, I, we seem to be seeing a lot of that, right? Where people are coming down with it, but they're not showing it on the tests anyway i don't like to talk about uh covid with you at least you're the co-host of left reckoning and literary hangover with everybody's favorite grace jackson and you're a producer you're the producer of the majority report i want to talk to you about ufc are they unionizing uh julian assange and elon musk buying twitter Okay, well, can I can I add a uh, topic to that list? Yes, I would. There are things I want to talk to you about before we get to that. So what do you want to talk about? So I I'm not a reporter. I'm, as you said, a producer from Majority Report. So I don't I don't I don't like when people look at me as if, you know, people sometimes make category errors of what certain people's roles are in media. But I did uncover a little something. So I've been obsessed with copperheads. Uh, I don't know if you know what copperheads are, David. Well, the snakes. Well, that's where they get the name from. But a copperhead back during the, in the Civil, Civil War. War. Exactly. Were they were, were they anti-immigration? No, they were, uh, they were anti-Lincoln, basically. They were pro-Confederate Democrats in the North. Uh, and you got, uh, and I've also been doing a lot of John Wilkes Booth stuff. Anyway, in the context of doing that reading, I came across a, a story of the Christiana riots in Pennsylvania, which I'll just read from uh, Wikipedia here just to borrow uh, quickly so I don't have to characterize it. The Christiana riots uh, was the successful armed resistance by free blacks and escaped slaves to a raid led by fe- a federal marshal to recover four escaped slaves owned by that, that, that Edward Gorsuch of Maryland. Uh, the raid took place in the early morning hours of September 11th, uh, 1851 at the house of in Christiana, Pennsylvania, of William Parker himself, an escaped fla- uh, a slave. Now, this uh, so that would Gorsuch, be Ann Burford's great, great, the, the, the former EPA administrator under the, No, through the through the dad side of the family. Oh, okay. it, there is a connection there, though. And uh, I was it was confirmed. I just want to shout out the guy who confirmed it for me. Uh, William R. Black on Twitter found that uh, Neil Gorsuch's 
Neil's great, 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 great grandfather was Edward's great, great grandfather. So they were uh, third cousins five times removed. So uh, Neil Gorsuch related to that uh, slave driver who went to Pennsylvania to try to get his uh, slaves back and caught a bullet to the brain. Uh, so just a little interesting, you know, and I'm not the first person to make that uh, uh, guess. Apparently a libertarian blogger uh, hazarded that before, but uh, by me posting that someone was able to get me the full genealogy of it. And uh, look at that. Isn't it funny how certain families persist in, uh, right. in American history? His mother, Ann Burford Gorsuch, was an EPA administrator under the Reagan administration, and she had to resign. I don't remember the details. It, it had something to do with not cooperating with, uh, I think, a congressional investigation of a Superfund f- site. He, he comes mm-hmm. by his uh, anti-administrative state, uh, honestly, if such a thing is possible. Well, good work on that. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks to a William Black as well. Uh, for yeah. the, uh, that's the nice thing about Twitter. Once you get a certain critical mass of followers, you can sort of like halfway finish the problem and be like, hey, can anybody, if you got some free time, uh, go do the actual legwork on this. So it's nice. To Tell me about story. Elon Musk. Are you saying that he should be paying us? Oh, well, I think, yeah, I think that's the, the point is we need to think of an and, and David made this even better on a point on left reckoning. But this idea that we're people sort of almost think it's a brand of uh, a point of pride to say, you know, we're the, the, we make all this value, but it should be like a political uh, uh, goal or a political uh, marching order that if we're making all the value for this stuff, which we know we are in terms of like the amount of data they're collecting on us and, and it's on advertisements. Then I think the solution is to nationalize or at least to somehow come uh, over popular or yeah ownership of these platforms uh and you know you can only do or that turn them into utilities exactly i mean i think i would love to see the uh post office uh be put in charge of twitter or something like that and then you get algorithms out of it entirely or if you have algorithms that'd be very basic ones that are completely transparent like anytime you're served an ad for something you should be able to click on that ad and see what the advertiser's know about you that made them want to place that ad like what what uh identity stuff i think it'd be very and and i'd rather just you know get ads out of it entirely and ban it frankly but if if we're going to do this thing uh people should absolutely know the way they're beaten bought and sold on these ad markets and uh, attention you're literally like time on this earth is being bought and sold by these people right People should also click on every ad they see because it uses the algorithm. And if you hate the product being advertised to you, click on it because it costs them. It could be as much as four dollars every time you click on a company. If you're in a bad mood, Mm -hmm. click on an ad for a gun company. They'll keep sending you ads for Glocks. And every time you click on that ad, it's four dollars. It costs Glock four dollars, and they'll keep sending you the wrong ads. That's how you kind of culture jam the, the 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 gears of the machine. Yeah, you know, we get a lot of people that get concerned. You know, that they see a Ben Shapiro ad or something before a majority report, and I always say, like, one, we don't control that, but even so, you're you're wasting their money by getting served that ad. 
basically. Right. And all, the only cost is a little bit of your life. <laughs> and right. if that's, if you're willing to pay for that, you know, uh, I think it's, it uh, will t- like, that's a big chunk of, uh, know where our revenue comes from it's, right click on the ads especially the companies that you find horrific yeah. you're taking money out of their pocket and you're helping us so click on the ads i don't really advertise that much but uh i just do it on youtube because it's i don't know i don't want to get into it with you uh so elon musk mm-hmm. say something in defense of elon musk Oh, uh, well, this might be a little bit, uh, but I think people might overstate the Emerald mine thing, which is not the Emerald mine thing. And maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe someone can can fill me up on the facts, but you know, people always mention this Emerald mine from Elon, right? That his dad owned uh, Emerald mine. Uh, And I think Africa in South Africa. Yeah. But I, he wasn't, I think, I think people fall into a trap of overstating that. I think he wasn't the owner of it. I think he had shares in it or something like that. I mean, he still, you know, uh, uh, made money from just owning stock in an emerald mine. That's, that's plenty bad enough, but, but I think people sometimes overstate uh, that he owned the mine. So I just want to point that out there. People might be making, stepping into uh, a little bit of uh, fake news. I might be wrong about that. If, if I've just fallen for some, uh, you know, Elon apology, uh, apology, I don't, I don't know how to say that word, but if I've just fallen for some of that, uh, you know, let me know. But I, that's my one thing I would say in defense of Elon is I don't think his dad owned an emerald mine, uh, at least. In so some- he's half a piece of shit. He's like, yeah, he's got shares into being like a total, like, you know, if he was a sole owner of an emerald mine, that is pretty, it's tough to like on, on in terms of like, human lives on planet earth that is you know you're in the upper percentile being a piece of shit but i think he just was invested in it <laughs> um, which does make you a little bit of a piece of shit but you know do we talk about elon musk being a product of apartheid era south africa i don't think we talk about that enough i mean i think that like the emerald mine thing is nice because it's an it's like a sort of uh it's that in a nutshell but i think it would be nicer to talk about I mean, we should just talk about apartheid South Africa probably a little bit more and understand the, the and how it shaped him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean I, I, go ahead. If you came from South Africa to America, would just out of human decency, wouldn't you kind of shy away from attacking the woke culture given <laughs> your country of origin? Yeah. Yeah, I'd probably be me personally. I like to think that I would be a little bit sensitive about that, and I would I'd be a little bit uh, more diligent about making sure there wasn't a, a sort of a, a cultivated there wasn't an extreme racist culture cultivated at my you know car plants, for instance. Uh, that would be something I would be on my watchword of like, hey, you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt if right. uh, if people start calling. Uh, a, a section of your factory, the plantation, and you have a darker skin of worker uh, on those on those uh, on those stations, and who are being called the N word. How do you fix Twitter if Elon Musk were to call you and he said, "Hey, what would you like to see?" Like he he wants a way to edit tweets, and I understand why sure. you shouldn't be allowed to edit tweets because you can be retweeted. And then go back and change what you've retweeted to something horrific uh, and get people canceled. Or you can say something 
that will get you canceled and then realize it's going to get you canceled and you go back and edit it and then you don't get canceled and where's the fun of twitter yeah i mean i facebook you can edit posts right yeah and it has i look at facebook it's a utopia now where (laughs) it's just a utopia of expression i mean i i frankly I like the idea that you can edit a tweet and you can just see the whole revision history maybe. So that, that's how Facebook used to do it, where people would write something innocuous and everyone would like share it and like it. And all of a sudden they'd change it to something horrible. Like we need to institute, you know, so people can see what the history of this message was. Like Wikipedia does. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's fine. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's pretty uh, a small potatoes as far as like, look, the amount of money Elon's, my understanding is he took out, $24 billion. Am I getting this right? It was $44 billion deal. And he took out like well, half 46. Of, it's a 46 billion. Yeah. Yeah. He took out like half of that or a little bit over half of that in loans. Uh, I mean, I don't, they're not going to want to hear what I have to say, which is not seek a whole bunch of profit in any possible way that you can to try to pay these loans back. Uh, but that's what we're going to get. I mean, we'll see like, yeah, tiered, uh, stuff, which I don't know, maybe I can take advantage of that I got 40,000 Twitter followers, but I, I mean, it's not going to make the service any better uh, by any sense of the imagination. I think it's going to be, I think I'm actually kind of curious to see how bad it can get. Cause like, I'm a little bit skeptical. That'll be that like, he'll be that much worse than like Jack Dorsey, for instance, who you talk about like right wing connections. There's plenty to be concerned about with Jack Dorsey as well. What do you mean? Tell me about them. Uh, he take a picture with that Ali, uh, I think Alexander, the guy from the Jan Six. Uh, he organized Jan Six. He's a proud, is he a proud boy? He's an African American, right? Yeah, I don't know if he's a proud boy or just like an online sort of like um, right. Oh, yeah, he's an Alex Jones guy. Yeah, I think he's more of an Alex Jones guy. Yeah, right. Um, and, and you know, Jack Dorsey is also a big crypto guy himself, uh, which I think. To, personally is a red flag uh and so you know but that said like you take out that much money to buy this thing uh and he's gonna he's not gonna want to lose his uh investment either i imagine they're gonna <laughs> it's it's gonna be pretty wacky the type of advertisement and stuff i mean if i wanted to fix twitter myself i mean i always i never trusted the algorithm timeline compared to the chronological one i just think that invites abuse particularly when it's not uh, transparent, you're just going to get corporate and, and even the stuff that's not corporate, but that's sort of trained to give you a dopamine rush that's in your little, uh, you know, bubble. Uh, I, I think that was bad. I think people should see what they sign up for. And I, I, I think if you're talking about structural, just changes to the timeline, that would be the first one that I would, I would go. So through. Twitter has never made sense to me. The way it works now is Twitter decides if you put some information out there, they decide how many of your followers will see what you put out there. And it's based on like, you know, I noticed like somebody will like one of my tweets and then they'll all of a sudden start liking like a few in a row. And it's not just that they're all of a sudden loving my tweets again. Like they just followed me for the first time. And, you know, it's that new follower feeling. It's that, Twitter's all of a sudden realized like, oh yeah, they actually do still like this person and want to see their content. So they're serving their content to them again. And I know it's tough. Like, you know, everyone, I follow, I don't even know how many people, a couple thousand. Um, So it's, you know, I'd probably need to pair if they got rid of that, but 
I've only, I've only allowed myself to get that far because I think uh, of this sort of algorithmic filtering. I see. So if you have a lot of followers or if you're following, say, a thousand people, Mm -hmm. your feed would be filled with a thousand posts and you'd be overwhelmed. They are the algorithm curates who you follow and tries to find the posts you're most likely to find interesting based on who you like. Exactly. So like I have an, an audience that's mainly political uh, sort of folks. If I tweet about basketball, which I do kind of regularly, uh, very few people see that. Uh, and uh, it's, it's if I tweet something about Ben Shapiro, that thing's going to probably do some decent numbers in people's timelines. Interesting. So the algorithm knows that the people who like you hate Ben Shapiro yep. and they so they th this accusation of shadow banning is true. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's um, it is it's I don't think it's so uh, targeted. Certain folks think that they uh, were an individual as an individual have been, you know, singled out by Twitter HQ for a shadow ban and 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 they're not going to be. I think that it's AI and it's learned that, like, people aren't engaging with this. And like Maria Bartiromo, right? Like you see a lot of these big corporate accounts and nobody engaged with the stuff, but probably because you're just tweeting out links to your show, Fox business show every day. And, and right. Like, and you're not creating an audience that's going to want the occasional time you say something good about Trump. Like, it's just, I, I think like, I, I think shadow banning is a smaller problem. I think like topics and that sort of stuff is it's better to think about like just the, that sort of stuff is getting shaded more than individuals are being, you know, excised from the realm of, of uh, you know, the right. timelines. Because I don't, I don't really think that's happening. So I have an irrational hatred for filmmaker, actor, producer, husband and father, Rob Reiner, who I just think he's an asshole. OK, I think he should. You know, I, I just do. I, I think he's the reason Democrats lose. And, he, you know, he supports Biden and not Bernie. And he's just lives in a bubble of entitlement and privilege and his Twitter feed. There, there's another I share his Twitter feed because he'll write something like Macron wins, democracy wins, 8000 retweets. Yeah. You know, uh, or there is no other way to say this. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a lying sack of crap. 7000 retweets. Uh, Every day that goes by without Trump being indicted for leading a deadly insurrection to overthrow the United States government takes us one day closer to ending our democracy. So and that says 5000. So what you're saying is and that's his timeline. He knows how to feed the algorithm. It's democracy, attack Republicans, nothing like, hey, I'm Rob Reiner. I'm a fat pig. I thought it was a fart, but I sharded myself as usual today because yeah. I'm stupid Rob Reiner. That doesn't fit into the algorithm. Yeah. So he, he's smart enough not to tweet his shards. Yeah, I mean, th those are really good numbers. I think part of that is you have the Hollywood um, sort of popularity as well. Um, but a, a pure example is, I don't know if you're familiar with the Occupy Democrats, which David and I left recognizing we're not huge fans of, but it's it's 
it's a Twitter account, just Occupy Democrats. And it's always stuff like uh, breaking new polling reveals that 85% of Americans, I mean, this is a good one. I agree with this, but this is just what they do. Under the age of 30, support federal action on student loan debt. Democrats have been discussing the possibility of debt, debt forgiveness. Retreat if you think that President uh, Biden should do it before the midterms. And it's always like a call to action, like that sort of stuff. Right. Um, and a lot of like, yeah, going after DeSantis. I mean, I, I don't mean to say like all the things you'll see on Occupy Democrats is objectionable, but their way of going at things, I, I think is really off-putting. All right. I learned a lot today from I'm being serious. It's a consistent message on Twitter. That's how you work the algorithm. Yeah. Give give the people what they want repeatedly and just keep giving it to them over and over again. And Don't embed be, media if you can. And what? Embed media. So take, put a picture or video with it. We'll do even better. What about if I just keep saying Rob Reiner sharded himself today over and over again? Then I could just grow followers who pretty much agree with me that Rob Reiner sharts himself three times a day. Yeah, it's tough, though, because because like I'm saying, like that might be like my basketball tweets. And I'm worried that it's just going to get filtered out. Yeah, yeah um, it might be better to start a separate account. Uh, just devoted <laughs> to that entirely. Did you ever see Coffee Dad, by the way? No. Oh, follow Coffee Dad. Okay, Coffee Dad. Uh, it's the greatest Twitter. Fo- it is the best Coffee okay. Dad. Interesting. It, it's, it's a father who tweets, and it's like every three weeks he has a tweet. Had coffee today. <laughs> Two weeks later, love my coffee. <laughs> Four weeks later, he would have been 25 today. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like, it's coffee dead. And then another month goes by, love freshly ground coffee. Three weeks later, he didn't see the curve. <laughs> it's the, are there other Twitter accounts like that? Like coffee dead that you know of that are like. Oh, gosh. Okay. I feel like. That's used to be all Twitter was like in 2014 is and now now all those accounts are like DSA members, I feel like. Uh, But uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know exactly. Damn, there is some examples, but I'm I'm just blanking out. All right. For our Joe Rogan listener, we have one Uh, UFC is going union. I saw Ben Burgess on with Joe Rogan talking about the John Deere strike and Rogan goes, that's crazy. John Deere went on strike. Well, yeah, maybe if you uh, actually cared about your listeners, you would know that uh, the workers are striking. Yeah. They're going on strike right around the time you were having charlatans on to say ivermectin was a, was an alternative to vaccination. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the UFC is unionizing. Uh, so I think we had uh, Elias Cepeda on, who's an MMA sort of a former fighter. I don't know if he still fights as uh, sort of like semi-active, um, but he's uh, re- get, he got the skinny on Dana White, uh, and they do not have a union at this moment. I believe there's support among the fighters for a union. I'm not sure uh, how far along they are in the process, but it is you know I, I feel like that is to me. Uh, that's what a requirement for being a sport. If you, you got to have some kind of players association or union, right? Like 
baseball, football, and basketball all got that. Uh, UFC, where you know the players, the, the fighters don't have control over often like when who they're fighting. Uh, and I mean, there's they, like there's so much control over those guys' bodies and promotion and stuff like that, which isn't equally uh, distributed. That I mean, they absolutely need uh, need some sort of uh, players' union, uh, fighters' union. Um, and then there's also a very interesting dynamic where Dana White, the owners of UFC, they realized in the '90s because John McCain w- said that it was human cockfighting. Uh, and so in the nineties, like we need to embrace, uh, embrace regulation as, as opposed to run away from it. They, uh, went to the Nevada gaming commission and the Nevada gaming commission, uh, said no. And then two members of the Nevada gaming commission went and bought, uh, UFC after they said no, and it lost a lot of value. And, uh, and then later it did get passed by the Nevada gaming commission into, you know, regulation. Uh, so that's and then those guys put Dana White in charge. Uh, and so a really fascinating, sleazy history of uh, UFC that uh, uh, I, I thought was really fascinating. Without Don King getting involved, do you enjoy MMA? I I used to more than I do now. I, I used to have a bunch of my roommates liked it uh, years ago, and I'm a little bit squeamish. <laughs> I got to admit now, I I, I um. It's weird. Like, I don't like to see breaks uh, at all. I think that, that th- those are the things that really like push me over the edge. Uh, for some reason, I can watch a guy get hit in the face in slow motion. Um, uh, that, that's somewhat interesting, uh, and I can I can see the beauty in like some of the technical aspects of the fights. But if something really brutal happens, uh, I'm not. That's not like really what I'm looking for. I will watch female MMA because I'm a baby boomer and it's like everything that I was trained not to believe is like it's like okay I it's time for me to go on the ice flow and <laughs> disappear from our society when I watch it when I watch female MMA I'm it, I find it comforting because I I surrender to old age and that I'm irrelevant. I, I just watch and go, okay, this makes absolute, everything I was raised to believe about everything yeah. is, uh, I do, I do feel like, yeah, for, I mean, definitely most of my life, I uh, didn't have access to a video of women who could kick your ass <laughs> um, uh, so readily. <laughs> Finally, uh, on a very serious subject, and I know our next guest will want to talk about this as well. Last week, Julian Assange uh, moved one step closer to being uh, extradited to the United States on espionage charges. I think it's left to the Home Secretary in the United Kingdom, Great Britain, Pretty Patel, I think is her name. She's the Home Secretary. It's up to her to decide whether or not to follow through and send them here uh, where British judges have said, you know, he comes to America, he faces certain suicide. That's that's why they delayed it. They said the American prisons are so bad. If he comes here, he will commit suicide. Uh, We should be celebrating Julian Assange. Yeah. Yeah. And 
uh, I mean, gosh, um, I remember reading about this like 10 years ago and you'd hear guys being like, yeah, they would never send them to the States because for that reason, it was just clearly not a government that by law in, in the UK, like you can't give it to a government that is possibly going to torture. And we say possibly like absolutely going to torture uh, Julian Assange. Uh, and it's just like what form that is, like what kind of sensory deprivation, if it's not like, you know, waterboarding at Guantanamo, it's going to be something. Solitary. Brutal. Exactly. Right. Solitary is torture. And yeah. And, and they're so dogged because uh, they want to send a message worldwide that anybody that does anything to help expose uh, U.S. Uh, war crimes uh, is gettable. Like even if you're an Aussie citizen, uh, we'll get you. And uh, those sorts of uh, things that we put in to your government's laws about how you'll never extradite to a government that tortures or something like that. We just mean that about like, you know, those other nasty third world sort of dictator types. We don't mean that about Uncle Sam. Right. Our military commits war crimes and they never own up to them. The only way they will say, yes, uh, civilians were killed is if Seymour Hirsch reports on me lie or Chelsea Manning releases the video of the Apache helicopter killing 13 Iraqis, including two Reuters civilians, just two Reuters re reporters while they were laughing, yeah. laughing. Well, and then look at the messages you get from all that, which is like me lie. It's, it's that the, these like low level guys got out of control when we know that there's probably a lot of me lies. Um, and then like the Abu Ghraib lesson was again, the exact same one is these folks at this prison got out of control. It's, it, it's never to look upward. Right? right. And like, I mean, like you mentioned about Obama, right? Like what's the problem we're dealing with now? It's get looked downward at you, you freaks i can't get the information straight in your little heads and if you can only do that uh you know maybe we democracy would be safe but you know it's your fault uh it's right. interesting how that always works this was great please come back matt leck is co-host of the podcasts left reckoning and literary hangover with grace jackson and he is the producer of the majority report fantastic and i'm Thanks, glad I'm feeling better yeah, I will. We'll be uh, feeling okay once yeah. we back and see together. Amen. Thank you. Left is best. Now we go to beautiful, beautiful California, where Peter B. Collins is standing by. He is a Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer, and so much to talk about. We're going to talk about Title Forty Two, and. China, how the Biden administration is screwing up not just our relations with Russia, but China as well. Welcome back, Peter B. Collins. David, it's my pleasure. And may I mop up just a little bit from your great uh, preceding guest? Yes, please. The gentleman whose, queet, uh, whose tweet he quoted, uh, William K. Black, is legendary as the whistleblower of the Reagan era savings and loan uh, meltdown and uh, the uh, corruption that occurred there. Bill Black is a man who I met uh, during that era as a radio stunt. I tried to buy a savings and loan 
from the uh, agency that took over all these failed SNLs and sold them off to cronies and rich banks and right. other wealthy people. And so uh, I decided that with Bill Black's uh, counsel, that I would try to buy uh, a savings and loan. And it, it was, you know, a funny little bit. Uh, they didn't take me seriously. And I was, of course, outraged by that. Uh, <laughs> but he is a guy who I've talked to many times since the 1980s because uh, he was very uh, forceful in the uh, uh, criticism of the meltdown in 2008 and the Obama attempts to bail out Wall Street and Detroit. And so, uh, I, I, you know, Matt's a younger guy and, and Bill Black is from an earlier era. But uh, I just wanted to share that uh, Black is the real deal. And uh, he knows a lot about the uh, Ponzi schemes that pass for late stage capitalism uh, that we live under today. Also, I'd like to mention that I did meet Meathead, uh, Rob Reiner, and he did not, to my knowledge, shart uh, in my presence. Well, when he speaks, it's basically a shart. Horrible. <laughs> he is emblematic of everything that's wrong with the Democratic Party. Uh, I will agree with that in a moment, but first I'll say something nice about him. Uh, he went to great lengths to uh, uh, sponsor and pass a ballot measure in California in the late 90s that put a 50 cent per pack tax on cigarettes. And the money was earmarked for early uh, childhood development and education. It uh, produced uh, an agency called First Five that distributes the revenue from the tobacco tax. It was a brilliant idea. It was very well written so that when California's economy hit the skids and the legislature tried to steal that funding, that it was in a, an Al Gore style lockbox. And uh, so Reiner did something good there. Yes. And I produced a, a series of radio programs in English and Spanish aimed at the parents of uh, young children. And it was a win-win proposition. And so I will say that about Rob. What leads me to believe with your uh, critical characterization of Meathead, and by the way, that was his nickname on All in the Family, is that uh, the most odious thing that he did in 2016 and 2017 was not just supporting Hillary Clinton for president, but after the whole Russiagate scam developed, he hired, uh, uh, who was it? Uh, uh, we had her on the show all the time. The, 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 the committee to investigate Russia. Right. But he hired a Hollywood, a black movie star. And it wasn't Denzel. Uh, deep voice guy. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm weak on the Hollywood category. Anyway, uh, they produced a series of propaganda pieces, uh, you know, claiming that it was Russia that uh, caused Hillary to lose the election to Trump. And it was scurrilous in promoting that propaganda. And you and I have some disagreement about this, but, uh, you know, it was the intelligence community, the FBI and CIA, who wrote the script for Russiagate. And Rob Reiner just took that hook, line, and sinker, and he was persuasive. 
in, uh, you know, he was on MSNBC a lot during that, that whole period. He created the great white hope of, uh, you know, Bob Mueller, who was going to reveal it all and, uh, you know, reinstall Hillary. <laughs> so uh, he has done a lot of damage and he represents the centrist corporate elements of the Democratic Party. And what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, I, before you get to that, let, let, in, sure. in, it was Jackie Schechner, the okay. CNN reporter, who was hired by Rob Reiner to run investigaterussia.org. Mm -hmm. We used to have her on the show all the time. The minute, the minute the Mueller report exonerated Trump, and it really didn't, but the minute Barr decided for Mueller that he's been exonerated, all the funding, they, Rob Reiner pulled the plug on investigaterussia.org. That being said, Jackie Schechner did a great job and uh, investigaterussia.org is still up. And if you want to understand the timeline of Russiagate, it's a great resource. She did a great job on uh, making the case for uh, Putin installing Donald Trump, which I know uh, you don't agree with. Well, but but the Mueller report did have uh, information that could have indicted Trump, mm -hmm. uh, including the second section, was, which was all about obstruction of justice. Right. And whether you believe that uh, Trump was in league with Russia to flip the election in 2016 in his favor, uh, he committed crimes uh, in trying to cover up things that I think were related to his schemes to build a hotel in Moscow much more than any uh, secret help that Putin gave him in 2016. But uh, I, I told, you know, I send you an email on Sundays and kind of outline what I'm thinking of talking about. And uh, as if responding to that, the Washington Post today has a story with the headline, Democrats approach a midterm message, but struggle to deliver it. And once again, the Democrats are going to run on fear of Republicans. Mm -hmm. And they're going to try to scare the shit out of people saying that, oh, you know, abortion will be uh, illegal. And that's probably true. That uh, Kevin McCarthy, the total idiot from Bakersfield, is going to be the speaker. I'm afraid that that's likely to occur. And that this will pave the way for the return of Trump or a clone like Ron DeSantis, if Trump ever is indicted and somehow disqualified from running in 2024. But this idea that you can cage Democrats and independent voters and scare them into voting for Democrats who lack a message, who failed to deliver on the Build Back Better plan, badly named, but a lot of good stuff was in that package. Uh, and as I've argued before, if the Democrats had been able to pass that, Joe Manchin is the guy who blocked it, uh, the Democrats would actually have something to run on other than Republicans suck more than we do. And so when we look at this situation, I offer two examples. And one is 
the way Democrats who were uh, up in arms when Trump was separating children from parents at the border, when we saw children in cages with those stupid aluminum foil blankies, uh, the outrage was very powerful and it was embraced by a lot of Democrats in the House and the Senate. Uh, but now we have seen, going back just a few weeks to early April, and consider the context, in the Senate, they were trying to confirm uh, uh, the new Supreme Court Justice, uh, Brown Jackson, and they uh, didn't want to have a vote that would divide the Democrats. So when uh, Mitch McConnell attached a, a, an ugly bill about immigration that I'll describe in a moment to a $10 billion funding package for additional COVID testing and treatment uh, because we do have to be prepared. There could be another serious wave coming. Uh, the Democrats withdrew the COVID package. And what were they afraid of? That people like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, John Tester of Montana, Mark Kelly of Arizona, and the Reverend Raphael Warnock of Georgia. They were all prepared to vote against including the uh, combining these two measures. And the reason is that they fear that the voters in their states, all of these people are up for uh, election in November, will reject them if they are perceived as soft on immigration. Warnock. Yes. Who, who speaks from Dr. Martin Luther King's pulpit. The Ebenezer Baptist Church. And, you know, I, I was pretty surprised by Warnock being included on this list. So I went to the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, his local newspaper, and I looked for any coverage of Warnock and Title 42, and I, I didn't find anything in a search there. So somehow uh, he is pandering to voters in Georgia by embracing Trump policies on immigration that are flatly unconstitutional and uh, even more important, immoral. And this man of the cloth who wants to win a full term in November is trying to straddle the issue. And I have advice for Democrats. You cannot straddle with Trumpers and with Trumpy proposals. So Title 42 is this claim that a, a public health emergency requires us to suspend the constitutional right to asylum and to an asylum proceeding for anyone who presents herself or himself at any American border, not just the Mexican border, claiming that if they were returned to their native country, that they would be uh, tortured or, uh, you know, threatened or somehow uh, put at great and grave risk. So these preening Democratic politicians are saying that their political asses are more important than the constitutional right to asylum. And we know from 
a Times article that I cited on your show last week or the week before, that there's been this big internal uh, fight in the Biden White House. And Biden has tried to reverse the use of Title 42. He's saying that it was pretextual and that he wants it gone. And the CDC has cooperated and the Biden administration has announced that sometime in May, this Title 42 claim will be lifted. And the squawking is coming from the senators I mentioned, plus two Democratic members of Congress from uh, uh, Texas, who it's not too surprising. Uh, one of them is a former FBI agent, Henry Quellar, and the other is a backbencher who I don't know that well, but he has a Latino surname. So uh, they are telling the White House that this is really, really, really inconvenient. And that they should, uh, the, the bill that Warnock and Tester, Cinema uh, and uh, Mansion supported would uh, leave Title 42 in place until 60 days after the CDC declares the public health emergency over. So that uh, the listeners uh, can follow this, it's kind of complicated. Title 42, I think, was passed during the Roosevelt era to prevent foreigners who might have tuberculosis from entering America. The Trump people found this obscure uh, law. Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess in March of 2020, when COVID first hit, and they could justify not allowing anybody into the country, closing down the borders by citing the public health risk. And they invoked Title 42. And I guess about 1.5 million, uh, uh, not people, but they've sent one, they, what do they call it? Uh, there's a word for it. Where Asylee? No, no, 1.5 million expulsions. I see. Uh -huh. It's the same people sometimes through the record. So it's 1.5 million expulsions have resulted in Title 40 uh, are have 1.5 expulsions have been inflicted upon asylum seekers, meaning they're sent back to Haiti or Honduras, El Salvador or Mexico. Well, most of them are told to remain in Mexico. And here is the other ugly part of it. No one, including these five or six Democrats in the Senate, is addressing the problems in our immigration courts. So if you have a legitimate claim to asylum, and we know many Ukrainians have found their way to the Mexican border, hoping to make their case there. Uh, we know that Haitians who are living in a totally broken country have made a very long and tortuous voyage to Central America and then North. And we are not doing anything to address the backlog so that these cases can be heard in a reasonable uh, length of time. So this, this violates both international law and the United States Constitution. If somebody arrives at the border and says, I am, I, I 
I'm escaping persecution. I can't go back. Legally, they are entitled to a to be heard, have their case heard by an immigration judge. I think they're also entitled to due process. But yes, there's no are. law on the books that says they should be held in detention centers. In fact, it's against international law to hold them in detention centers. They're supposed to be released into the community. Right. The, the last insulting element of this, David, is that there has been no showing that people bearing COVID infections have crossed the border in any significant numbers that have led to a real public health risk in this country. In fact, they don't test people at the border. They don't want to know. And this is part of the entire long running scheme by the Republicans to exploit the problem, to divide Americans, to make us resent, if not hate, the other. Right. And they have no intention of fixing it ever. Right. Because they need to blame the, 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 the swarm of furners coming over the border. And they're not, you know, don't we have, uh, aren't more uh, Hispanics leaving America than coming into America? I don't know that. Yeah. There, there, yeah. More, more Mexicans, more Central Americans are going back to where they came from just because this country isn't what they thought it was. Don't we need people coming to America? Well, I'll just put it this way in simple terms. You cannot get a restaurant reservation in San Francisco after 8 p.m. The because. reason is they can only field one shift of servers, cooks, and, uh, you know, the bus crew. <laughs> and this is related to the uh, very low unemployment in the citizen population. And because our population, we a first world problem. This is Japan, Europe, Germany. I mean, Germany took the Syrian refugees partly because they I did, Merkel said we don't have enough people here to keep the economy going. We don't have enough people in America to keep our economy going. We need people to become naturalized citizens to pay into Social Security and Medicare or we'll go bust. We need people stupid enough to buy stocks and home. Well, homes, that's a whole other issue. This is just a fabricated political posturing that is killing people. And the Republicans and Joe Biden don't care. I mean, these ICE detention, I talked about this at the top of the show. These ICE detention centers are concentration camps, for-profit concentration camps. Yep. And, uh, you know, they operate uh, in, at shithole levels mm -hmm. and there is no accountability. I've interviewed a number of people who've been held in, in these uh, private, you know, corporate prisons under ICE. And it's, it's subhuman, it's un-American, and uh, we don't care. We don't care. And there's not a single law on the books that says 
immigrants or people seeking asylum must be held in detention centers before they're absorbed into the community. No laws. This is all politics. This is the president. This is the executive branch acting unilaterally through the Department of Homeland Security, feeding for profit the five billion dollar a year for profit ICE detention centers. We have for profit concentration camps and Biden and Obama are saying Putin's a threat to our democracy. Yep. For profit concentration camps, but it's Putin who's destroying our democracy. Mm -hmm. And David, the the other issue in this context uh, relates to our policies toward China, because uh, on both domestic and foreign policy uh, levels, Biden should be initiating a whole review of our posture toward China. And I don't dismiss the threat that China poses, the amount of hacking that they engage in, the intellectual property theft that uh, they operate with, and the brutal treatment of the Uyghurs, whether you call that uh, ethnic cleansing or not. But, and Tibet. Say again? And Tibet. Yes. Okay. And Hong Kong. Uh, but Trump tried to isolate China with the uh, very emotional, irrational set of tariffs and trade sanctions that he imposed. And while he's claiming that uh, tapping the strategic oil reserves and burning ethanol in the summer uh, are going to reduce the costs to uh, Americans uh, and try to put the brakes on inflation. If we did a full review of our trade posture with China, we wouldn't necessarily have to remove all of the tariffs or any of the other barriers that have been erected, but we could make them rational. And we could reduce costs on certain uh, categories for American consumers and deal with the supply chain problems by being rational and negotiating with China about our trade uh, restrictions. I'm not a free trader. I believe that we have the right and uh, the opportunity to control trade uh, into our country. But it has to be done in a way that benefits Americans. We are paying those tariffs. They are a, uh, a huge add-on to the costs that consumers are paying. And when you couple that with the price gouging, the incredible profiteering that has been the primary driver of inflation, these are things that the Biden administration could be addressing. They could crack down on price increases, but they don't. And it's, it comes back to my point that they are trying to straddle. They think that they can appease some moderate Democrats and some independent voters sufficiently to hold on to the narrow majorities in the House and the Senate. And my scorecard on gerrymandering is that the Republicans are more brazen than the Democrats, and that the combination of that and the standard shift in the midterm elections that uh, favors the party that is out of the White House 
we are likely to face Kevin McCarthy as the next speaker. And the Democrats only have themselves to blame because they have uh, simply failed to lead. They think they can follow through the polls and follow trends, but they need to lead. And the failure to do that is what's going to cost us in November. Alternative history. I, I voted for Biden. I didn't have the courage. I was I believe Trump uh, and the Republicans are worse than the Democrats. Uh, having Biden in office instead of Trump. There are some advantages. Mm -hmm. I can't think of any right now. <laughs> Seriously, I, I'm, I'm having trouble. Uh, well, we're back uh, in the Paris Agreement. We're not back in the Iran deal. We're not back in. Uh, I must. I, there have been some executive orders, I believe. I can't remember them that uh, served as cover to hide all the uh, paybacks to the oil industry. Oh, and get this. The late breaking news is that Anita Dunn, who was a top uh, Obama advisor, very close to Hillary Clinton, is officially back in the White House. Uh, she was there until August, and then she was working her lobby shop and just volunteering at the White House. This is the woman who made big bucks lobbying for TransCanada on the Keystone XL pipeline. That's just one of her many sins. And this shows that Biden and uh, his chief of staff, Ron Klain, believe that there is opportunity in the corporate middle. And they are just fucking wrong. Well, Peter B. Collins, great job as always. Peter B. Collins is a Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. And go to PeterBCollins.com for a treasure trove of his podcasts, radio shows, and interviews. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure, David. Great Carry job. on. Thank you. Great job. Great job. Twitter staffers have been told in an emergency meeting that they can only guarantee their jobs for six months. And there's no guarantee that uh, they will have jobs after six months and whether or not they can work remotely or not. Joining us from the great state of Illinois is our only elected official. She is a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, a brilliant artist and a particle physicist. Welcome back, Professor Marianne Cummings. Hey, David. How you doing? Uh, you know, so, you're, you're, what? I was just thinking Anita Dunn. She had something to do with kind of deflecting the sexual assault charges from Tara Reid um, against Joe Biden. Uh, you know, as I as I recall, wasn't she kind of also involved in Me Too? And uh, so she was straddling. She was, you know, 
both an advisor to, um, uh, to, to Biden and also I think had to do with, uh, was on the executive board or something on the Me Too movement. So that kind of shut that whole thing down pretty effectively. Like the people, like the women who uh, were organizers of Me Too in New York, but advised Andrew Cuomo how mm -hmm. to address his sexual assault charges. Interesting. Careerism, baby, you know? Yeah. Make strange partners. So you didn't vote for Joe Biden. No, I did not. I did. Mm -hmm. You warned me. And I said, I'm a coward. I, I, I just can't bring myself. Uh, you're a brilliant, brilliant human being. Uh, defend Joe Biden. Make the case for Joe Biden. If you were brought in, gun for hire. Mm. Defend, oh, wow. Could you do that? I can't think of. Oh, I'm sure I could do that, but I'd have to think about it. That would be a great chance to defend Joe Biden. Well, um, I always thought, okay, to be, to be fair to Joe Biden and to me, because uh, Joe Biden had a certain skill set, political skill set. For instance, I don't think anyone, I mean, I don't think of anyone in the democratic political swamp who could have performed better against Sarah Palin than Joe Biden. Yes. I mean, that was that, well, that was perfect. You know, the problem with going against uh, somebody like Sarah Palin, who is a ridiculous person, uh, although Liz Truss of the UK is sort of giving her a run for her money. But, uh, you know, it's like when a heavyweight gets into the ring with a lightweight, nothing that's about to happen is going to make the heavyweight look good. Right. You know, it's like if you just pummel the lightweight, you know, what was that? And, and if somehow the lightweight gets a little sucker punch in there that makes you trip and fall down and hit your head on the post and, you know, that that makes them look fantastic and you even worse. So uh, but Joe Biden just basically uh, who was it? laughed. Glenn, Glenn Eiffel was the one moderating that. And both of them ignored her questions and they both kind of went on their ramble. And uh, the other thing he had was, uh, again, part of his political skill set is that he could be, he could evince empathy. Like, God damn it, I was pissed at Joe Biden for 30 years, but he talks about, he was, he was talking to, I think, the Sandy Hook survivors about a year or so later, and he's talking about losing a child and, you know, which he knows some, something about. And, and then he says, but I promise you, I promise you, there will be one day when you think about your loved one and a smile will come to your lip before, tear, lips to, before tears come to your eyes. And I'm sitting there going, God damn! <laughs> 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 that, was, that was such a perfect statement. I was all tearing up over that. So, right. you know, uh, he had the skill set. Um, I mean, he's got a ton of other baggage. However, he doesn't have it anymore. He right. can't do that anymore. And right. it's just so painfully obvious that what we're doing is elder abuse. Yeah. But, you know, this is what we've allowed to have happened. Um, I think we people need to go back. Lawrence O'Donnell has a, was on a PBS program, and they were talking about, you know, politics in America back in 2007. 
and you know just how corrupt the parties are and every year we do every four years we do this charade and nobody's really happy with the results of the primaries anymore and then Lawrence O'Donnell come up and said look I'm in the senate for 20 years and I never ever had to listen to anything from the left ever and it says that the left wants to move the party in their direction he and he emphasized it they had to be willing to not vote for him and I think I've mentioned that more than once right. but I mean that's so true it's you know that that is really true and it's just people are the problem is there's careerism going on. People and, and, you know, everybody, once they get into office, thinks they're so damn irreplaceable. So, you know, your career, you know, becomes like Gollum's ring, you know, his little precious. And it's after a while you start turning into the thing you came to Washington to throw out and you start turning into a creature. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, you know, we, uh, we aren't, you know, I think the last time I was really in uh, for a Democratic president was the first time Barack Obama ran. And, you know, I wanted to believe, I wanted to believe so badly that, hey, maybe the system does adjust itself, you know, maybe the tide is turning and, um, you know, what a disappointment that was. And it, yet again, it was just confounding how, like, what he was trying to get that grand bargain. You know, he put Social Security on the table, those private accounts of Social just to get the grand bargain. And, the, and these, the the, uh, the Republicans, there was a faction of them just too back crap crazy to like even try to talk to him about that. So, um, yeah, um, and it, but it was just what it was. What was he doing? Well, actually, Cenk Uger probably back then, who was uh, before he took that billionaire's money. I mean, he was super pissed off at the Democrats all the time, and he was railing against the Obama at the time. He was doing this, but then he uh, had an insight. He said, "You know, the thing with Obama is that he's a political creature, and he's incredibly good at this." but he has an instinct for the political center of every room and he goes to it. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a state Senator from the South side of Chicago, in many ways, you're very lefty in many ways you're very kind of pro Bernie side because South side is a lot of poor people and a lot of working class people. And uh, you know, it's so in 2002, he was over to make, it was able to make that great speech against the Iraq war, which I swear to God, I'm sure is, the main reason that he became president and not Hillary Clinton. Now, if Obama were in the Senate at that time, would he have made that speech? I mean, no. in the Senate. No. I don't think so. So Schenck Uger was absolutely right. And then I'm looking at it, of course, once you're in Washington with all the lobbyists and all the money, I mean, it's you're just way to the right, you know, at least certainly in, in, in uh, economic terms of, most of the like, most of the public, and so that was what he was swimming in. And now Joe Biden. I mean, I don't know. I I, I think we. I think a lot of people watch those two videos where uh, Joe Biden seemed to be shaking hands with. P I mean, it was just automatic. It's like lizard brain to these people, you know. Right. It's kind of like uh, it just. Ooh, I had a like bad flashback to Reagan, kind of doing the same sorts of things. You know, he had the laugh, the smile. He 
he could sometimes still give a speech, but he was gone. I mean, in retrospect, his, you know, later on, his aide said that, yeah, you know, well. And that's why, that's why they nominated Reagan. It's why they nominated Biden. They wanted somebody who was twilighting so they could manipulate him Mm -hmm. and do their bidding. Rover Norquist, we don't want a president who can think. He just needs enough functioning digits to sign our legislation. I mean, like the idea, I thought that Grover Norquist was sort of the extreme of political cynicism, but that's that, that's what we have right now. I mean, that's that's completely normalized. A lot of things getting normalized these days that poor old Aunt Marianne is kind of freaked out about. But You know, I'm a broken record on Ukraine on this show because I cannot believe my eyes. I've never seen anything this craven before where the the United States in the past, we would pretend that war was the last option. Yeah. Then we would secretly build up the Ukrainian army and we'd have CIA agents on the ground, but we would at least pretend that we were trying to avoid casualties in war. Now there's no, it's just, yeah, he's going to invade. He's going to invade. No doubt about it. And here's some weapons and here's more weapons. Well, for ever since even the first Gulf War, really, I mean, war has been like infotainment for us. It's been presented that way. I mean, I, I, I was protesting the first Gulf War back in the 1991 down um, where I discovered um, we, we were protesting down Michigan Avenue and we took over the street and then we did a die in. And uh, I have to say, like, there is nothing like the view from laying on your back in the middle of Michigan Avenue and looking up at the architecture and <laughs> seeing, seeing that site. But I mean, you know. And then the war began and uh, you know, my boyfriend at the time was a mil- military, had been an army brat, and he was uh, had the only Republican I ever knew who was living in Chicago at the time changed drastically. But even he, after watching this war for a while, said, wait a minute, this is all bull crap we're being fed because he was part of intelligence. He had been on a nuclear submarine, but he had also been working in intelligence and he kind of understood you know the scenario and he says this is not making any sense i said well maybe just maybe what we're getting is propaganda yeah, it's back in the first gulf war of course by the second gulf war i mean it was just shock and awe and all those people that protest i mean we were the whole world was protesting yet after uh, bush launched i mean he had an over 71 percent approval rating and people were just watching the shock and awe and, you know, and it's just a show. It's the, the beauty of our weapons, you know, it's the, it, it, everything is just kind of, it, they realized, and, you know, this is nothing new with me. I mean, Noam Chomsky had been saying this for years, the real enemy of intelligence agencies, is not the Russians or the Chinese or even the terrorists, it's the civilian population. I mean, we're the ones that need to be handled. We're the ones that need to be thoroughly propagandized. And boy, oh boy, I mean, like four years of Russia gating, and you just got, you know, even the Democrats all hopped up to hate now. You know, they really, right. there, there's, a, there, there's an appetite for a two minute a day hate. 
and they've ginned it up. And so people cannot think straight about this. And, so you're you know, saying there's, there's a, a through line from Russiagate to the demonization of Putin to justify sending all these weapons. I think there's like a big overlapping commonality of interest. Look, as I said, you know, you only have to go to Amy Parnes and um, Jonathan uh, Parn. What was his last name? I keep forgetting his last name. The, the people who wrote Shattered. And they were actually documenting the Hillary campaign. It was supposed to be about the, you know, how uh, the documenting of the rise of the first woman president. But, you know, the day after the election, everybody's wandering around, wandering around in shell shock, so to speak, and people are talking. And so they're just writing and they're getting all this stuff down. And uh, they were talking to people who had gotten out of a high level meeting with Robbie Mook and Podesta. And they said, you know, we got to figure out an explanation for this. So they uh, discussed many different things and they landed on, it was Russia. It was the Russians that ginned up the election. It was a big psyop. It was basically, they stole the elections. They were massively interfering with us. And whereas before they barely gave Russia a thought. And part of it was because, you know, there had been a scandal, yeah, yeah been covered in the right wing press, but it's also been covered in the New York Times where the, there was a sign off on selling like 20% of the mining rights to your, for our uranium to a Russian company. And I was scratching my head over that at the time thinking, wait a minute, isn't uranium like one of those strategic assets? I mean, what are we giving these guys? I mean, it was just, I didn't care much about it, but the- the, the Hillary authorizing the sale. Yeah, well, she was the big sign off. And of course people, uh, and, and the problem was the people, the main lobbyist for this uh, had given like um, $145 million to the Clinton Foundation. And that was a, that foundation was really problematic. That was kind of a slush fund for all of Hillary's operatives. You know, the people they had in the White House before worked for the Clinton Foundation. And they, you know, and they just got right. They, they had a launching pad for her uh, presidential run. So that was, that was problematic. And there was also very little, I mean, I have to give credit to old uh, um, Chelsea Clinton. I mean, when she came in, like Charity Navigator refused. I mean, the, pol the most polite thing they could do is refuse to even like rate it. They said, there is not the controls and the metrics in place for us to even give you a rating. So Chelsea turned that all around. But the thing was, is that she you know, Russia to, yeah, Russia was was seemed to be the big negative for Hillary. So they didn't want to bring that up. But now they thought, well, you know, you just flip it. You know, it's like, well, she couldn't have been pro-Russia because, look, the Russians stole the election from from her. And so, you know, to the extent that even after the Mueller report, um, Reuters did a poll and they found that still about 50% of Americans and the vast majority of Democrats believed Russia directly interfered with our elections, believed Russia was directly in um, coordinating with, with the Trump campaign and all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, we could say what we want about the people who don't believe that the 2020 election was above board. But, you know, Democrats can be as equally uh, delusional when they want to when, when the favor when they. So you know, what, they what, what was the shift? Because in the 2012 
uh, presidential debate, Romney kept warning about Russia. Obama famously said, you know, the 20th century called they want their foreign policy yeah. back. Russia's no threat to America. Within four years, Obama is blaming everything on Russia, or at least the threat to our democracy. Oh, that, that was, yeah, I think that was politics. I mean, uh, who was the, I think he was prime minister, and then he was president when Aunt Putin was prime minister. Medvedev. And, Medvedev. Medvedev. Yeah, he and, and Obama had spoken on more than one occasion, and, and basically they were speaking about Syria, and uh, apparently they were kind of a, there was, there was also a problem with the missiles in Poland. That was a big, that was a big threat. I mean, Russia was extremely upset over that. It's within like a hundred miles of their border. And they said these missiles were put in place uh, to uh, ward off a, a potential nuclear attack from Iran, which, was kind of on the face of it, kind of preposterous because Iran did not have the capability to launch those long, I mean, they had short range missile capability, but not that kind of long range missile capability. And, you know, so you can imagine, you know, if China or somebody put missiles in, in, in Canada or Mexico near our border, we'd have similar concerns. As a matter of fact, uh, we wouldn't have the forbearance of Russia, we would just take them out. I mean, um, but anyway, it's, uh, I, I think that there is just, we always need a scapegoat. I mean, it, they, were, they were shrill against uh, terrorism and terrorists and Muslims and to the extent, and this was no joke, my, my father's, uh, one of my father's partners had been um, helping people who were locked up. I mean, we're talking American citizens who were just summarily locked up after 911 because they had given to organizations in the Middle East that, that now the State Department deemed were terror or had been a terrorist affiliated or had some kind of interaction with it. It was, it was nonsense, of course, but my God, just breathtaking to me after 911, how scared people came. I mean, I said, Are you realize the power you're giving these psychopaths in the Bush administration? Even Democrats, my God, you're uh, the, the ability to just, you know, give up all your rights. The ability that you were, that they were so, um, so open to propagandizing. You know, it's just people, I heard things coming out of people's mouths that were just straight out of, you know, uh, Paul Wolfowitz's like propaganda book. I mean, it was just really a, a very upsetting time. Um, what happens? So what happens to this country if, God forbid, there is a, 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 a another nine eleven? What happens? That's it, right? In terms of. Well, I mean, we've got everything. Obama set up everything in place for it to be a complete fascist totalitarian state. I mean, he has, uh, what was it, the 2011 um, Defense Authorization Act, which basically, you know, overrode <laughs> the Magna Carta. Basically, the president could deem you a threat, a national security threat, and have you held indefinitely without counsel, without charges. 
you know, that was, and that's the thing, you know, you look at Obama and he made that all go, go down so smoothly because, you know, Obama would never do anything like that. But the problem he's a is constitutional you know, professor. Yeah. But, you know, I think he's also a, a politician. And again, you get into that environment in, 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 uh, in Washington, D.C., you know, you were talking earlier. I, I caught a little bit of your stuff. I tried to listen to at least a part of your, um, your, your opening uh, doing the news. And you're right. I mean, we've got oligarchs that are just buying up our government. Now, Putin is only one example. Remember the Pentagon Papers, Russia was a distant second to the, to the Ukrainians. And so what the hell is Ukraine? You've got, you know, you've got Chris Hines and Hunter Biden and Paul Manafort. You've got all these creatures running around Ukraine. And Ukraine is, uh, as was pointed out as recent office hours, I mean, their standard of living was among the poorest in Europe. Right. They're about 14. They're about 14 oligarchs in Ukraine. Yeah. One of whom put... Zelensky into office. We forget that Zelensky. Not only that, I just found out recently that um, he is also was the uh, was the controlling holder of Burisma Holdings. I mean, he was the he was the he was the controlling stockholder in Burisma. The, the oligarch who funded yeah. Zelensky. And, and not only that, he had. Um, I can't remember his name off the. Uh, at the top of my head, but Ihor, e- e- I think I wouldn't, I'm not, I wouldn't be able to pronounce it anyway, but uh, he also had this, he was the only, uh, he was the only one allowed to have a private bank in Ukraine. It was called, literally, I think it was called private bank. <laughs> it's like with a weird spelling, but basically that's what it was. And it was just involved in a huge scandal where there were he and the other directors were just skimming money off the top and sending it overseas to these, you know, shell companies that the uh, they took it away from them. I mean, they had to take it over and they got the International Monetary Fund to cough up like five point five billion dollars to bail the bank out. So what's going on here? I don't think I can even begin to connect all these dots, but what's going on, as I said previously, you know, you have, nobody thinks this is a problem, but you have in Washington, you know, a whole swamp of people who basically, whose sole job is to put a for sale sign in front of every U.S. congressman and senator. And, you know, that get, that's who gets in the front of the line before the constituents. If there's you know a billionaire from from Ukraine or wherever wants to talk to a certain certain congressman about you know doing something from him and maybe he can do something for his district, that guy gets an audience. You know why is that not a national? Se- why in the world is that not a national security issue? I think that's the national security issue. I think that we don't have an overriding set of principles that are guiding our Congress or our White House. We have these guys and our own oligarchs and everybody else, you know, trying to do their, their, their uh, uh, career thing. And that's it. There's very few people willing to go to Washington, be a one termer and take a stand and then go back doing whatever they were doing. I believe that Jeanette Amag 
who is running in the 8th uh, Congressional District here is one of them. I mean, he says, I don't even know why I'm doing this sometimes, but I said, you know, good. If you're, if you're asking yourself, why the hell am I going to put myself through this? You're probably the guy we need to have because you're not, not looking at it as a stepping stone in your career, which will launch your career post-Congress if you're not going to go to the presidency or even after the presidency, that, that career, after all of that is your, is your main, you know, that, that, is, that, that is your goal. The, the time in Washington DC is kind of like your low paid internship to get into that club. You know, it's just unbelievable. And so that's why, you know, I always thought you can't play this game. That's why many people think I'm, you know, I'm trying to be combative or I'm just trying to be contrary. No, you have to be disruptive. You have to find people who will disrupt that. If it means holding up Nancy Pelosi's uh, speakership by a week, which I think is hardly disruptive. But I mean, if it means stalling uh, Biden's favorite bill, I mean, that's what you have to do. And uh, we're not there yet. Yeah. And yeah, I think that, I mean, Trump, I mean, there was a possibility he could have been disruptive, but, you know, he was just an enormous narcissist and he really didn't care. I mean, he's just, he was useful to the oligarchs, but Biden is also useful who would not have been useful was Bernie Sanders. And that's kind of where we're at. So good on Bernie. I noticed that he was even quoting Dostoevsky, you know, about the way to destroy a man is to just to make him force him to a job that just grinds his soul to dust or something like that. I, I can't, I can't. Did, he, did, he, did Bernie say that at the Amazon labor? Yeah, at the Amazon rally. Yeah. Somebody pointed that out and I actually looked it up. I'm going, oh yeah, that quote was from Dostoevsky. Uh, I have always been very protective in a patronizing baby boomer way of AOC when people I never understood why so many on the left dislike AOC. And then I watched a little of her speech uh, when she introduced Bernie Sunday on Staten Island. There was something inauthentic about her. There, there was something I, it didn't seem real. I, I'm not saying I don't like her, but I began to understand why some listeners don't like her. You, you're not a fan of AOCs. I used to be, but no, um, not not really. I mean, it's just like going, well, maybe they can be useful. I mean, then it, it's, right. we, we were hoping for that small cadre of people. And it just drives me crazy when people keep telling me, well, there's not enough of them. I said, there's enough of them now when it's razor thin. If, if the Democrats uh, get, you know, uh, go in the minority, they're not going to matter. If the Democrats come back with a big, <laughs> with a big margin of corporate or moderate Democrats, they're not gonna have power. This was an opportunity that you had to use leverage. And it was, it's just a profound disappointment that they didn't use it. And it really, you know, set there, it, it was really a disservice to the people who scraped up together donations who really couldn't afford to give anything, but they did. And you're sitting there with your millions of Twitter followers and things like that, and you're not mobilizing people. 
you're basically telling us, well, you don't understand the machinations of, you know, Washington, D.C. You don't know what they're going, what we go through. I know exactly what you go through. You're being hit nonstop by the echo chamber that is D.C., you know, and there needs to be a loud enough crowd outside pushing you guys to like remember, you know, what you told us three years ago or one year ago when you were running for office. You know, that's uh, I never believe in in treating people like, you know, precious objects. You know, I, I my criticism of people that I've supported could be a, is usually a lot harsh, harsher when they're going astray than people that I never cared for because I never cared for them. I'm not expecting anything out of a Louis Gohmert, except for a good, you know, source of entertainment. I'm not expecting anything out of Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene or any of these schools, you know, but I did expect something from people who looked at us and told and made a promise. This is what we're going to do a certain, that they were going to be different. That was the whole point of them. Right. Um, yeah, that's what's Speaking uh, of driving it. The, the, before you go, tell me about Nina Turner. Voting has started in Ohio. Yeah. It ends on May 3rd for the primaries. What do you sense is going on there? Well, I just got a I just got a text. You know, I said, so do you want me uh, over there next weekend? And she said, sure, if you can come on by. It said the ground game is a little better. He said they what they did was um, one of the things they, they said in retrospect was, yeah, the ground game was just a little thin. I think partly because they didn't anticipate that they would need such a mobilization because, you know, a few months before she was like, you know, had a commanding lead in the polls. And then Chantel Brown came in with a democratic machine and they started spending big bucks and they started, they thought that they had to spend big bucks on the, uh, on the media buys. So, but this time they've really been pushing getting local people involved. And I said, well, that's great. And I said, you know, and just make sure there are one or two people at every single stinking, you know, polling precinct on election day and, uh, you know, to, to persuade people. I mean, it, it's just, a, again, I might be repeating myself, but if you can come to people and give them a story, most people just vote by habit. And if, if the campaign connects with them, um, you're likely to get them as a voter. And, there, and there's no shortcut to that. I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of the way you have to do these things in all the media and the, you know, the, the pinpointing, the micro-targeting of demographics. It could occasionally be useful, but nothing you know, beats just having people precinct by precinct who know the district who's like in the area. I don't, I'm, I'm very comfortable going into almost any neighborhood anywhere and talking, I'm, I'm fine with that. But um, so we'll see, they, uh, I mean, Nina claimed that she said they, they learned some pretty hard lessons from the last time. I'm right. hopeful, so. Professor. Oh, there was also some, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, please. There was also some good news, by the way, for Rod, but maybe Rodrigo is going to talk about that. Uh, the gal that was on death row, Yes. Uh, was, uh, well, she it was given a reprieve in Texas. Melissa Lucio. Yeah, that's right. She was she was given a reprieve in Texas. I had the, the article up here, but um, to look at, um, they were going to uh, review the, the new, um, uh, the new evidence that had come in. I mean, they had, I mean, when there were five jurors who are now like traumatized that they didn't get to see this medical evidence during the trial, you know, that 
pretty much exonerates her. But, uh, and the fact that they had voted to put somebody to death when they might be innocent, you know, that could be for some people pretty traumatizing. Yeah. So, so that's good. I mean, that's good news. Um, does she, declare, does she declare fetishhood? Yeah, you know how, like, we're giving personhood to animals? Uh, why don't we? Uh, yeah. Why yeah don't you we can, oh, Lord. You know. You claim fetishhood in Texas? Yeah. Uh, every, you know, every sperm is sacred, so to speak. Every life is precious. I mean, to me, that's. I have to say, at least that's one respect where the Catholic Church has been consistent. Yep. They're pro-life. Yeah, they, they have been consistent about that. So, you know, but, you know, there's just a people just like that, ooh, you know, turning, giving the state godlike powers to just, like, execute people. I mean, human sacrifice has been around forever, and it's just kind of an exciting thing. I don't know. It's, it gets to the core of our lizard brains to watch somebody, you know, just kind of Braided up and ritualistically murdered. Uh, God, we're such a bunch of damn dirty apes. <laughs> we're so primitive, but you know. America is a great country so long as you don't pay attention. Well, you know, there's a lot, and there's a lot going on. I mean, Miguel Cabrera hit three his three thousandth hit this this uh, week fantastic story, Detroit Tiger. Um, he is now only one of seven people who have hit three, to make 3,000 hits and over 500 home runs in all of Major League Baseball history. And he's still got a couple of years left on his contract with Detroit Tigers. So, you know. Great. Anyway. So, Professor Marion Cummings, follow her on Elon Musk's internet machine. <laughs> Twitter machine. Twitter I mean, machine. I can't believe that people are getting so upset because, you know, like Twitter has changed billionaires' hands. Like, you think uh, he'll give Donald Trump back his account? I don't really care. I'd care much more if he, if uh, somebody like Pepe Escobar would come back or Eva Bartlett or, or um, Scott Ritter. You know, that's a problem. I mean, everybody is so wanting to cancel people. They don't, that there's just like legions of independent reporters and journalists that have just been, have gotten their platforms yanked from them. I mean, you know, um, I'm glad that people are preemptively going to other platforms who have shows on YouTube, for instance, you know, so that nothing, so that at least it's not all lost, but you know, boy, the flushing down the memory hole is just a, is a creepy thing, our near history. And so, no, I don't really care if Donald Trump gets on Twitter. Fine. Right. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Professor Marianne Cummings. I'll see you Thursday, I hope. Well, in a short while, we will be joined by Professor Mike Steinel. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Well, Bernie Sanders and AOC were out on Staten Island yesterday, standing together with Amazon Labor Union. Why 
walking 13 miles on every shift with not a chair in sight lifting 20,000 pounds a day that don't seem right saving plastic bottles to have a place to pee injuries in this place are the highest in the industry don't believe those TV ads things ain't what they seem don't tell me this sweatshop has become the American dream we need to stand together can't do it on our own we need to stand together and make our presence known we need to stand together to get the union done we need to stand together what side are you on strong working two shifts a day packing all day long while the cameras are running away 100,000 trucks tearing up and down the roads delivering stuff all over the world in 40 ton loads when did this sweatshop become the American dream don't believe those TV ads Things ain't what they seem We need to stand together Can't do it on our own We need to stand together And make our presence known We need to stand together And get the union done We need to stand together Which side are you on? your mates can't listen to music gotta pack all those crates start to feel like a robot but soon you understand there's more of them than you that's always been the plan do not believe those tv ads things ain't what they seem and don't try to tell me this sweatshop will become the american dream we got to stand together we can't do it on our own stand together we need the uaw the afl cio we got to stand together we can't do it on our own We need the American postal workers and the farm workers. We need the teamsters and the RWDSU. We need everybody. Call the phone. Get on the phone. Call your neighbors. We need to stand together. Yeah, yeah. We need to stand together. That's what I'm talking about. We need to stand together. 
Joining us in Denton, Ohio, is Professor Mike Steinel, author of Denton, Ohio. Did I say Denton, Ohio? (laughs) Yeah, you did. Uh, I'll do a Don Rickles. (laughs) Like it's any better. (laughs) Denton, Texas. Like it's Uh, any better. (laughs) Professor Mike Steinel, the brilliant Mike Steinel. Oh, I don't know about that. Oh, I know. I like my shirt. Check out my shirt. I love it. Cowboy Beautiful. Sh- cowboy shirt's got satin. Got, got. Uh, I bet you, Dan doesn't have a shirt anything like this. No, no. There you go, man. That's how's my volume. How's my volume? Your volume is fantastic. Okay, that's good. That's good. Jeffrey Epstein had a cello. Yeah, that's a weird story. Did you read it? Uh, I I didn't I'm not interested in him and I, <laughs> I so it's so you know like I read the whole story and then at the end of it I went like well so big deal he he was wacky you know he was he was messed up did he play the cello no he did not was it an expensive cello he lied he, he was he had some he and his brother showed some musical inclinations early and they were given scholarships to Interlochen. I have friends that taught it in luck. I've often, in the last couple of days after I read that story, I thought maybe I'll call my friend Bill Sears and see if he, if there's any stories about. Supposedly, at Interlock, and it's probably where he began uh, as a teenager. You know, like uh, uh, his his peccadillos uh, in terms of harassing women <clears throat> and manipulating them. But he claims he had claimed that he had. Uh, Jacqueline Dupre, this great French cellist, that he had accompanied her, which is probably a bogus claim. Um, but he, while he was, how is it? There's a whole bunch of weird things about Interlock, and he he would go there and visit, and he picked out a young girl who he was going to mentor, and he paid her way, he paid her her tuition to um uh i think eastman and he was going to pay her tuition and then she refused to be on one of the trips with prince andrew Mm. and so uh that's when he he cut off but that's just an ancillary thing but anyway there's this other person um mark de rosa was was the cellist and he didn't have he was dating an acquaintance of um epstein's Oh, I can't remember her name. I didn't write, make any notes. But anyway, just out of the blue, he contacted this cellist and said, uh, I need you to buy me a cello, a good cello. And there was no reason to it. So at first, the guy kind of blew him off. And then he, he pestered him, said, do it. Just get a cello. So uh, he did locate a cello in L.A. and went out and played it and discovered that it was about $165,000 cello, which is not real expensive for a cello. Uh, but it was really a remarkable instrument and had been played by a studio musician. So then um, there's all sorts of little things like uh, the price was set and then um, Jeffrey and his lawyers finagled the price down and uh, that kind of was insulting to th- this Mark 
um, DeRosa. And uh, then the, the, but eventually the cello was loaned. It was owned by his foundation and it was loaned to, oh God, I should, Yud Nin, I'm, I'm going to mess up. Maybe in the chat they can Google the story. Who was the son-in-law of uh, Ehud Barak? Is that how you say it? Yeah, Ehud Barak used to hang out at uh, the mansion. Exactly. Jeffrey Epstein's exactly. mansion. So he did a, he did a solid for, uh, and, and, and this person played the cello for a number of years, and then it had to be given back when um and this all happened after his first conviction his first conviction was like 2003 something that, right yeah yeah way back it's yeah. amazing so it's kind of a you know the whole hunt and so he had a cello you know and he it um and it floated around and it was probably some some uh little bit of ingratiating himself with the israeli prime minister the former israeli prime minister who was very very wealthy you know. Ehud Barak? Yeah. If Ehud Barak married Barack Obama, <laughs> yeah. He would be Ehud Obama. That's, that doesn't work. <laughs> if Ehud Barak married Barack Obama, he would be. All right, if Barack Obama married Ehud Barak. I'm not sure the payoff's worth. <laughs> the trouble to wade through this there's a joke in there somewhere you got to get the right the right things yeah. the right things going yeah how are things in, in texas oh we had big rain yesterday big storms uh flash flooding which is good we needed the rain you know so it's nice to have it oh i was gonna i was gonna show you my mole repellers we have moles in the yard digging the ground is so squishy it just uh, Got to get rid of these molds. So I got these things. Maybe I'll run down and get them while you play a song or something. And these things you put in the ground, and it makes a little beep every 20 seconds. And I guess the molds don't like, they don't like the beep. They should, so, they should move. <laughs> uh, my, my apartment is next door to a construction site. That's why but, you don't have molds. Yeah, but we hear beep, beep, beep. Yeah, you know, I was going to, I was going to write in. I haven't been keeping up on the, your rants. I'm sorry, your news at the beginning, but I, I just, I'm just kidding. They, they're really good. They're really good. And I was, you know, this song I did. Uh, I'm, my my name is Feldman, and I paint with a broad, broad brush. Yeah. Yeah. Still working on trying to get that done. But uh, two two problems. I've gone back and I've actually listened to many of your uh, news things, and there's not that much that's over the top. There's not that much broad. When I say it, it's over the top. And then three weeks later, people go, Oh, he, I'm not, I was right. Like all about the money laundering or, you know, Christian small. Yes. Yes. You're usually right. But what I started to do was, um, I would put it on double time and, that's pretty funny <laughs> to, to hear you. <laughs> you go very quickly, yeah. but you don't screw up. You're really good at that. I'm going to, I always compliment you on those. And I keep asking, do you write that out? 
No. Today, I got to jump on the day. So you uh, wrote something out? I was able to organize my... I got up really early. I, I'm quitting the caffeine, so my sleep... Hey, I, you said that, but I was watching the show earlier, and you were drinking coffee. You were drinking something decaf. out of a coffee cup. Decaf. Oh, a decaf. Yeah. I'm okay. going through an interesting transformation because caffeine has always been my crutch. I've always felt I needed caffeine to think properly, but it was screwing up my sleep cycle. I just said, you know what? Two cups in the morning, that's it. And I have more energy throughout the day. My mind is there. It's the body mind connection. So if the body feels tired, I think my mind is tired, but I've come to realize now my body's tired, but my mind is still functioning. So I'm kind of paying attention to the mind body relationship. I get that. That sounds sounds logical. Well, you're very disciplined in your writing, right? Like, what is your writing schedule? Well, I'm well, I you know, now I'm retired. I just tried. I do stuff throughout the day. I'm better in the morning. I'm I'm much more productive, and I get up really early. I, I usually I'm awake by uh, certainly awake by six, and I'm usually doing. You know, I get the paper, I do the crossword, blah blah blah. Maybe I start to work on it at eight, and I go to lunch. <clears throat> we have to. We got to watch. Uh, we're watching the soaps at noon with Nadine. <laughs> and, the soaps uh, are watching. She watches The Young and Restless, and I, I, that's on while I'm making lunch and everything, and I'm kind of monitoring. But the, I'm really into <laughs> the bold and the beautiful. There's <laughs> Sheila has killed two people in the alley, and one of them. <laughs> Sheila, Sheila, let me give you a backup. On New Year's Eve, Sheila changed the, the label on the bottles of champagne so that Brooke thought, think thought she was drinking non-alcoholic champagne and she got drunk and right. she ended up in bed with her former husband while her while ridge was out on the road and she tried to keep that a secret for a long time that came out and they have split up and sheila did it and then ridge's children found out that sheila did it uh finn found out that sheila did it. and finn is um you ever watch tv yeah you know the Liberty Buchumel guy? Liberty yeah, Buchumel? yeah, yeah, I love him. That, that he's they killed him. <laughs> he's gone. He's off the show. Oh, so, and that's Sheila's. She, she, she's she's the uh, actual. She's his birth mother who gave him up, and she's she tried to kill Taylor, who's. <laughs> I can't believe I'm telling you all this. It's great, but anyway. So now uh, this is the bold and the beautiful. The bold and the beautiful, and now Finn's wife who's who's uh, uh, met Sheila in the alley and Sheila pulled a gun to shoot her but Finn jumped in front of her and she shoots Finn her own son and then um, the the daughter's you know going you're gonna go to jail for this and she shoots the daughter and then she cleans up the but anyway so now the daughter's like in a coma has she's come out but she doesn't remember anything and now just today, she said, they asked her, well, do you see any faces in the alley? And she goes, she, Sheila? <laughs> so we've been wow. watching every day, the Sheila show. Wow. 
But you know what else I've been doing? I've been uh, go back to soap operas for a second. Okay. Are you able to enjoy it and get absorbed or are you detached from it? Are you the muse? Oh, it's fine. It's funny. No, I'm not I'm not I think it's 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 a it's a study in manipulation. Of how they the can, yes, how they can stretch a story, you know, like there's a thing that has to happen. In other words, uh Finn's wife who's been shot hang on a second is everything okay down there i need it oh okay is it a home invasion no you're not gonna have to get i think nadine's watching ncis and there was a lot of uh white noise i don't know but um i just think it's but one of the things I've been doing, I finally got through East of Eden on the audio book. It, Steinbeck is so amazing. I want to talk about Steinbeck. Okay. And uh, I've started, you know, last week we talked about, who did we talk about? Mortimer Adler. And we talked about his uh, curating the and, and editing the great books of the Western world. And one of the things he said. The Synopticon. Was, Synopticon, yes. Synopticon. I might have said synoptic. I sometimes say that incorrectly. It might have been symptopticon topic. But anyway. Um, prison where you never have any privacy. What's that called? <laughs> I don't know. Ann Lee is here. She knows. Oh, my. Here, I know. Is it Anne. a similar word to syntopticon? Is Ann Lee here? She'll know. Go ahead. No, but anyway, uh, one of the things she said is that there's going to be 40,000 books published this year. A hundred will be worth reading. Maybe two will be worth reading twice and, and some will be worth reading many times. I think East of Eden with its themes and just its beautiful language. I, I started going through it again. And um, you know what captured me? Because I'm writing, you know, I've got two other novels started that aren't going anywhere. And and. I learn a lot by uh, reading these other people. Not reading, but listening to them, you know. But Steinbeck is so great with similes, and his verbs are so interesting. Um, I want I brought a couple of little excerpts. Oh, somebody in the YouTube chat room. Yeah. Panopticon. Just give me the truth. Thank you. Panopticon. Oh, is that the room where you... Nicola Dimitri. Okay. An Opticon sounds like uh, like a convention for exhibitionists. I don't know. Sounds sounds scary. Okay. This is what he's talking about the Salinas Valley. He goes into a big description of California. He says both sides of the valley from both sides of the valley, little streams slipped out of the hill canyons and fell into the bed of the Salinas River. In the winter of wet years, the streams ran full freshet, and they swelled the river until sometimes it raged and boiled, bank full, and then it was a destroyer. The river tore the edges of the farmlands and washed whole acres down. It toppled barns and houses into itself to go floating and bobbing away. It trapped cows and pigs and sheep and drowned them in its muddy brown water and carried them to the sea. Then when the late spring came, the river drew in from its edges and the sandbanks disappeared. In the summer, the river didn't run at all above ground. 
Some pools would be left in the deep swirl places under a high bank. The tools and grasses grew back. The willows straightened up with the flood debris in their upper branches. The Salinas was only a part-time river. Anyway, he, he describes this one woman, uh, Adams, uh, no, uh, Samuel uh, Hamilton's wife. He said uh, she was a tart, a tight, hard little woman, humorless as a chicken. She had a dour Presbyterian mind and a code of morals that pinned down and beat the brains out of nearly everything that was pleasant to do. Wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. it's a great writing. He's talking about his half-brother, Charles. He said, um, yeah, Charles beat him up, but he's thinking about him. He says, out of the long tunnels of his eyes, Adam saw his half-brother, Charles, as a bright being of another species, gifted with muscle and bone, speed and alertness, quite on a different plane. To be admired as one admires the sleek, lazy danger of a black leopard. Not hmm. by any chance, to, isn't that amazing? The sweet, the sleek, lazy danger of a black leopard. Not by any chance to be compared with oneself. It would do no more to have occurred to Adam to confide in his brother, to tell him the hunger, the gray dreams, the plans, the silent pleasures that lay at the back of his tunneled eyes, than to share his thoughts with a lovely tree or a pheasant in flight. Adam was glad of Charles the way a woman is glad of a fat diamond. And he depended on his brother in the way that the same woman depends on the diamond's glitter and the self-security tied up in its worth. But love, affection, empathy were beyond conception. Incredible, isn't that? It would be great if it isn't Steinbeck, it's you. Well, I, I've, I've written something about you in a Steinbeck fashion as my gift tonight. Oh, okay. Are you ready? Yeah. I just knocked this out in the last half an hour, but I thought it might be kind of fun. Feldman looked nervously at the clock on the computer. His eyes went left and right, checking everything on the screen one last time. He was excited, but not like a man watching porn or an athlete testing the soft leather of a mitt, but more like an accountant looking at a bagel through the glass at the deli. <laughs> Sounds like John Stein Buck. <laughs> His stomach growled. It usually did before each show. It was a signal reminding him that he must press on. The show must proceed. There was nothing but certainty in that fact, like the certainty that a man has to pee at 6 a.m. <laughs> <clears throat> the next seven hours laid out in front of him like in his tunnel of vision, like tomorrow's inevitable colonoscopy. <laughs> he knew what lay ahead. There would be anger. There would be doubt. A calliope of feelings. They were needed. They were to be desired. Something had to fill that giant hole in his soul. <laughs> what had carved that hole? The cavern of despair he had long forgotten. <laughs> Perhaps it was those years in the overly masculine stale air of the writing rooms in Hollywood. <laughs> or maybe it was a girl who long ago in grammar school had taken his heart whole and chewed it like a feral pig and spilled the remains at his feet and laughed. 
Or maybe it's just hair plug remorse. <laughs> the reality is the puzzle he could never fully work out. Wow. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. That's yes, that sir. would be spoken word. That's a little music underneath. We'd be... Uh... Remember those? Hey, Con the guy who did Convoy died, speaking of spoken word. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, um, there was a guy in Chicago who did word jazz. Um, you know who talked about him? Your announcer friend uh, who hasn't been on in a while, The Hump. Miserable. What's that? Mark Thompson. Mark Thompson. He talked about, uh, oh, I can't remember. The Ernie Anderson? No, it's Ken Nordeen. Ken Nordeen. Ken Nordeen. He used to do this one called, I can't wait to get home to my baby. She's waiting for me. She's hungry. <laughs> he goes on this whole thing, and there's, there's music like, uh, let me see, something like. Uh, That's your Marianne Cummings knows who Ken Nordeen is. Okay. Oh, yeah, she's, yeah, she probably listened to him. I can't wait to get home to my baby. She's waiting for me there at home. She's hungry. She has needs. I'm ready to help. And then he comes into the door and the baby goes, Where, Daddy? <laughs> <laughs> but it's so lascivious, you know, and, and disgusting and, and so smarmy. And then he's, he's got a little child. <laughs> Pretty fun. That's probably on YouTube. Something like Ken, Ken Nardine Word Jazz. My my Nardine. baby's waiting at home or something like that. Wow, wow, wow! I've been working on uh, music for my novel. We're going to do a lot of uh, underscore in the audiobook for uh, Saving Charlie Parker. Got the last page, Bruce. Today I just got to read those one more time, and then I think we're done. I think the cover's ready. Now we go into the promotion phase. So that'll be interesting. And when, when does the book come out? Well, that's that will be decided by the promote. You, you said now they're going to pass me off to um, a promotion. You know, you, you get there's different people that work with you. There's right. the cover people and there's the page proof people and there's the editors. And now we're, there's a promotion team and they'll work out a release date. They'll work out a, uh, a, a launch plan and a release date. And then they, you know, they're going to send it to like 40 reviewers so we'll see what happens this is exciting it is exciting and i've been writing i've been working really hard on me that's why i haven't done a, anything new for the show but i did send you an oldie i've been playing i've been assembling your stuff and playing it yeah you, hey, you know what one thing i think it's i think you should turn it down just a little bit the volume of the playback because it right. kind of distorts Okay. I noticed like you, you, your volume is great and you're back from the mic. So that means your whole thing is pretty hot. Yeah. All right. Let me see here. Today's show, technically speaking, today's show is a lot better than What happened Thursday. Friday? I'm not hmm? Thursday. What happened Thursday? Crashed. The, the sound crashed. In the middle? Uh-huh. So. Wow. I need. I, I need to upgrade some equipment. Uh-huh. Well. Yeah. Jeff Bezos is probably going to buy um, 
I'm, I mean, Elon Musk is probably going to buy Apple next. He's just going to buy it all. Pretty scary. Should we play some music? Yeah, I sent uh, USA of Distraction. Yeah, I think I already have that. Okay. Let me just see. Um, Lyrically, I think in, in terms of verbiage, I like this one. Of all the ones I've done, this has the most. And it's just all stolen from Ralph Nader and the, and the gentleman who wrote the, US, the United States of Distraction. Uh, having trouble. I sent it tonight. I know. I thought I already had it loaded. I, I don't. So let me load it. Um, Are you guys doing questions from the chat? Very, that's on the uh, schedule, but you're not, huh? Uh, Dan, oh, uh, not tonight. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, Feldman's sweet suggestion. That was from last, last week. week. I'm having, this is... Uh, I sent it about eight o'clock. I know my time. Uh, can I interest you in? Got something else? Where is this? Why don't we play two songs? Okay. I, yeah, let's. I'll find that, and we'll play. I have other stuff here. Let me surprise you. I loaded. Marianne Cummings says, I used to listen to Art Bell. I, I listened to Art Bell, too. In, I lived in... Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's where Tucker Saint Carlson heading, by the way. He's what? I think Tucker Carlson's heading in Art Bell's direction. You're something. Okay, what do we got? Do you know what song I'm talking? Hang on, hang on. You know what song that is? Yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> that's an Amazon song. That's the sweet version. Not my favorite, isn't well, it? Well, I love this. Ain't no chairs. Well, go ahead and play it. Forget about the temperatures. Western coast Forget about Medicare for all It's just a ghost Billionaires in space Worry about the billion children With nothing to eat Cause we got billionaires in space Ain't that neat Forget about the banks that are too big to fail Forget about those politicians With their souls up on sale Don't worry about the climate That is out of hand Cause we got billionaires in space Bezos, Musk, and Richard Branson, too. I guess they got so much money, they don't know what to do. They're headed for a weightless 11-minute ride. If you got a lot of dough, you can be right by. 
predilections right and left tuition going up kids smothered in debt voting rights seem like they're going right up in smoke but we got billionaires in space ain't that woke Forget about those citizens so mad they attacked the Capitol Dome. Beating on the police, then running back home. I know democracy sometimes seems like a hollow shell. But don't worry, we got billionaires in space. Ain't that swell? That are busting at the seams Don't worry about a generation That have forgotten about their dreams Don't worry about people Coming to shoot up your school Cause we got billionaires in space And that cool We got billionaires in space That's great. Yeah. I forgot I like that one. I like that I one. That. I love that. I found the other one if you want me to play yeah, it. Yeah, let's do that. USA of Distraction. Yeah, why don't you set that up while I load it? Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm so embarrassed I can't remember the gentleman's name who wrote the book. Maybe you can help me out. The United States of Distraction. And it's a great book. It was on the show maybe a month ago. And... Uh, it just lays out what's going on in this country, what has been going on in this country for decades, and how we're, there's, everything is designed to take our eyes off what's really important. And uh, like I say, a lot of the phrases that I use in the song are just what, what Ralph Nader writes in the prologue and the author's introduction, too. They have a, if you just read those two things, I got, I got it on... Um, I bought it on, uh, you know, as a uh, Kindle. You know, I didn't buy I don't have the hard copy. I like hard copies a little better, but USA of Distraction. Okay. This is from Professor Mike Steinell. <laughs> Thank you. 
Mike Steinal, jazz trumpeter, composer, educator, author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary, Running the Changes. Go download his album Song and Dance, the Mike Steinal Quintet, featuring Rosanna Eckert on Origin Records. Go to MikeSteinal.com for more information. And listen to The Lake House, his book on tape. Go to YouTube and stream The Lake House. And pretty soon, Saving Charlie Parker will be inside a bookstore near you. Yeah. You're a genius. Uh, I'm going to write some uh, more uh, Steinbeck. I like it. it Maybe put some music underneath it. Like, should I do the Feldman, called the Feldman Chronicles? Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. Like that's Nadine. Yes, indeed. We're headed up to a Memorial Day. She's going to go to her class reunion (laughs) at 99. All right. Hang on for one second. I forgot about that. She's going to her class reunion. It's a whole, the whole town has a reunion for the high school they used to have. Right. Which ran out in the 70s, I think. So they have a big, it's really well attended. And she's the oldest living uh, graduate, so she'll be at the front of the front of the uh, table. She's they 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 put you in years, so you're kind of with people, you know. But Anybody she's, else from her class? Oh, no, she's no. It was down to two a while back, and the lady passed away. So she's the she's the last one. She's wow. doing pretty good. She's doing pretty good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Hey, See I you later. Give my best to Nadine. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Professor, Bye-bye. Professor Mike Steinel, an inspiration to us all. Seriously. Rodrigo, thank you, Rodrigo, for waiting. Melissa. Hi, David. That's good news about Melissa, right? Lucio? I hear you. 
I'm sorry. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. That was good news about Melissa Lucio. Yes, let's hope we can get her a new trial so she doesn't have to be uh, in prison for life. Yeah. Uh, a quick note, I don't think anyone's mentioned this yet. Stephen Donsinger uh, went free finally. Oh. After right. this very brave lawyer that represented the native people against Exxon was sentenced to home arrest by a judge assigned by Exxon. And I'm simplifying this a lot, but he's finally free. Good. He was under house arrest. arrest and then they locked him up and he was before a, a private judge, right? Not, not a government judge, a private judge was able to lock him up. Yes. That's good. So, What's, on your mind? What's on your mind? Um, we're all familiar with the lost struggle of quote-unquote real Republicans to keep the Trump loyalists out, but what we miss when you enjoy this narrative is that the establishment has only given up a very superficial level of control. We're missing the fact that aside from all the horrible social policies designed to keep racists and homophobes from noticing the minimum wage hasn't gone up since 2007, none of these quote-unquote crazy politicians that are quote-unquote taking over the Republican establishment do anything to get in the way of tax cuts for the rich, socializing losses and capitalizing wins, or as we leftists know this, capitalism for the poor, socialism for the rich. We certainly need to fight all these laws where cruelty is the point, but like the class reductionists, we also need to keep in mind that all of these quote-unquote crazy Q people would be stopped if they tried to raise taxes on the rich to own the leaves or some similar reason. Now, while your last show was being shot, a 16-year-old white male stabbed a 16-year-old female black female in the back, and it looks like he will be arrested, but does this young man so full of hate, he will stab a girl in the back again twice, understand that politicians and media figures are telling him to stab a girl in the back instead of explaining that white politicians and their allies have refused to increase the minimum wage since 2007. Uh, it's certainly entertaining to watch conservatives tear each other apart in public, but we must remember that all of them work for the very real quote-unquote tax cuts for the rich deep state. Macron last night recognized all the leftists who voted for him to keep Le Pen out, and even the people who refused to choose. In the US, this could create headlines. In France, this is the bare minimum, and leftists remember that he said that before. There's also women blaming the victim on the Daily Mail hit piece on Angela Rayner. I don't know if you heard about that. And of course, today, Kosovo still has segregated schools where both populations have their own mutually exclusive history books. All those liberals with Ukraine flags, where have they been for the last 20 years? while Kosovo is forced to pretend they're a country. If you think the NATO powers care about anything other than using Ukraine 
As canon fodder, you still don't understand what this war is about. Basically, I want everyone to always keep in mind that this cruelty is a distraction to keep conservative voters from discovering we have the same enemy, but also it serves to distract leftists. But also, uh, David, I was listening to your show earlier, uh, you really don't know that glory to Ukraine is the slogan of the Stepan Bandera Nazi collaborationists since before World War I. Uh, Amy Siskind was, probably was quoting the quote-unquote Jewish president of Ukraine who addressed the Greek parliament last month and finished his speech with glory to Ukraine. I hope she doesn't know what it means. That wow, say that so Let's go, Brandon. Glory to Ukraine was originally uh, said by the Bandera? ultra-nationalists of Ukraine since before World War One or thereabouts. And they've been recognizing each other. There are stories on the internet of how they recognized each other because they said glory to Ukraine and someone would say back glory to Ukraine and you knew that you have found another ultranationalist which is what Nazis look like when they're not in power. And that's where glory to Ukraine comes from. And Zelensky is using it as well. Well, Zelensky, as you know, uh, he was basically made by a billionaire who donates to the Azov Battalion, who owns four TV stations, including the one where Billion, uh, Zelensky showed Well, the, uh, that oligarch is Jewish and he's uh donating to the azov battalion yes because he thinks being a fascist is more important than being jewish much like his friends in the israeli netanyahu, government Bibi netanyahu meeting with orban yes those that crew all right let's wrap it up uh, uh we we gotta go great job Thanks, great job rodrigo you continue to amaze us that is our show please subscribe to my newsletter by going to davidfeldmanshow.com while you're over at davidfeldmanshow.com sign up to attend a live taping you get to sit in our virtual studio audience and what else follow me on the Elon Musk machine and Facebook uh, office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. The show is put together by Dan Frankenberger, Professor John, Jonathan Bick, Grace Jackson, Sarah Bush, Hannah Feldman, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Andy Brown. I've mixed up all the names. I think I got everybody. Uh, thank you to them. I want to thank our guests, Professor Adnan Hussein and Owet Well Dumaikal, Professor 
uh, of politics and history of Ethiopia. And he's got a new book out, Politics and History of Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa Region. Uh, go buy that book. Uh, Jason Miles, we didn't really get too much time with Jason. Don't forget to listen to his podcast. This is Revolution. Howie Klein and, of course, Santa Claus. Santa Claus, he may end up being uh, going to he may end up going to Congress. He is the uh, mayor pro tem of the city of North Pole, Alaska. Wow. What a great guy. David Cobb, follow him on Twitter at David K. Cobb, Professor Dr. Harriet Fraud, host of Capitalism Hits Home. Matt Leck, listen to Left Reckoning and Literary Hangover with Grace Jackson. And of course, listen to Leck on the Majority Report. Peter B. Collins, go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of his radio shows, podcasts, and interviews. Follow Professor Marianne Cummings on the Elon Musk machine at Razor Girl and go to MikeSteinel.com to find out where he'll be performing, what he's writing and how you can download his music. Thank you all for listening. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. All right, that's it. Thank you all for coming and participating. I have to put the show to bed and I have to be up really early tomorrow dealing with life as we all are. Thank you all. Uh, my mom is fine. 
she's fine. She's a force of nature. Uh, the good news is my mom is back to her old self. The bad news is my mom is back to her old self. So thank you for asking. I will see everybody hopefully Wednesday. Bye-bye. Thank you.